I'd like I'd to like welcome to. you all to McLuhan on Maui, uh, uh, tape 8, uh, uh, April 18th, uh, uh, 2011. Okay, take it away, Bob. Well, we're really honored to have our guest today, uh, Dave Neufeld, who did the second Medium is the Message album. Dave, it was the Medium is the Message as opposed to Medium is the Massage, right? Yeah, we were hoping to be even bigger by expropriating the exact thing Marshall said. You were hoping to? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, and you did that with Message rather than Massage? Exactly, because the book was called that, and we thought this was more in tune with just Marshall's basic messages, so let's just stick with his unfancified uh, truism. Right, so that was made in 93 into 94, got released in 94? Yeah, I think made more like, yeah, 92-ish, and then early, yeah, into 92, late 92, 93, and then we put 94, so it seemed newer, because you don't want to put something out later in the year, and it seems like it's last year's album, you have the new date, because it always has to seem new. Right, okay, so Dave... Well, that bias happens at the time when you think it's new. Say that again? That bias at least comes into play when you think it's new at the time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Dave Neufeld has had a pretty influential career in Canadian pop music. Maybe it would be categorized as indie music. CBC did a documentary uh, a couple of years ago where they listed the five major albums of Canadian pop culture history. And it began, I think, with a Neil Young, Joni Mitchell album in the late 60s, named a few other people, and then Daniel Lanois, and then said Broken Social Scene, which Dave Neufeld produced in 2002. That band went on to become really well-known, and Dave Neufeld became known and has become a school in, in himself, uh, in the school, in the tradition of Frank Zappa, up there in Trenton, Ontario, where he has his own studio which has ancient vinyl equipment and modern digital, and it gives Dave uh, the potential to make all kinds of unique atmospheres. So Dave works there, interacts with all kinds of people, travels around the world, but the most important thing is that Dave understands McLuhan, and that's why we're here. Uh, so Dave, what I was thinking an opening question, unless Andrew has one immediately, or Scott Taylor, who's here, does anybody have an immediate question for Dave and that album, The Meet Me's a Message? Uh, no, no? I'm, I'm good. I, I didn't have a, anything straight off the bat. Okay. So, Dave, did you listen to the first album, The Medium is the Massage, at the time? I think I listened to it about once or twice, just in the sense of, wow, i got to make a Marshall McLuhan album. That's pretty wild. Um, well, let me see what other people did and what they come up with. <laughs> so, so, so you did it in the Club 22 tradition of plagiarism. In my bedroom where I made it. Well, plagiarism? No, yeah, just, just to get a sense of, like, geez, how good already you know what did how did they handle this how did they how did they take Marshall stuff and I really you know I was pretty impressed I thought it you know it was very playful sounding and the use of the uh, you know the audio and stuff like that I thought it was neat there was a bit you know a vibe in it and you could I don't know who the exact guys who made it but there's a couple of them or whatever there's I liked it I remember I was, it felt kind of playful whereas when I listened to the McLuhan stuff I didn't get that completely um playful, ha-ha-ha, funny-funny, joke-joke vibe, even even when Marshall's funny. So I I, I, uh, I didn't get the same vibe. So, yeah, I was impressed with the, how they did it. You were caught at the, the patina of silliness that was put into apparently a serious thinker. Well, I yeah, I don't know if you want to call it patina. I, I don't know. I guess, you know, they, 
it, it maybe it was a bit cute, some of the stuff. I mean, it yeah. was what it was. And, uh, you know, oh, I don't know if people, like, I don't know if back in the day did 18-year-olds, you know, get stoned and listen to that album with the lights out on a stereo and think, fuck, that's amazing. I don't know, did that happen with that album? Yeah, no, no. I, I first heard of the album in early 68, reading the East Village Other out of New York City, and Lita Eliscu, who was the theater critic, for the East Village Other, and was a friend, I found out, of uh, Quentin Fury and Jerome Angel. I think she interacted with McLuhan a bit. Uh, she was an up-and-coming writer, and she reviewed the album, which I may have a copy of that actual review in my archives. And I said, wow, McLuhan put an album out. So we got it, and, um, yeah, uh, my colleagues sat around Stone listening to it. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but the... Uh, the same time was Lumpy Gravy by Frank Zappa. And yeah. so we were intrigued with the overlay with that. Because mm. so, Zappa's Lumpy Gravy, I don't know which I heard first, Lumpy Gravy or The Medium is a Massage, but they, uh, they, had, they were a new kind of style for album content. They weren't songs. It was collage. And uh, let's see, the guy who... Constant transition. Beg your pardon? Constant transition. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the thing... John, whatever the guy's name, have to look it up. Uh, Mark Stallman and I called him up back five, six years ago, and he, the guy who produced it, the young whippersnapper in the Columbia Records studio, I think it was. He Which guy was that? Jerome Agel? No, no, it was John somebody. He was the he was the actual oh, record right, producer. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. I don't have the record with me, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he um, he went on to become uh, pretty big in the in the uh, music industry. He produced a lot of people. And so when I talked to him uh, back, you know, five, six years ago with Mark, we just called him up and interviewed him. He lived outside New York City. I recall him uh, still remembering it with fondness, but like he didn't know it was over his head sort of thing. You know, he was very modest about it. Uh, McClune was over his head, but he thought he liked what he produced. And there may be a couple other thoughts that are evoked, but... Um, if I can look up his name, he went on to uh, you know do a lot of a lot of names. Okay, so you listened to that album. What do you do next once you listen to it? What did that? How did that influence you? If it did. Um. Well, <coughs> it sort of didn't change my task per se because obviously I wasn't going to try and rephrase and find quotes that almost like mimic what they had done. Not at all. What I was you know going to do so. My next task was, okay, that's what they did, so that's fine, and, and, you know, yeah, it's nice they had some sound effects and, you know, kind of varieties of sounds and different quotes, you know, it wasn't just Marshall talking, whereas I was more, like, I was given all these tapes and cassettes, and I had to basically go uh, through them all and dump them onto DAT to preserve what was there, and then uh, I transcribed them, so then you can imagine how much evidence I had after you transcribed them, so pages and pages and pages, so then it's like, geez, where do you start? You know, like trying to write an essay, you know, that's a big essay to write, and they have a Marshall essay that will actually start, you know, at one point and then end with a conclusion. That's really even trickier to do, and yet, you know, inevitably you're going to be trying to pull out some of those qualities in it, you know, because it's got to have some sense of making sense. So that, that's sort of how I approach it. So I wasn't really influenced that much, I guess, by the medium as a massage, but I did listen to it just to get a sense of, okay, well, how, what would people make a Marshall McLuhan album if they made one? And that's, a, that's what that was. Yeah, I remember talking to you about it at the time. Uh, 
you had some really good exclusive recordings. Some were done in the classroom. Really good. The one, yeah. the one that I thought was really amazing was the one that I think it was his last interview. The, the kid from, it was a student, a university kid from York University for his project filmed him and interviewed him in his backyard. That's when he asked them, so do you really, you know, tell us about the Catholicism and that kind of thing? And, and that's when he said, you know, well, but personally, privately, I just can't believe he said this. He says, I do believe that Satan runs the airwaves in the electric environment, and he's the prince of the airwaves, and uh, so I am not of this world, ultimately, and I think anyone that is is doomed. You were, you were shocked at him saying that. I don't know if I was shocked then. Then I thought it was really cool. I think now when I think of it, it's a, a little more shocking. Now it is shocking. Now it is shocking. Or it seems more shocking that someone would actually say that, and if I really took it at Marshall at face value, and you really do believe that, and it, it's just, uh, it's just uh, a lot for me to swallow. You find that hard to believe mm-hmm. now? I can find the qualities of it, but I, for me, I think... Satan is is not necessarily a separate entity, but he's something humans created. Okay, um, so here is a. I looked up the record producer. It's John Simon, uh, born August 11, 1941. Says he was an American musician, record producer, and composer. Best known for his work with the band as producer and musician on uh-huh. on music from Big Pink and the band. He right. be, he began his career at Columbia Records, where he produced music for a wide variety of acts. His early production credits are the 1966 number two hit song, Red Rubber Ball by The Circle. So that must That's have been right. Me. I remember seeing his name on that. That was a kind of a uh, bit of a yeah, put-together band. I remember that. Uh, that was that Burt Bacharach, Hal David tune. Right. So here he is in 66. He'd be 25 years old, so he's the same age as Zappa. Going for a hit. Yeah, and he produced Cheap Thrills by Big Brother and Holding Company, which is 6768. Leonard Cohen's time. Yeah, Leonard Cohen's songs of Leonard Cohen. That's sixty seven. So he worked with some of the landmark artists in of that period in sixty. Yeah, in, in the period that he's doing the medium as a massage, he's doing uh, Big Brother, Leonard Cohen, and Child is Father to the Man, that great first album by Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Right. And are the what, are there any of the big singles on that or first Blood, Sweat, and Tears record? Is Spinning Wheel or uh, You Made Me So Very Happy on that? No, no. That is the the later. Uh, blood, sweat, and tears. It's the, fir- the first guy is um, Al Cooper influenced, mm-hmm. and that um, that is has some really good songs. If everybody ever wants to listen to it, um, look up the very first one. The child is father to the man. Uh, right. Not, not right. February '68. So he this guy is in the middle of uh, the rock industry at that point. You know, yeah. in the late '60s, and he has to deal with McLuhan. So that's pretty neat. Any comments, Andrew or uh, or uh, Scott? No, no, I'm good. I'm. It's uh, we're moving on real nicely. Okay, uh, we had two new beings. Who uh, who dropped in? Can you want to introduce yourselves? Oh, the alphabet people. <laughs> they <don't like> <laughs> <laughs> They're taking notes. It's a library. Shh, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Okay. Uh, all right. We can so, maybe talk about that later. About does this, do we have what's happened to the public library? What, how are the internet mimes the library? But how is it different? What is the nature of knowledge sharing? And is it free? And there's a lot of things we can talk about. But we'll, we'll, 
Let's first stick with the McLuhan thing and move, because the whole thing is ultimately about Marshall. And, of course, Bob, you would be the first one to say you're here for Marshall, because without Marshall, you know, gosh, who knows what we would be talking about. We'd still be in this environment, but I don't know what we'd be talking about. Probably the baseball game. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that album in 94, what I remember since I knew uh, Nelson and you at the time, I remember what was good about uh, the quotes that were not on the first album, 67, were more showing the disservices, like McLuhan saying, television is way more dangerous than the atomic bomb. Right. And statements like... That was a profound quote. Beg your pardon? That was a great quote. Yeah. In the way it just completely obliterates all existing institutions. You know, yeah. at least with the atomic bomb, you can still rebuild your church. <laughs> this way, the church is still standing there, and it's fucking gutted. <laughs> now that you say that you are in a church now, Dave, what's that mean? Your studio is the next church. It is that, that, well, exactly, that, that shows you that... Uh, they lost customers, unfortunately, for them. <laughs> okay, so, you, so you're looking, we're emphasizing the disservices, I think, in this album, because uh, I remember when I was interviewed occasionally at that time, because of the album you made, Bosme Ecology, we would point out the disservices of McClellan, because Wired Magazine was using McClellan as a, you know, a cheerleader. And so we wanted to bring in that he looked at the disservices, which... Nancy, no, well, also made me... Sorry to cut you in, but yeah, yeah exactly riffing on that is I remember just the whole vibe of the McLuhan Center, the one, you know, that was being run downtown even back then. It all seemed like, ooh, we're going to have a um, forum and we'll have all the latest gadgets and all that. Like, it's almost like having, like, McLuhan being, like, some guy that's just marveling and loving all these human inventions and thinking it's so great. And I remember thinking, God, how can you glean that from anything that came out of the man's mouth? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, not anything, but the majority. That's what I thought. It's like, how can I listen to all these tapes and transcribe all this stuff and turn around and have a cheerleader, <laughs> a cheerleader for change? Ha! <laughs> well, that, that's the point. When you, were, you had to be with McLuhan, hang out with him as a student or a friend, to find out the range of his critique and the Madison Avenue icon that the 1967 album uh, was riding on was that he was a guy cheerleading television. And I mean, I remember once going through customs and I had my collection of McLuhan articles and uh, the customs guy at the airport looked at him and he, he just sort of scanned through, who's this McLuhan? And he goes, oh yeah, the guy who likes TV. <laughs> what do you say exactly? I, I gave you. Harvey Oswald has the same problem as Marshall. He's not the only guy. He's, he's got company. Nice. <laughs> Like yeah, we were, were you reading uh, McLuhan before, um, presumably it was uh, Nelson gave you the tapes, or did you primarily encounter McLuhan um, through your ears? 100% through Bob and Nelson, absolutely. Oh, let's go back, Dave, to what we did for CIUT. I, yeah, well, I can tell you before that, the only exposure I had with McLuhan was at Ryerson, and I can't even remember what they said, because they had a whole book that said, this is how communication works. There's a sender and a receiver. And then they got to Marshall. He probably said, he characterizes hot and cold media. <laughs> yeah. <I'm> from Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so you, the kids would just be scratching their heads. Well, I don't know what the fuck he was talking about, but the name stands out. Marshall McLuhan, very good. 
So, I mean, he wasn't being sold at all in, in, in the communication institute that I was involved with for a brief So, period. so if we can uh, backtrack a little bit, like, um, like I don't even know how you would have banged into uh, Bob and Nelson and how they would have. Uh, Let me tell you that, Andrew. I forgot about that that part. Okay, Dave is at C. Kellen in 1984. He's listening to the show, but he's not. He's listening to the station, but he's not on it. And I'm trying to infiltrate it. Big party? I'm, trying to, I'm yeah. trying to infiltrate. I'm trying to get in on the. On, get, let, let me go on air and read news. <laughs> <laughs> and and you're a student at Ryerson at the time. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So so uh, uh, the first my first awareness of Dave is. Um, we played a May Brussel recording on Chris Toomey's Word of Mouth show uh, late at DJ night. DJ celebrations. It was the 40th anniversary of the DJ landing. And her whole shtick was, isn't this appalling that all these people are celebrating how heroic our troops are and all this shit. And meanwhile, people like Henry Kissinger were cutting deals with the Nazis <laughs> while our guys were being killed on the beach. <laughs> and I remember, I'm a youngster, and I had just never, ever heard this fucking angle on history in my life. And of course, being half Jewish, it all like made huge sense to me. Too. So I was just like, fucking, yes, now the real news. <laughs> yeah, so, so on word of mouth, I remember we, we played the May Brussels tape for an hour, and then we walked into the studio, and Chris Toomey picked up the phone, and I could hear on the speakerphone in the studio this young voice say, wow, that was incredible, that was incredible. And, and it was Dave talking to his childhood buddy, Chris. So Dave eventually gets to be um, – so that's why I first remember Dave. I don't yeah. think we actually interacted till the spring of 85. Dave has infiltrated himself, and he's reading news. And one day oh, – no, yeah, I know the first time I met you, Bob. You were in that room on the floor just above the – Yes. And yeah. I walk in, and I knew you were Bob, just a fucking grin on your face. <laughs> and then you – and I remember when the first time I met you, you started even talking about Dr. Peter and the Bolsheviks and the Rothschilds and all that stuff. And you said, but that's crazy stuff. And, and you could tell that I was like, mm. And it's like, but I wasn't at all offended. I, I, I knew uh, – I, I remember the instance I saw you, like, okay, this guy, he's definitely cool. Yeah, I'd be standing there grinning, everybody avoiding me. So if someone dared to walk over, they'd immediately, immediately get the propaganda. No one likes this guy, and he's got a knowing grin. So Dave walks over, and I say, oh, we got a TC sucker here. So I, I start doing it, and then and I think you get pretty quickly, suddenly – um, Adam Vaughn, who's now a city councilor in Toronto, he became station manager uh, in the spring of 80, in May, June, around Bitburg, when Reagan goes to Bitburg in May 85. And immediately, uh, Adam wanted to be on the radio with me, so we set that up with Nelson Thal, and he went on as Tom Rich, and we got Dave to be the engineer. Because Dave, Dave and I became at least talkers, co-talkers, pretty quickly. You know what I mean? We started talking a lot whenever we were in touch with each other. So do you remember engineering the International Connection Saturday version? Yes, I do. And so I also remember as time went on, you more and more would be on, on Newswave. You would sometimes come on and do uh, segments occasionally, like once or twice in the week you'd sometimes come on. And right. It was mainly Bob Marshall. Between 11, yes, Bob between 11 and noon. Yeah, so Bob Marshall, that's Ed Pusar, would be doing it the first part, first couple of years, but I'm hanging around and talking people up about other levels, and I don't know when, <clears throat> when I first brought up McClune with Dave, but 
Dave, I did make an attempt to get Dave to be news director. I helped influence that. So he became news director in 85 or 86. And uh, then the other guys of his generation started to get jealous, so they conspired against Dave, and they kicked him off. <laughs> the, the big sim, uh, signal jump from 13 watts to 250 watts. And this is all being talked about today when on Friday, April 15th, the, the Canadian government shut down CKLN after being on the air for 30 years or or so, and they, they, uh, it violated so many things. The conspiracy against Dave, those guys finally got caught. <laughs> took a long time, took 22 years. <laughs> <laughs> and so the whole legacy there that was corrupt that fired Dave, just before Dave was fired, Adam Vaughn. How about this? Just before you go on that, look at the numbers there. It's like 22 years after they derailed me, some of the same people were there, of course, Left in disgrace. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say of course, but that's how it went. And uh, and then uh, and then 23, which is the more visual space number. So it all hit the fan uh, on uh, 22 years later. And then 23 years later, they got the official writ from the government. You yeah. are up date with the legalese writing. The more 23 literate end of it. Yeah. The yeah, bureaucrats always the years. <laughs> yeah. And then, so that three days later, we'd be talking on April 18th, the fourth month, or 18 of 22. So it's really resonating around 22. Every time Dave went on back to International Connections in 2006, the, uh, the program got fired, and then he went back on on February 22nd, 2009, and uh, the station got turned off temporarily. Every time Dave shows up. My grudge against them lasted maybe emotionally for about three years. So I'm amazed that decades later all this shit would happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because so <laughs> you know in some ways I don't give a shit either way. Okay, so here's how the McClune point is. Because uh, Dave was someone that I respected what he was doing on the station as news director, and they conspired to fire him so he wouldn't be part of the, the new uh, broadcasting strength of 250 watts, which was pretty big for Toronto area. Well, it means that in the suburbs you can pull it in clearly. Right, and, and it had so a high... Over 2 million people. Yeah, and... 3 million people. Yeah, and Seekillen had a high profile. Um, now, what happened is uh, they conspired and put in another news director, and he lasted a month. He was so incompetent, and then they just went downhill from then. But what happened just before this uh, firing, it, let's say in uh, May, June, July... 1986, Adam Vaughn, the station manager, and John Jones wanted to do a special on Marsha McLuhan. So they bought some reel-to-reel tape, uh, extra tape with their non-budget, and it was uh, Nelson Thal and I were going to bring our archives, and we were going to do a long, big series on McLuhan. Remember that, Dave? Well, and they felt it was very pre- – John and Adam, if I recall the vibe, was they felt this was a very prestigious thing to be doing. Yeah, because we, we had great tapes that no one had heard. So, because Dave, is that, this is July 86. Okay. And so, because Dave, uh, because Dave got fired, Nelson and I d- did not like that. So, we said, uh, Adam and to Adam and John, you don't get the McLuhan archives. We're going to CIUT, where Dave had jumped over to, the University of Toronto station, and we're going to do it there. And we did a pretty good... 12 or 13 episode series on CIA. The Midweek Report. Yeah, the Midweek Report. And it was great. There was one episode that was really deadly. Was, yeah. I mean, they all were, but that one where there was this, the whole episode was devoted to it, and it was the music and collage and all that. It was kind of like a Marsh McLuhan album. It was great. Yeah, did you, did you, do, do you have those, those shows? I don't, 
I, you know what? Maybe somewhere buried, I might have cassettes still of them. I unfortunately don't have any proof of anything of me on CKLN or doing any new shows or anything. None of this is that. But uh, I think I might have kept those 12 or 13 on cassette because that's what they were recorded onto, and then I would bring the cassettes to the station, play them, and then take them out when the show finished because I didn't want to lose them. Right. So somewhere, somewhere in my archives I do. I, I, I should look for them. You can hear some Dave Newfeld on my timeline. Uh, some so this is when nobody's nobody's paying attention to McLuhan in '86. Like Croker's done his great book in '84. You guys are like uh, crying around in the wilderness, and nobody wants to know about McLuhan. <laughs> That's right. And Adam Vaughn, his father, he grew up on the edge of Witchwood Park, and so as a boy, Marshall would drop in. You remember Colin Vaughn, Scott Taylor? Remember? Oh yeah, remember? I remember I do, him. Yeah. 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 And so Adam, he experienced McLuhan as a boy, you know, around his environment, because Colin Vaughn was the major local news figure, uh, TV figure, and so Marshall hung out with him a little bit. So Andrew, I mean, Adam knew the value of McLuhan, and he was smart that way, but nobody else did. Nobody, uh, none of the other people at CKLN were interested in it. And this is just before the letters come out in 87, and that book was really good. That started to get people interested in McLuhan, but this is before then. And uh, what else about that? Um, yeah, it's just before the letters, and then the Laws of Media comes out in 88. So nobody cares, uh, except Nelson's got these great archives from when he was a student of McLuhan. So we went on, and we would play an egg, a segment and then discuss it, me and, me and Nelson, right? We would... Mm -hmm. And uh, so you did... I got the quote for your album where you, one of those episodes you were like... 1959 or so. My dad bought a television. I said, Dad, don't bring that in the place. It's going to destroy the family. It's going to lose my interest in hockey. I'm going to take drugs. I won't want to go to school. Yeah, my sister will take drugs. My dad didn't understand that. He didn't know. That, that, that was actually me imitating Bob Marshall, because that's, that's yeah. Bob Marshall on the... He was born in 1949. So, uh, uh, so that was used in the Boss Me College album, but the... The thing was that you did do a collab. You were already, you were just starting to get a computer at that point. No. Just, uh, no, no, actually, no, no. You're right. The stuff that I did with that midweek report, I didn't have a computer then. That's all done on a four track. That's how I would, I would, I would have my sources on cassettes that I take off shortwave or interviews, and then I just dump them just using the pause control. You can get totally exact timings you want of stuff going in and out and segueing. So that was fun. That's all you needed to do radio shows, a four-track, because, you know, you're, you're not having over too much, two tracks for stereo music and the other two for mono voice, and you got plenty. Yeah, so there, there's the pattern here, Andrew. That second McLuhan album was rehearsed on CIUT with Dave learning his editing abilities. Mm -hmm. Dave was a musician. He could play music, but he was just his, playing with tape at that point, in mid-80s, yep. mid right? Medium. Well, even those McLuhan albums and those Bob ones, they were done, they were done with the 8-track, the like reel-to-reel, -reel, and then the music is all generated in the computer, but not digital like it is now. It's all keyboards being triggered by a Mac Plus. There's no actual digital audio itself, right. well, except for the sampler. But the, uh, it's funny, too, because they're relatively, well, was made, those albums were made in my bedroom with really modest gear, on all levels modest gear, from the mixing console to the stuff by today's standards, and yet, you know, it still sounds, you know, I have a studio, and I do all this stuff now, and I have lots of gear, record live bands, and that was a big revolution, not, not obviously for me, just for everyone, and that changed the whole music industry in the late 80s, when the MIDI 
interface came out, basically, when a computer like a Mac Plus or an Atari 520 could talk to keyboards and you could play keyboards, and, it, and the data is not intensive. It's just on-off and durations and how hard you press a note. So, I mean, it's literally like typing data. It doesn't require, you know, you run it through a serial port, really slow thing. Anyways, that was the big revolution. When that stuff came out, all the mid-level studios that were like 50 to 125 bucks an hour went out of business overnight. And then all you were left with is shitloads of 10 to $20 an hour home studios that were now doing stuff that rivaled, if, if the guys had imagination and took the time, was rivaling stuff that these 50 to 75 or $125. And then, of course, the $300 an hour studios, they stuck around. A lot of them then went into more like TV work as digital increased in Pro Tools, but it really changed the whole thing. And then in the early 90s, digital audio came out, and that was the ultimate final real nail in the coffin, you know. And really what pushes it now, where people now are making music, and they have been for now over 20 years, can make really good records in their house and make a shitload of music and bypass most, not all, not when it's made and distributed. You still can't bypass it to a great extent, but bypass all the traditional music system. And you can see that that is the nature of the technology. You can see it all the software, the plugins, they all emulate all these racks of gear, of EQs and compressors. But when studios were built in the 70s, they would pay $1,500, $2,000 each. You wanted noise reduction on your 24 track in 1972, so you wouldn't have hiss on your recordings. You need at least 22 channels of it, because on 23 and 24, you usually run the time code 24 and guard track 23. But the other 22, they were $2,000 per channel. So that would cost you $44,000 in 1972 just to wipe the hiss off your recording. Can you imagine? <laughs> and you want, you want, like, the kids and plugins, or even liking that. If I ran my plugins, if I wanted to, I could run 25 emulations of the Yuri 1176 compressor. Well, let's say those were about $1,200 back in the day. So you want to run 16 of those? Well, it would take a huge rack, first of all, and that would have cost another $30,000 or whatever, um, I know, whatever, let's say 20000 The point is it would cost you about a quarter million to half a million dollars to make a really good studio to make records. So anyone that came into your studio had to be shit fucking hot. In fact, when they came in, they had to play so that you would just go, God, all I have to do is record these people and I've got to hit record. They can play their record as well as when it's on the record practically, and there's not many people that can do that. That's why they use session players. And... Uh, and that's the scale. So it's a, I mean, that just personifies the, the scale of the world that we're in now, that everything has disappeared to a great extent. People are talking that there's no copyright anymore, and I don't buy that because for the software makers that have made all this software that replaces the hardware world, they still have chemical bodies. They still have to spend time and go to university and spend money and buy lunch and dinner and drive and pay for gas and all the shit they went through to get to the point where they could build the software to sell to people to enjoy the benefits of. So I'm, for me, whether it's hard to have copyright or not, I'm a firm personal believer that, that people are entitled to you know, their copyrights on things that they've created and services they have. Otherwise, could you imagine... I'm going to weird echo on the line. Am I still on? Yeah, you're still on. Uh, oh, okay, I was saying otherwise. Could you imagine if I was going to build a Starbucks company and my model is that the customers don't have to pay for the coffee. <laughs> and 90% of them don't. <laughs> well, I'm going to be out of fucking business real fast. you know. So I don't say that's just necessarily or unjust, but what the hell am I going to do? How am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to do that? You know. So in the end, you know, we're juggling all these bodies. You know, We have the effects of the chip body. But boy, oh boy, it all comes back for everyone to their chemical bodies. 
Okay, Dave, um, that's good stuff to go back into. I want to go back. What I remember in that period at CKLN, you're a journalist. You're learning to be a journalist at CKLN. You're hoping to get into the media. You believe in the media content. And all of a sudden you start hearing this guy McLuhan talk about the form was more important than the content. And I remember you basically arguing or wrestling with that for a long time with me. You, like you're in a way right now, you're saying the same thing. The chemical body is content is what it all falls back on. <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying no, the chemical body is content. I'm saying the chemical body as food, shelter, and basic stuff that goes back to the cavemen, no matter what. Well, that's the, that's the issue. That is, and that is a tugging issue that will always be addressed because if it's not addressed, then everything else shuts down. Okay. Um, Going back to what do you remember, uh, what story or something in your at CKLN or after when we're doing the McLuhan documentary, what story started to shift you from the form being more important than the content? When did you start to see McLuhan's point? Did you ever get to that? Did you, do you remember well, that? I, I ultimately have to rebel against that because I'm in the content business on a certain level. So it's like I actually have to think that what I'm doing is different to what I did five years ago to what I did ten years ago. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> Even though if ultimately it is going through the same ritual kind of thing. So there is a bit of a sense of that, that the content is relevant, and I would say also in the sense that if someone comes to me and wants me to collaborate with them, and I go, well, let me hear what you do. If I don't like the quote content, then I don't <laughs> think I'm going to want to collaborate with them. So regardless of the form, so I would say, yeah, still in my, you know, case, obviously you're still trying to make some kind of a sense of, uh, do I get an aesthetic rush off it? Whatever it all means, forget the intellect. Just what is my gut response, or do I feel drawn into this? Um, well, okay. That, that would tie into the form in the sense that the form is, in the case of the music, and that is to basically take you to another place and anesthetize you and ideally, like Herb Albert, make you feel happy and forget about all the shit for a while and, and get this little three-minute sensation of pseudo-bliss for a second. <laughs> That's a fun thing. Let's go into the bliss. Ruby and the romantic, baby. RJ will come. <laughs> okay. So that's the 50s, that song. Uh, it Yeah. Um, the point is, though, there's, you even wrote columns for Wavelength magazine in the early 90s. You would use McLuhan's ideas in the intellectual well, realm. Oh, dude, once I was exposed to it, then there's no turning back, I would say for sure. But I don't sit here when I'm making like, stuff thinking like McLuhan, thinking, okay, this form is doing this or that. I'm fucking too much just like you know, getting stoned and getting into it and just doing it, worrying about the music. So I don't say it's like become an integral part of what I do. I don't think if I was like really that taking McLuhan necessary to heart that I would be approaching music the way I do. There's no media ecology in what I'm doing here. <laughs> no, definitely not in your case. But, but, no. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I love it. But here's the thing. The media, I love the idea of the media ecology. When I, say I love it. It is Marshall and media ecology. I love it. <laughs> yeah, you're like... You, you're in the Corinne McLuhan school. Oh, Marshall's right, but you can't apply it. <laughs> That's it. Marshall's right. Now I'm going to go make dinner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's also your, your Jewish perversity. You like the outsiderness of McLuhan's viewpoint in the mid-80s. Mid you know, you like the well, note. Well, I, like I like his outsider. I, 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 I personally admire him. McLuhan's the kind of person that I like, that I feel he, he's, a, he's a fair person. He's more of an intellect. He's more of an engineer. He's not... I could never imagine Marshall being like a total racist or bigot. Even if he would talk, it would appear that way. He seems like too much of an objective kind of person to yeah, ever yeah. make those kind of value judgments, ultimately. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, or, to, or to get pulled into them. He would quickly 
he, yeah, he's got too much private identity, I think, to do that. I, I really admire him. But here's, here's the thing. That I know that the problems in the industry, we've been talking almost 30 years now, the, pro- sure. the problems in the industry you would then wrestle with, as they affected you personally, you would use McLuhan to figure out how to understand it, even though it pissed you off. You know what I mean? You, it, you, would, it would. It was like, it's almost like it's an excuse. <laughs> it's an excuse for lousy behavior. Well, that's why they did it. <laughs> oh, I understand, of course. Like, everyone is fucked up like this now. How could you not be? Yeah, because the medium is <laughs> the All the worlds are juggling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get it. Okay, cool. I won't take it personally. <laughs> so, Andrew or Scott or anybody who wanted to say something at this point, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's kind of interesting, uh, Dave, that you got dropped into the future in terms of your understanding of McLuhan, in terms of the heady mix that uh, Bob and Nelson dropped on you, where everybody else was thinking better. he was, he was pro technology, this and that, and the other thing. So, um, you dropped into the future. Um, so how, getting back to, I loved where you're talking about uh, the technical changes in the studio. So how has it yeah. changed your um, uh? what the producer does in terms of uh, creating music. Are you making like acoustic shiatsu now or what, what is it that you even make? Um, it's a good question. Like what, what differentiates me from them just doing it in their own like rehearsal spaces and that? If they can sit there and monkey around and learn this stuff and learn how it interacts with sound and that. And I'd say to some extent my experience still trumps a lot of experience that people have out there. I think I had the fortunate luck of kind of having the analog pass, so I like really still even like to this day and growing, growing knowledge of it, I, I do know a lot about the, the analog gear and the older gear and how to service it, and I find a lot of other studios do great stuff and they have a lot of cool old gear, but a lot of it, if it's not working, you know, you can try it, I don't think it's working, so it looks great, it's sitting in the rack, but half of it's kind of half working or not kind of thing, so... I, uh, God, where am I going with this? What was, you were asking about the technology and how, so I don't, yeah. yeah, I would say in terms of what I'm doing, so what do I offer that makes it different? If everyone can, because I'm in the end, get pushed in this world where I get people coming to me that say, well, I can kind of make it in my bedroom or make it with this and it'll be pretty good, or I believe I can make it with you and it'd be better, or some people would say, I know it would be better, it depends who I'm talking to, and uh, and so they would come to me and they would be a combination of my gear, the size of my place, the fact that it's devoted just to sound, the mood that you're in when you're laying it down. Because so much I'm telling you of music, you wouldn't believe the difference between like a vocalist doing a take, and then you go, you get them all giggling and laughing, and then you say, what about this guy? Do you know that singer? No. Oh, what about this one? You know them? Yeah. You know how they sing it. Do you give me a take where you're pretending you're, you're, you're channeling those guys, and suddenly it's like, holy shit, it's all this huge character. It still doesn't sound like that guy they're channeling, but all of a sudden that person is like suddenly taking on this bizarre, intriguing character. I love those kind of moments. I think those kind of moments happened in 1958, in 1965, in 1978, and they will keep happening, and those kind of things are timeless. So that's partially the environment and the people that are involved. So I would say... That's what I still, you know, can offer to people that I think is, is valid uh, in terms. But, uh, yeah, sure, they have all the software and stuff that I have, even the, the stuff that I've paid for. If they bought it, they might have bought it, or if they thought, they might have more than I do because there's so much crack software going around that 
does the same thing. But that seems incidental now. You just assume in someone's laptop that they've probably got a copy of Logic or Performer or blah, 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 and probably have a bunch of plugins, you know, that basically can allow you to do stuff that, you know, only huge studios would have had access to prior to that, which is bizarre in a way. It's sort of how devalued in a certain level it's become. But in the end, if you can make a record that still has some quality that isn't like that, then you'll still be okay. I still believe that. Because even when the MIDI stuff came in the late 80s, it was a lot of bad music that was being made, a lot of Me Too music, a lot of stuff that's the same. So yes, there's a glut of music, but that doesn't mean that the quality of the music has necessarily gone up. And even if the quality has got up, there's always just your average stuff, and then there's the few things that are really neat and stand out. So that's part of the fun for me of still doing it, is, you know, waiting for, you know, to do something or be involved in something that'll be, like, truly exciting. And then when people do hear it, they're like, now that's fucking the shit. So, for, did, for so changing nights, yeah. Did McLuhan uh, influence your understanding of, you come back to qualities or vibe or, like, this aesthetic kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Did uh, uh, McLuhan or hanging out with uh, Bob and Nelson change your understanding of what, what were the qualities that you're aspiring to produce? I I would say it gave me a bit more awareness of it in the sense that McLuhan, you know, was really into, uh, oh, who, uh, the poet Rambo. He had spoke of how Rambo, you know, first wanted to know, or Edgar Allan Poe, also I think he cited examples. Like, well, I'm going to write a poem or I'm going to write a story. or Stephen King. Okay, what is my object, my story? Before I even write, my object is to make you cry or to make you shit your pants. or There's some objective. And now I'm going to use art to create that effect. Uh, and so I would say unconsciously, and then people that don't understand McLuhan do that in the sense that if you're in, for instance, dance music, you go to clubs and you watch people respond to that kind of music and you immerse yourself in that vibe and you soak up that environment. And then when you go home to your studio all alone, sitting in a chair, you're trying to create that communal vibe of the club. So so I, I would say in that sense, you are concerned with effects. In the case of dance music, I want to make a thing that rocks people's booty. So that, that's the art of that. The object of the record is to make people dance and lose it on a Friday night. And that's fun to do that kind of stuff and create an environment through music that will evoke that kind of thing. So Dave, what you learned from, from us was a language about it. You see, everybody else does it instinctively. You know a language, and when you became well-known with the you Forgot It in People album in 2002. You were interviewed a lot. I would read those interviews. You'd be talking with Cluid. You would hijack the interview and talk on a level that nobody else in the business could talk on. You learned a language to talk about yourself or about the effects. Would you agree with that? Well, I would agree partially with that, but I would say I definitely never exploited it and articulated it to the fucking profound and amazing jet-setting fucking levels that you have, Bob. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, yes, that should be acknowledged. But the yes, po- but the po- happy to. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, you did a pretty good job of uh, imitating me. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, you did, when you were interviewed. You were, you were, yeah. they're, they're all stuff but you I, got like to I, say, I would wish I'd have you there feeding me notes, like the yeah. politician with a little fucking headphone teleprompter <laughs> sort of thing, going, oh, yeah, yo. you got the research committee, the MIT think tank behind you, feeding you data. Yeah. Like, Damn, this guy's fucking smarter than the Android me. <laughs> he is the Android me. <laughs> Dave, let me uh, ask a question. I missed, I missed the first part of what, what you were saying, so I don't know if you addressed this, but um, as a um, producer of music, uh, in terms of society and effect of music, so 
like you kind of go all different places to see people with their little uh, I- iPhones working or yeah. like I, uh, what do you call those things, iPods. Yeah. Or you go into a restaurant and the music becomes wallpaper. Mm-hmm. So, in effect, what what is the point of music now? It's, it's true. You must, well, in, the, in the age of miniaturization, isn't music different? It is. It is. I would say here's some qualities that I'm definitely observing. It's a de facto thing that you can have great music, but without a chemical body behind it, like a young person or a figure or a celebrity or some kind of icon on a chemical body level, the, the music is only part of the package. Um, that's, that what they call the, that's what I call the anthropomorphic physical. There's got to be that human. It's all an extension of humans, so it's be. humans. It it's, has to have that component. And it can be trivial music, and it can be stuff that you've heard a million times. And most of the music that you hear now is, it's especially in the last few months, it's really gone back to late 80s, early 90s, on the floor, on the floor, on the floor. Everything's in the floor. Everything's in your house. <laughs> yeah. The whole fucking planet's here. So that's what it really is. You know, that it's, 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 it's amazing. I mean, you, you know, you were talking, I think, on your show about some girl, 14-year-old, and, 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 that, and she has her song, in it, and she's like, you know, on Tuesday, I'm doing my homework. Yeah, the Friday, and Rebecca Friday, Black. Friday. <laughs> you know, Rebecca Black, and then they have the black guy, he comes on and raps to add some, like, street cred. It's like, yo, I'm going to be here at the party, too, breaking it down for everyone, motherfuckers in the house, yo, yo, we all be getting down together. And then uh, she comes back on, oh, I can't wait, it's going to be fun, yo. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. Um, well, good. Again, it's again, it, that record could have been from 1991. So, like, so, like, the choices of the music, the arrangement, the synth sounds, the drum machine programming. I'm just amazed. And it goes back, and that stuff, a little, it was pop music then to a great extent, like bands like Snap, you know, Rhythm as a Dancer and songs like that. Definitely, it was a thing, but that was also the, very much the club music and the house music of the time. It's funny, there's another band, it's called um, LM. FAD and I saw, and they look like tough sort of Puerto Rican Led Zeppelin-y headbanger kind of guys and they come on and their song is called something like a party in the hood or party in the city party in the house everybody yeah party in the house and the whole premise of their video is even the raw, no one can resist the pulse of the house beat. So he, he makes his record, and then he goes outside into his neighborhood, and everyone's like zombies fucking bouncing to the beat. Woo, getting into it. It's amazing. It's, it's, and the floor is important. Again, it's all about the chemical body. It's like, okay, we're all electrified. We're all discarded. We're not here. So let's everybody fucking remind about the tits and the ass and the floor. Remember the sweat, baby. And that, and that is the... That is dominant thing and the whole thing it's like okay you finished your discarnate week let's go down to the club for four hours and fucking let's fucking take the chemical body to the max baby <laughs> yeah now now dave so 50 percent of all this culture is sex and love um yeah definitely and i forget the, there's another component recently that's been added into it that uh, oh now the components added into it sex and love and also in commanding your moment Taking your moment, enjoy your moment, because your moment is yours. Hmm, that's like that's a, that's a dominant theme in a lot of stuff. Tonight, so fuck everyone out of my way. No one stop me tonight. I'm fucking gonna have fun. Fuck off, anyone that thinks. <laughs> 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 that's the theme. 
Taking your power is the cliche. Taking your power is a cliche, exactly. Now, they, but, but that's a miming. Is that the way it was 25 years ago? Because today, that's the, yeah. the, the effect of 2.0 yeah. web, where people yeah. do edit the reality. You know, they can, and that's the, effect, that's the effect of 1.0 web, too. Right. Yeah. Not yeah. just 2.0. 1.0. That's, that's right. It's a retrieval of a retrieval. Okay. Hey, Dave, uh, did you ever think when you were doing the media ecology or stuff like that, uh, did you ever relate that to what uh, Glenn Gould was doing with his spoken word, kind of true north kind of stuff? I did. I'm not familiar with the, uh, the Glenn Gould spoken word. He you know, has kind of after, after he quit doing music, he started doing those like uh, so-called documentaries. That they For television. Spoken word uh, montages. I, you know, I, I don't even, I have not seen those. I'd like to see those. Yeah, CBC I'm not aware has, of those. Has, all, has them all on CDs. CBC, or what, like the NFB or the CBC? Or the CBC itself, CBC. I think, yeah. Okay, cool. They have the Glenn Gould spoken yeah, they were vi- word. They're videos, but I think they're really taken as audio, really. Audio yeah, montages. what were they all about? Cities. Didn't he go to cities, Michael? Yeah, he went to cities. Well, the one I know about mostly, like True North, he like would go up to uh, Sudbury and he'd go into a diner, and he would. Uh, the thing is, he record uh, different conversations, like the waitress and some people at this table, some people at that table, and then he would create montages of all that. And so, in effect, mm-hmm. you have this uh, huge. Uh, for him, I think it's the new music. That's what he heard. Yeah, it was tactile music. It was environmental, and so he he was a guy who got to do what Zappa always wanted to do. Zappa always wanted to have a late-night talk show where he could master his editing stuff and present a hologram of experience. Gould did it, what McClune didn't get to do, but Gould was always stayed in Canadian and uh, didn't have the, the flair for a global culture. He, he was too much of the old school, a literate person, is what, what I see there. His big thing was, uh, who was that uh, downtown girl from uh, Britain? Patula Clark. Patula Clark. Yeah, he that, liked that. that. That was one of. The, well, he has a whole spoken word thing on that too. There was a documentary on him, and it cuts to a scene of that. And he's calling some guy on the phone, and he goes, "You know that song downtown? That's a, that's a really top melody." He fuzzled. I can't believe it. Yeah. That fucking shit all over the public there. That's good shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> And, and he's a classically trained guy. Yeah, and he's going, I can't deny this music. It's fucking hot. Well, Leonard Bernstein said in his book, uh, The Inspiration of Music or something like that, it's a fantastic book. He says, he goes, you know, i got to say classical music is dead. He goes, my God. He goes, the association this year, I just heard the association along comes Mary. Now there's a fucking tune. It's exciting as hell. Yeah, and, and they became with the Beheld by Carpenter, he, which was co-written with McLuhan, comes out in 1970 or so, he blatantly says that the whole classical musical heritage, the great music, is all puny compared to the music, electrified music today. Just a blanket statement. Yeah, and I mean, Glenn Gould is one of the last classical composers. I mean, he wrote West Side Story. That's about the last... Not, Glenn, not Glenn Gould, not Glenn Gould. Sorry, sorry, uh, Leonard Bernstein. Yeah. West Side Story is about, what, 1957 or something? And that's yeah. kind of like a classical music still in the, in the classical music tradition, but also pop like Tchaikovsky or that kind of thing. He's one of the last ones to write like popular classical music. Okay, so here, here's, where, here's where your experience might be interesting. McLuhan said that teenage music or rock music was not music, it was an environment. Now, that's an important point. He says there was no music once television and radio, maybe jazz, but... There was no music in the 60s. It was a virtual space, a mixed-media environment. Take that idea and say, say what you do, and are you really a musician in the old sense? 
No. You're not, are you? No, no. So what are you? That's what you were saying earlier. You don't know whether you're what you are in this situation. Um, well, that's why record producer really is a fitting thing for it. It's like I can, I can write, I can play, but what I write and play, once I've written and played and recorded, I don't remember it, whereas a, quote, musician would remember it and learn to play it and repeat it and play it live and do that kind of thing. Yeah. So there's already a big difference between me and a so-called musician, even though I can be playing a lot of these records and it's expressed properly and all that kind of thing. So that's, and I'm okay with that, really, in the sense that if I was just specializing as a musician, I'd have to be in that world and the touring and that kind of thing. And I'm personally a little old for that kind of thing, so it's, 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 it would lose that appeal anyways if I was going to attempt to do that. But so I would say I, I make records. And that that sort of, and I and all the sort of things that come together in that whole process. If I call you a cultural worker, does that make you puke that phrase, cultural worker? Um, no. <laughs> uh, because I, it's like you're not a worker. <laughs> you don't work. You play. Well, I do. I do play, and I would. What I do, I would probably do it as a hobby if I didn't get paid. I would still probably do it. It is a vestige of my teenage years. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would say, but it is work too, and it is stuff. And when when you have people that come over and stay with you for many many days, you're you're having to juggle a lot more than music. Okay. So uh, McLuhan said that America was a kinetic culture. That's why there's always been dances, and the dancing aspect is the art form for kinetic culture. And the kinetic culture is made by uh, industrial machines and automobiles. So this whole thing of going to the da- dance floor to dance every weekend mm-hmm. is not just, just 50 cents sex, sex and love, but it's also it's a kinetic culture. But yeah, then, exactly. But Reconnecting then you can, with the kinetic. Yeah. That it's like people have all the different sensory jobs they have to do. But an American culture... Now, maybe it's all over the world now, which is another effect, because McLuhan said the tactile, global tactile environment will flip into hyperkinetics everywhere. So that's why American culture became global, because it was kinetic space. It could fill in for the tactile void that uh, the satellite created. But let's say America is more kinetic than any others. That could be – that's an example of McLuhan, not taking the cliches, it's just eternal sex or love or whatever the other factor was. It's a sensory bias, this need to be in the club every Friday night, to translate your multi-sensory life back into kinetic movement. Just like the, in the South, the rodeo and the line dancing and that kind of thing. It's like all the farmers and that, they all gather then on the Friday night to let go and dance in the chemical bodies. Yeah, I, can you say uh, that there was that kind of dancing in Greek culture or in in Paris? When you think of these other places, I don't places? know. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's funny what, what you're just saying about the whole uh, retrieval of kinetic space and that it pushed to its extreme, it becomes retrieved again. You can see that in the whole cliched archetype process with even vinyl. I remember reading a couple of days ago that uh, they're having a record day and everyone's supposed to buy records and get <laughs> records. Can you imagine? And, uh, but anyways, but the guy who's put it on, he goes, what are you most excited about this year? He goes, oh, they're re-releasing um, the Beach Boys' um, Good Vibrations with um, Heroes and Villains on the B-side on 78 RPM. And he said something like, I don't know if people will actually play it, but it's an amazing, beautiful object. (laughs) 
So, so I mean, to talk about retrieval of kinetic space as art form. Now, here's another thing that I was noticing recently. When you're doing, in terms of kinetic space in the past, the, the American teenager in the 50s was really into tinkering with cars, and that was not a very much a, 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 a very much a thing a kid would do when he was 15. Yeah, car clubs. They were called car, car clubs. clubs. And he dream of having, and also that he could have his own car and he could go anywhere. He ruled. It was the uh, it was ultimate still expression of freedom. It's like having your own horse, and no one can say where you can ride. All pastures are. You know, and you can get laid in that car. You can get laid in that car. You can, <laughs> and it's your private bubble that no one, it's protective bubble too. Yeah. So it expresses a lot of cool stuff that still has a lot of attraction to, to people. And now, now, the interesting thing is now, and there was a lot of this stuff with cars was trial and error and sharing of knowledge, you know, and you know, how come his car is so much better? What is he doing with his car? Yeah. He, he won't tell you, man. If I can only his best friend knows, he's not going to say Fuck, i got to figure out what he's doing. But, but, but trial and error has taken on a new meaning within the so-called Andro, Android meme because there's no, and no gas station for miles that sells even fucking a fan belt or a rad hose, anything of that nature of a do-it-yourself, fix-your-car, it's totally just been obliterated and it's gone. Now you're supposed to have a GPS thing and some tow truck guy will take you to some authorized, you know, dealer that you bought the car from and that's it and all you can't go into So you're the saying car. the tinkering part of, of American machine <laughs> culture is lost. The kids it's can't lost. fix things. At most they can do is change the you know, computer chip in their Honda ignition system to make the fuel injection system squirt in some more gas or something. That's about <laughs> it. But a lot of the whole do-it-yourself, kinetic, mechanical, trial and error, searching and, and practice, it's been so eroded. And it's also reflected in places like Radio Shack. You go to Radio Shack now, and even in the 70s and 80s, when I went to Radio Shack, it was filled with diodes and resistors and caps and all the shit you could buy to make your own CB radios or whatever the hell you want to do, or they sold those. And all these different kits that obviously there was a market for that. They would sell electronic parts, build kits. Now you go into, it's not even called Radio Shack, it's called The Source, and they sell cameras and cell phones, things that you throw out you know, if they don't work or trade in for a better one, if they break down, you would never even think of opening it up and looking inside. A bunch of chips printed by a circuit board, you couldn't even get a soldering gun near anyways. So, in that way, the car represents the kinetic space, the American ideal of individualism and autonomy, and, and, and it also was a merging of giant corporations with the public culture, because in the end, all these cars that they were tinkering with as little individuals in their own little private space were built by these giant corporations like GM and Thing. But there was no sense of alienation. Oh, fuck, we're putting money into these <laughs> corporations. That was never even part of the thinking of the yeah. fabric. No one got, tra- uh, I don't want to say trapped in those issues, but, but, but distracted by those issues. They just went ahead in their merry way doing their thing in that sense. But now we've got... It's a, it's a new shared new space that's being shared. A new kind of sharing. And it's a new. And now you'll see that in forums. Before, you would have like in music, for instance. Like I've mixed albums for bands, and I've had drummers write me and go, "Dude, I don't know how you got me that drum sound, but I think you should keep it a secret," because because it's like in the past, it literally is like now people think that you should just. Give them. Okay, how do you do that? How do you get this sound? How do you do it? You get a 22-year-old kid that will ask you, going to university even, how do you get that? How do you do this? And, and people want it kind of spoon-fed and expecting in this environment that knowledge is kind of free so that they can go on to a forum and some expert is going to go on and set the record straight, acting like a free consultant to the whole fucking planet. And meanwhile, half the people that he's giving free consultation to are calling him a douchebag. <laughs> so, 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 no, wait, I, I, 
Uh, you, so what, I'm not get, you're saying that before people would share their car knowledge. Now are you saying now it's secret or no, you're no, recommending no, 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 to be no, secret? No, no. Before in the past, people would, share, would not share their knowledge. They would guard their knowledge. They would only share it with their closest friends and people that they felt deserved to have this knowledge. In the past, all the trades were protected by guilds, and you had to apprentice you had to become these things. And you didn't like learn these skills and then go out to the neighborhood and show everyone, here's how you do that <laughs> if you want to know. It was a completely different thing. And you didn't just give it out for the sake of sharing to be a good person. It wasn't like the, and that's back when people went to church, you know, yeah. it was supposedly a Christian time. So, so to me, I still believe that knowledge and experience really isn't something that you should have to, can be or should be spoon-fed over the Internet. Without yeah, so you're saying that people expect to get knowledge. They yeah, expect yeah, you yeah. to share it. Yeah, and you could say, it, yeah, so that has some social value, but for whom? The guy that's giving out all this knowledge that now, you know, is being called a douchebag or someone saying, you don't even know what you're talking about, <laughs> fuck you, and then turns around and repeats back the same stuff. He said 30 fucking, you know, threads earlier. <laughs> Anyways, so, so I, you know, and that kind of thing will turn people off. So they'll go back, they'll revert back to their kinetic space where it's like, I'm not going to share this knowledge with anyone except an apprentice who I can observe for fucking a year at least and see what is this person's real fucking character. Should I tell him all this stuff or are they going to betray me? Or are they going to turn around and tell everyone these all these techniques? So all of a sudden, everyone can make records like you, and now you've got to reinvent yourself. But you've invented yourself mainly through trial and error in the first yeah, place. But Dave, but Dave, what do you think then about the whole idea of sampling, which is what everybody does? Like, so you, um, you, 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 you it does reflect that, doesn't it? That's expropriation. That's saying, "Give me what you have for my own purposes, and thank you. See you later." Um, whatever, don't need to talk to you anymore. Sure, it does reflect that to some extent, except when it's done well, it's hidden, and you can't tell, and even the person that created the original sound would have no clue, so in effect, they've mutated that person's sound into something wholly different, then at that point, I'd say, all power to you, I hope you had fun doing it. <laughs> um, but sure, it is in a sense doing the same thing. I don't want to sound self-righteous or something like that, and say, you know, people shouldn't get on the internet and just share all their knowledge with people out there per se, but I can see a pattern where when you look on forums and blogs and stuff like that, people that do have knowledge will often eventually bail out after a while because they, they, it exhausts them and they realize, wait a second, I'm just fucking here giving all this knowledge that I took 40 years to acquire and I'm just giving it to people I don't even know who they are or if they're even grateful for it. Or if they'll turn around and put me out of business with the knowledge I've shared, it, it, that might even be a case. No, so, Dave, I, I hear you. I'm just saying, though, that the new ground is all about sampling, isn't it? It has been for about 25 years, absolutely. Again, that was part of that MIDI thing. Before the digital digital came in, you had the sampler that would sample maybe, like the original early samplers that were affordable, like $3,000 and under, typically ha held about 30 seconds of sound. So you would fill it with, obviously, drum sounds or piano notes that you would transpose and stuff like that. Of course, with the digital now, you can record hours and hours and hours and stuff. But that was the first sort of manipulation. And when that came in, it was like you could go and get on a CD-ROM, samples of Bob Clear Mountain, the guy who mixes, you know, Brian Adams and the Pretenders and all the bands that were big back in the 80s. And you could get all his drum sounds from the record plant, you know, his kick drums, his snares, and you could have them in your sampler, and you could sit there and trigger them as you press the keys in your bedroom where you've got she's on a pair of headphones, really cheap. And that was exactly a huge revolution, and, and basically, yeah, expropriated all these previous 
physical environments and now just have them in a virtual world, but emulating them almost to the T. Um, so, yeah, there, there is that, but I'm also a firm believer that, you know, Bob Clearmountain did a lot of work in learning to get to a point where he get drums like that, and I think that that was a really rewarding experience for him, and I would highly recommend that to other people because I bet you the knowledge that he acquired through his learning and being taught by other people, likely, and his own research and trial and error and reading and education and just gradual acquiring of knowledge was what made him what he was. And I would recommend that experience for anyone far over going on the Internet and just getting all information yeah. handed to but them. Dave, I would say, Dave, I'm like probably yeah. like we're closer generation to you, but isn't the point, though, that like the Gen Xers or Yers or whatever they are called now, yeah. they have new forms of learning. They have a new – they're creating yes. new music, new forms of learning, which embodies these things that we, we, we think are kind of weird, like uh, – not learning how to do drums, but getting somebody samples. Right, right. And that's cool with that if they can make hit songs with that and they have those sensibilities. I think it's totally valid, and it's a cool way uh, of making the music. It does change the whole environment. But again, I would say with even younger people, if they immerse themselves more and more in the environment and then start to appreciate what it takes for a good drummer to lay down a really great groove and a great pocket and what kind of environment it requires and equipment to capture that sound. And it's not always high tech. A lot of those albums, if you look at the engineering notes on James Brown albums and all these classic recordings that people you know, sample ad nauseum, is a lot of times they're, they're, they're actually, actually quite humble. The, the miking, you know, it's just a few mics on the drums. It, a lot of it's the player and the vibe and the sound of the kit. It's so many things in the recording chain, you know. It's not just the mic or right? it's It's the whole package. And, of course, in the end, if, you, if your drummer isn't any good and has an incredible touch, then you got shit, <laughs> ultimately, yeah. in the case of drummers. But, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I, I totally understand and take what you're saying and, and and definitely want to keep that in mind always. Uh, the thing is exactly the, the rate that kids learn is maybe different now, too. The rate that I learn is much slower by today's standards. But the, I, I think that there's a certain endurance in, in acquiring knowledge by trial and error, and slowly that, that it just burns it into your brain, and, it, yeah. and, and, and then it becomes second nature. And, and, you know, it's like learning language or something. You know, you don't think when you speak in English, but when you learn a new language, you're constantly translating. And eventually, if you get lucky and stick with it, you can speak in another language without even thinking about the process. So, and kids are doing that constantly because any kid that's sitting at home, even with crack software and some virtual synths, that's the thing, too. They don't even have to buy hardware now to generate the sounds in the drum machines. That's all contained, too, in the virtual computer environment. So it's all in their laptops, basically. And so they will sit there and monkey around, and they will become quite proficient and experts in that software world and the plugins and all that stuff that, that's offered. And some of them will end up making stuff that I think sounds absolutely amazing that, that right out of the box. It's like you're ready to go, you're ready to print your record. Um, but there is a, still something to be said for running the stuff through real voltages and a board and just the sensibility and the vibe. I can't tell you more and more how much the vibe of the people involved in the music affects it. It's just like such a huge... It's like, uh, that's just so huge, uh, no matter what the technology is. Dave, you have any pulse on the, like, the world scene? Any which on the pulse on the world pulse scene? Pulse on the world, world music? music scene? I, like I don't really follow it like too much. Like, like that whole genre of so-called world music, I don't. Like music from Africa and that kind of thing? Yeah. Spain and that, I, I don't, I, I, I confess to be quite ignorant of that genre. It's, um... 
How you going, guys? It's James from Australia. Um, hey, James. Hey, hey, how you going? Hey, I was just at a uh, Blues and Roots Festival um, on Sunday. Uh, Bob Dylan, Grace Jones, uh, Rodrigo y Gabrielas, Mexican guitar players, and quite a few other bands from around the world, but a lot of uh, good black R&B rock bands. And... Um, like Grace Jones, I don't know if you guys have listened to her recently or what kind of music she does, but it was uh, not recently. No, it was it was mind blowing, absolutely mind blowing. I mean, Bob Dylan really? was 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 mind blowing, but uh, Grace Jones, oh. oh my god! And you know, she sings you know the French sort of music as well. It's like world music you could classify it, but it's so modern and contemporary. And uh, oh. yeah, it was really interesting just to note that. Because um, huh, the last thing I heard from her, I was in Metro, this bloody department supermarket for groceries, and they had slaves for the rhythm. Yeah, exactly. Music speakers. No, it wasn't like that. that for, I was after some pretty chic music, eh? Yeah. That's hilarious. I know. But I got, was... no, I'll have to look maybe on her MySpace page or whatever. She'll have a sample of like the stuff she's doing now. I think that's great that she is doing it. So she's not, yeah. you know, so I wouldn't see why she, when she would get old, she would not be interested in still well, she she things. still looks the same. She still looks the same, and uh, she's adapted to to modern music sensibilities. You know, with the heavy bass and drums, and really good live band, um, really loud, and yeah, no, it was impressive. Well, in her time, she seemed certainly chic and a real sort of star. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but this, she was a, uh, she's sort of a monster. You know, she's swearing and talking about, you know the biggest cock, you know, in what country, and all that sort of stuff, and spitting really? up the camera. Oh, she's got a real abrasive personality. Oh, very, abrasive very, word, uh, very abrasive. So, James, so, so James, what's the relevance of this personal experience? What did you want to relate it to that Dave was saying? They're, they're talking about world music, and this is billed as a world music event. Uh, and they're calling it Bob, it's Bob Dylan? Uh, he yep. was at it, too, because he'd be folk music, so that would be considered world music. Yep. The only genres have to keep mutating to expropriate more forms of music as the traditional one they represent mm. seems too limited. So world music would, you know, be from African to flamenco to folk to everything. Folk music now, folk music people would say, well, we don't expect folk music is going to sound like Bob Dylan's first album. Yeah, folk music yeah. now, you know, could be anything with atmospheric, you know, synthesizer effects. If it's done appropriately, they could say, yep, no, that fits in that category. Exactly Isn't it that right. they rep, folk music represents human scale, chemical body issues? Yeah, but they would say they would. Yeah, but now they're starting to argue that the use of the present technologies represents human scale. <laughs> yeah, yeah, now that's, yeah, yeah, because we live in a total virtual void. So even the old virtual digital technologies now they human to, scale. They, they, that's yeah. right. They have to. They have to say that that's included in, 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 in that's, that's part of the public folk culture. It's not new. <laughs> Yeah, we have the choice of uh, no humans here or or humans. Well, we got a, we got some humans here, so uh, we'll call it yeah. world music. Hey Dave, you know that genre yeah. thing? They got a festival in Ontario, the Blue, uh, Palmer Rapids. It's called the Bluegrass and uh, Country, and they have a stage yeah. in country and a stage with bluegrass. So I've been yeah. to it a couple times. But the blue, what they call the bluegrass stage, is what I think most of most of us would think of as country music. And on the country music stage is what most of us would think of as rock and roll. 
Hmm. That's rock and roll from the '80s, exactly like Def Leppard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So what? You, what that's, you, called, you know, that's called that's called chrome-plated country. Yeah, in, in understanding meaning, McLuhan talks about in the preface, second edition, he talks about how cool meant one thing in the '20s and a different thing in the '60s. So he would track words and how they change according to the changing ground. We're now talking about whole media environments as they change like language did because of yes. new grounds and what you know what was considered rock in the 60s in the 70s is not rock yet it's called rock in the 2000s or now. So that's yeah. that's some environments going through what philologists would track. Exactly. And if you look at uh, Australia as a country, what they think as well music is totally different to what uh, say the U.S. would think, you know, because we had uh, there was about four U.S. black bands: uh, gospel, reggae, R&B, you know, and so we consider that world, you know, world music. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. That's no, a good story, good figure. Um, no, sorry. Uh, is anybody who we haven't heard from like to speak today for any address the issues? Speak up. Nobody. Uh, Bobby, you might have something to comment on this. We're talking about um, coach indie music. I noticed in the in the Drudge Report today, it was about the Coachella Music Festival. You, you guys heard of that? It's uh, basically yeah. a thing in, in California for about two or three nights, kind of like a Lollapalooza thing where all kinds, shitloads of bands play on multiple stages. Yeah, yeah. Kind of thing. The headliner was in Conway West this year. So. Anyways, it says it may be a musical festival, but Coachella for many is all about fashion. And that appeared to be more true than ever for the stylish crowd at this year's event. I'm reading the story. The California desert was a perfect location to showcase new season trends. <laughs> and their famous fans had some serious competition in the style stakes. If keeping cool in the searing heat was a fashion challenge, there was little evidence. With floaty maxi dresses and denim shorts, the order of the day. Fashionista.com reporter Haley Phelan said that the 70s look is key this year, while clashing prints and crochet were the biggest emerging trends. She told her, I definitely see a 70s influence. At the, a lot of crochet, and I mean a lot. Floppy hats, peasant tops, and flowy dresses. Approximately 50,000 people attended the Coachella Festival this weekend, which is in its 11th year. A lineup included Arcade Fire, Kings of Leon, and The Strokes. It was a magnet for celebrities like Katy Perry, Lindsay Lohan, Paris Hilton, Diane Kruger, and Kelly Osbourne, among the stars spotted in the VIP section on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I guess the live shows are all about the chemical body, fashion, wealth. So this is me, obviously, they didn't put this in the article. Um, the body, it basically, is about the, you know, fashion... Wealth, celebrity, sex, power, networking, buying, selling, and happiness. This is where the bands are most likely to address their chemical body needs, as in get paid, get fed, <laughs> and have their sense of worth attended to yep, and affirmed. Yep. But That's it's interesting how, despite the anything goes situation, there still is a consensus forming fashion-wise. It's interesting that channels many decades. So they can't say it's the 70s are in this year. They're like, well, they got a little bit of the 70s, and I, I see some 80s influence as well. <laughs> There's a bit of a hippie 60s things coming in, and, and these guys look right out of the 50s, if you could say, but not quite, sort of a bit of a 90s thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so, I mean, we're really, I mean, uh, there is there's a consensus, and it's still a form fashion-wise that channels these many things. Are we not... We're already retrieving retrieval, I would say. We're in a post-retrieval situation. No, we're not. The Android means retrieving. It's imitating our retrieval function. 
the Android meme is retrieving it. But now it's got human scale where humans say, well, Google retrieved everything. Let's us retrieve everything that looks human. And so the, I was thinking how Joyce might have been thinking as a side thought when he wrote Finney's Wake. I'm going to write the most ridiculous words because words are going to change so rapidly that these words will make sense in 100 years or 2,000 years. You know what I mean? He just said, because things are mutating, yeah. the syllables that people say, and now you have the environments. Uh, what's it like? And what you're describing at the festival is my chart, right? The decade dance or decadence. So what would a young kid or anybody, have you access to any young kids, Dave? What are they filtering? What do they think if, they, if, if an 11-year-old went to that festival, where would they think they were? Yeah, that's exactly what I was questioning because with all the other bands, um, they've got big monitors, like big TV screens, and like it's a family festival sort of thing. So you've got people who are sitting down at the back and the people who are interested are at the front. And so the cameras, you know, are, are doing all sorts of multi, you know, sensory, you know, editing, you know, showing great stuff. Um, and then Bob Dylan comes on and there's this way, way zoom back pixelated shot, like you can't even see Jack, nothing, you know. And it's just the same when I saw him a few years back and I left halfway through the gig because we were, we were seated, you know, way back, you couldn't hear anything. It was just a man in the hat, you know. Um, wow. So they, Bob Dylan understands the chemical body aspect of going to see a concert, right? So he's got a contract with the people who run the cameras. It's like, no, no close-ups, no editing, no nothing. If you want to come and see me, you've got to get up there and come and see me. And uh, when I explained that to one of the punters who was getting a little bit frustrated because all the kids were texting, distracted, I just said, close your eyes and listen. And, yeah, his mind just exploded. So you're saying that Dylan purposely made the footage of him be very distant so there'd be no footage for later TV broadcasts? Of close-ups of him? For that too, but for the actual you audience. The camera in space, just to cater the, that. Like yeah. you said, if you want to see me, you got to come up to the stage. Exactly, because you could easily be on the wings or like way back yonder looking at the screens, you know, and getting a half a decent sound, thinking, yeah, this is good, but if you really want to see Dylan, you get up front and center or pretty close. You know, you well, how could you? It's crowded. You Only, a, you know, 300 can get that close. No, 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 no. It's a big, it's a big stage. You know, you get a good. Oh, you can get up close. You can. Uh, easy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Excuse oh. me. Excuse 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 me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> what's Dave? What's that about? Uh, people. Oh, oh, excuse me. Right, 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 right. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me. What's the Canadian say though? What can you go? Sorry. 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 Yeah. That's that's what I'm sorry. Thanks, man. Sorry. But the American but, says it aggressively. Excuse me. You know, it's like, yeah, you have to be. Let me. You have to yeah, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, 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 I have a pass, so no one's standing in the way of it. Yeah, but the Canadian and Andrew wrote a paper when he was at uh, in Toronto in 19 in 2004. He, that was the main thing he noticed about Canadians was this uh, irritating thing of saying I'm sorry every second. Remember that, right. Andrew? Yeah, yeah. It was Wait a minute, Dave. Let's see what Andrew's saying. What? Yeah, I remember. It was on the uh, problem of uh, double doors. I just never knew. Um, every I didn't. 
I couldn't navigate uh, socially in Canada because everybody was sorry for everything, even when they did something good for you. <laughs> like, yeah, I've just helped you out, but uh, yeah, I'm sorry. And sorry. <laughs> you know, this is a confusion in Canada in terms of negotiating a door entrance for two people, one going in and out. Is basically one person has to hold the door open for the other. If that uh, neither party takes that lead, it becomes confusion. But why do they apologize? Goes, I'm going to wait for the person to open the door for me. Oh, no, no, they're, going to, they're waiting for me to open it for them. Oh, no one's going to open the door, so we're going to stand here and look at each other. And it's like, ah, so finally one person grabbed up. Oh, sorry. Ah, okay, I'll hold the door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's yeah. it. The Canadians... But I want to say, when you go back, all I want to say about like, not to give offense and so worry about giving offense, and I would say that is also that quality in Canadians is personified in the use A, A. That A is like literally, I, you know, did you hear what I'm saying? It's my personal opinion. I just want to know if you acknowledge it. But yeah. you know, I don't want to impose I, anything on I you. I don't want to impose too much. Yeah, back down to Toronto fast. That's all gone. What's that? That's all gone from Toronto. That, 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 that politeness there's is no, not there. There's no more A in well, no. Toronto. Toronto's got a sense of that they're superior now, so they're shifting their yeah, sense of how they are. Yeah, yeah. It's true, but the other thing in the Maritimers, too, they have one, yeah, 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 the breathing in. <laughs> and that's the same thing. That's a very, like, almost meek, gentle, not-in-your-face expression. Yeah. It's saying we're communing, where it's like, you know, whereas in America we go, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> whereas in Maritime we go, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a big fucking difference in sensibility. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so, so, Dave, is there a Canadian music? What? Say again? Is there a Canadian music? Is there a what of music? A Canadian music. Is there a yeah. Canadian music? Is there distinctly Canadian? Like distinctly Canadian The way you're music? describing the difference. I, I don't think Arcade Fire is distinctly Canadian at all. I don't hear that. Um, they're influenced by British bands and stuff. Rush, I guess, are distinctly Canadian in that they did have their signature heavy metal sound with his falsetto vocal that is so distinctly Rush and no other band. But I don't know if that's Canadian or is that Rush. Isn't Canadian bland? There's a bland element. It's like there's five years late. Sense of, well, no, there's a, there was traditionally a bland sense of Canadian as roots music. You know what I mean? A little more like tied to the land and the forest. And of course that's a myth per se. But in a lot of ways, you can still see there's a bit of that vibe. When in some even Canadian stars, even now, there still is a bit of a bit of a country rock kind of quality. Neil, that I can Neil Young kind of style. Neil, he's hugely influenced, so exactly. So there, there still is a bit of that that could be a sort of a cliche. Oh, there's some like let's say out, out around where I am, you know, in Belleville and areas like that. You know, it's like God bands like Leonard Skinner or Neil Young, like they're just gods basically out here, and there's not really much else besides them. I'll tell you, I'll tell <laughs> you what. They though. don't bother searching beyond that. <laughs> I saw, I saw yeah. Neil Young a, a few years ago, and he shredded like Frank Zappa. I'm not, I'm not joking. Really? Oh, that's he shredded cool. it. Yeah, it was mind-blowing. Wow. Well, yeah. you know, James, this side thing, Zappa in the early 70s was asked, any guitarist he was interested in, he said he liked Neil Young. That was in the oh, early really? 70s. Yeah, he actually said that. It was, he oh, never really mentioned anybody he liked of new new people, but he didn't no, mention... Like no, Jimi Hendrix? Did he like Jimi Hendrix, I think? Oh, yeah, Hendrix was a friend. He had Hendrix's guitar, the one that burnt in Miami or something. Right. He, he was given that guitar by Hendrix. Yes. But the, uh, there's something to me... There was something, he didn't, it just didn't have any oomph to it. 
in Canada. Nothing handed over. It's all just a, a replay. It's a virtual society. It's a replay of America in some way for me. Yeah, but guess who were good? Yeah, but one song and that's that, and they didn't do anything more. And they still sounded, they were good, but uh, it was not, I don't know, what do you call a Dylan or a Zappa or a Beatles? Well, what is that extra edge they have? Yeah, yeah. What is the, well, I'd say in the case of Zappa, he was very American. Yeah. He had very much a very American attitude compared to a Canadian. So Frank Zappa definitely felt, he was, much, he was a very strong, rugged individual. Yeah, and, uh, and, and Miles, the, the British critic, made a really good point, that the music of Zappa was the atmosphere of cruising the L.A. highways, Los mm. Angeles roads. That is actually pretty good. That, that's mm-hmm. what, um, and Zappa has a picture of the mothers uh, in a car. But I'm saying, I don't, is there, I don't know of any Canadian genius other than you, Dave, and you're Joni just a replay Mitchell. of Zappa. Joni you know, Mitchell. <laughs> and, you're, yeah. and you're impressive Joni, because you Joni can Mitchell. talk. You're Joni impressive, Mitchell. Dave, because you can talk. Uh, yeah, Joni know. Mitchell, they just mentioned Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell. She is an example of a top writer like yeah. on a global scale. Like, forget Definitely. about what country she's from. Uh, in terms she's, of she's the Bob Dylan. And, and also, well, don't forget, too, she used really bizarre tunings. So whenever yeah, she yeah, yeah. wrote her songs, her chord, she wasn't using the conventional cowboy chords. That are, even if she put her fingers in the cowboy chord position, they wouldn't sound like cowboy chords. Cause she, yeah, she's a very she skilled... Very school guitar. Very skilled. Yeah. Now, here's the thing but, about Joni, but, Dave. But, hang on a sec. But, but yes. I just want to add this. Is because of those different tunings, they evoke different songs. If you're getting yeah. stale in your writing, take your guitar and put in a different tuning. You'll write all new songs. You'll start playing whole new music. You get stale within you know, the standard forms that you work in and the patterns within that. And I think that was a very important one part of it. The other factor in Joni Mitchell... It must be getting late, Dave. It's a secret. Well, no, it's getting late. Oh, Dave's giving out secrets again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, check it out. But I would say this on a personal level. In the case of Joni Mitchell, it's just a creative, artistic soul. The way she interpreted her world and what was going around her and her culture and her times was, was incredibly poetic and, and, and poignant and, and, and beautiful. Okay, Dave, I'm talking about the whole image. I'm here that I, and when Joni Mitchell came out, uh, I didn't know she was a Canadian. She talked about L.A. culture, the parking mm. lot song. And she was L.A. culture. Yeah, yeah and I, guess I what? She, she hung out with Zappa and played with the mothers for a night or two. Cool. Now, that, that's a thing. Now, she's down there like Neil Young since the mid-60s or something. Yeah. But see, so that's Joan... Say, let's, let's go back to the original thing. There isn't necessarily a distinctly Canadian... There can't be. It's a non-identity culture. Yeah. <laughs> no more than there's a distinctly... Canadian movie or a distinctly Canadian television show. Although some people might say running, going down the road, but that's 1969 or something. So that's like a different. That's like talking about. So they don't have a hot image, or even the American cool is different from the Canadian cool because there's no Canadian for the Canadian cool. There's no backlog. Uh, there's no culture or no yeah. country. And as McLuhan mm. pointed out, it's true. That's why a lot of the comedians come from Canada is because we are outsiders, so we make good observers. Yes, yeah. and, and also because you're in Canada and observing within the media vortex. You're still immersed exactly. within that vortex. Yeah. Exactly. So mm. it's like you're talking about it like you're, talk, you're not talking about something abstract. You're talking but about if something you're you involved at, in. If you look at Rush, they're like the, the biggest cult band in the world and probably the most influential musicians in the world. Um, I mean, you just, like, you, you just have to look around, you know, and people would, would often cite... Neil Peart, Geddy Lee, Alex Larvison has, you know, their favorite drummer, you know, secretly. Um, and they may not like the music, but the, you know, they've, 
they're like a cult yeah, technically band. Technically, they acknowledge that they're good. What about the band? Yeah. Yes, they were also technically quite amazing. The bass player was. I don't know if you listen to that. Whoa, 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 whoa! I saw them. Good. I saw them live uh, in 2003, and they they were the best band I've ever seen live. And I'm it's wanting scary to see how much they can, what they execute in terms of rhythm and technique whoa. and ambition in terms of modulations and parts. It's fucking great. And to me, whoa. that pinnacle of that, in a lot of ways, is Roundabout because that's a top ten hit. It's about a fucking, I don't know, five, ten-minute song yep. with a million fucking key changes. Well, not key changes, but not even so much timing changes, but groove. Let's just say groove changes. It's, and it's journey departures, music. Yeah. And yet it's pop. It's still completely engaged. I, I will bring in an 18-year-old kid into my studio and occasionally we're hanging out and having fun. If something with comes up, fragile. I will put on that song and I will play it yeah. to people that have never heard it in their life and they will be thoroughly blown away the first time they hear it because it's, especially that song because it's so funky, the bass is so funky, yeah. the drums are so good. Yeah. It's, it's perfection. It's recorded well, perfectly. Imagine them playing that perfect, per- perfectly live. It was astounding. Not one note wrong. I can't imagine it. No, I and, can't imagine them doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been looking those guys like, are real technicians. So what yeah. year was that song, James? That came Round, out in what, the roundabout? Yeah. 71? 71? 71, okay. Is that or 72, maybe? That's a long time ago. You know, Dave, talk, I, you know, when I think of pop culture of these people, I think of their face, not just their music, what they say in interviews or what they, the audience they represent, all kinds of environments goes into yeah. a, a face. What's amazing about Dave, when his album came out in, in, with the Broken Social Scene, You Forgotten People, within a year or so, a lot of people knew about Broken Social Scene. And then they find out about Dave Newfeld. The first image of Dave Newfeld in the major media is a face all punched up. <laughs> He's the first guy to have a face that's beat up. That's the only face, the picture of me that's out there. <laughs> that's the only yeah. picture is this guy who, had, who looked at the disservices of media from the mid-'80s on, under Nelson, my influence. And so when he became part of the Android meme on a big level, Dave showed what it really meant, abuse value. And his face is all pounded out because he got beat up. Yes. <laughs> That's his image, if you ever look. <laughs> That's pretty unique, Dave. Everybody else tries to do it. Ozzy Osbourne, you know, they, they bite a rat or something, and they, they look like they're doing abuse, but you actually admitted it. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're the psychic <laughs> of social abuse that you will go through and fucking... There's not much you can do about it except Sue. <laughs> hey, you know what? I, I'm just looking here. I saw a neat article today in the, uh, in the release of the Har Hall, because we're here for the McLuhan theme, of course, and that, that's what's all bringing us together, celebrating his 100th. Is, of course, in the album, and what I found was a, a, a dominant theme, and it was the loss of theme of loss of identity. Loss of identity created by these technologies, scrubbing away the old identities, and subsequently the content would become violent to, to address this, this violence that was being expressed or needed to be expressed or the violence that had been begot upon the person from these technologies. Anyways, I saw, you know, there's a, definitely an increase in profane language in the lexicon. You know what I mean? I see it. It's everywhere. You know what I mean? People use the fuck shit like it's, it's nothing now. It doesn't even really raise an eyebrow. Right. And a study has found that too much swearing diminishes its effectiveness as a painkiller. Hmm. Because young, and now here's the article, I've got to read you guys this. Young adults were divided into two groups of study. Those who normally utter fewer than 10 swear words a day, and those who utter up to 40 swear words a day. All 71 were asked to dip their hands into ice-cold water and hold them there as long as possible. 
They were first asked to do so while repeating a non-swear word, and then again while repeating a swear word of their choosing. Those who usually swear less often were able to withstand the icy water while swearing for up to 45 seconds longer than when they did not swear. But the frequent daily swearers were able to withstand the icy water for just 10 seconds longer compared to when they did not swear. The research was carried out by academics at Keele University and will be unveiled at a British Psychology Society thing in Glasgow. Anyways, lead researcher Dr. Richard Stevens said the results show that swearing can release pain-killing endorphins. Swearing provokes an emotional response in the face of stress akin to the fight flight and fight response, how the body reacts to perceived threat or danger, explained. But the study shows that if people really want to benefit from swearing, they should save it up for when it really matters and when they're in genuine pain. Um, <laughs> it's funny, he goes, but doc, this is going to get silly, but it's funny. But Dr. Stevens advised against official NHS, I guess national health, but NHS backing for cursing. Quote, swearing is impolite and has connotations with rowdy behavior, and I suspect advocating this youth in health care would cause more problems. <laughs> <laughs> so in healthcare settings, the usual range of analgesics should be continued. <laughs> analgesics. Analgesics. But, but the thing is, so you can see, with the speed up, you've got, you've got basically a need for instance response, so eventually people can't biologically keep responding to the constant need to give a response. So this ties in with the rate of image turnover in the global theater. So people go, whatever, too much information, I can't help you with that, pal, has now become like a social and psychic strategy to preserve the chemical body for a real situation when you do have to expi- uh, respond. Like, oh, no, someone <laughs> in my family just died. I really do have to tend to this. Now i got to get into it. <laughs> Guys in Japan, you're on your own now. <laughs> and, and so, but it's funny, it's like, this is like, in some ways, too, when he talks about, like, you save your swear words for later, it's like the environment, now people swear, they're so inundated, the environment acts like an, a vaccine that's supposed to give you a, you know, a little bit of a harbinger of what's to come, but if you take too many vaccines, it's just, then it creates a, you, you don't know how to respond, so you just don't respond at all. That's the tetrad. Something will turn into its opposite, opposite effect. Opposite yes. characteristics. But McLuhan writes in 68 in the War and Peace in Global Village discussing phantom pain, and he talks about language is fading out. The, the spoken word is fading out. But the use of language as, a, as an anesthetic, which he talks about how the senses do that with each other. So if you, he talked about you can go to the dentist, uh, you play music or something in the person's ear, so, or high-pitched sound so they don't notice the tooth pain. Okay, so you use one sense to anesthetize the other. The whole chemical body range and the use of language as slang to anesthetize at the appropriate moment, even that is diluted. Mm-hmm. So how would you express your environment? You have huge world. How do you express slang or the, the pain function of swearing? You have huge festivals like Dylan and everybody that Perth went to, the human scale, massively right. showing everything we ever did in any field, and that's a big pain uh, yes, anesthetic. Yes, yes. Yes, yes, exactly, and that, 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 is, that is a lot of ways the, the, what music is addressing. Dave, but, okay, you, that is, oh, wait a minute, what's that mean? That's the way electrified that's music is. In many ways, what, what it is addressing. Exactly. Well, you do. You're a doctor. McLuhan said all media are anesthetics. That's in cliche archetype. So you know you endlessly produce neat sounds to numb a the doctor, listeners. A charlatan. What? <laughs> More like a charlatan, but okay. No, 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 you actually... <laughs> The, the reason doctors became just pedal pushers, they were, their chemical body function was obsolesced. 
and, and they just, uh, so the real doctoring is done by 24-7 electronic entertainment. That's the real drug. Yeah. Uh, Bob, I think I've got a question yeah. that might uh, segue into this. Um, Dave, have you uh, meditated on uh, McLuhan's uh, observation that, didn't he say that uh, music, all music, has slowed down speech? He did say that, didn't he, Bob? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he has that, and I think, in uh, Counterblast. And I said it to Bill... It is, it is to a great extent. It really is. And th- there's a little more, but that's just a, a surface statement, but he says a lot more. The most interesting statement he ever said about rock was that it had to be in English because it was, and he'd ask people, why is rock in English? And uh, they'd go, mm, I don't know. And he says, because of the iambic pentameter. Then they'd go, they wouldn't even know what that was, and he explained that it was the basic rhythm, the tactile dancing rhythms of the iambic pentameter fit the rhythms of rock. Yeah, because it's got feet or something like that. But yeah, thinking, it had if, feet. If, That's right. They, they, they go, why? Because it has feet. <laughs> well, true, no. Because I've worked with Mexican bands, and their fans totally begged them for years, will you please fucking make shit in Spanish? And I've had them in my studio. And it's like, come on, guys. Let's do it. And then they're like saying, do you know how fucking cheesy this actually sounds? And then they go, I go, okay, let's take this song. All right, how do you say it in Spanish? And then they'll do it, and it does. It sounds like fucking cheese because it's like... First of all, there's too many syllables. You can't have the slowed down speech and fit it in as easily anyways, because the English can use four words and really draw it out, and you've got those hard Ks, and ah, and all the shit that, that you have that so works in rock and roll music, you can just kind of grab. That's why people use the same words over and over, because they're so fun, and they just sound so right in rock music. And yeah, we, we tried it. It's really, it, it, it's that language just is, it's really hard to put it into rock music and have it fit into those rhythms. And you can see that I don't think rock music would have been spawned by that, mu- that the rhythms of that language. In fact, well, yeah, what that spawns is the salsa and the flavor of the music that you hear down in those Latin-speaking countries. When, yeah, even though there's... When speech fades out, though, when speech fades out and you start getting uh, modems talking, you know, computers talking to computers, you know, so what's that speech slowed down? And, and therefore, what is turning up now? What, what, uh, what speech is being slowed down that's being uh, produced in music? Right, maybe, that's right, because there's so many different environments on on one, the easiest level I could immediately say, well, speech is the lyrics of the tune, obviously, but obviously, speech itself is is the beats and the rhythms and the chords and the and the drawing of the whole thing is is in in effect sound and speech, it all is some kind of voicing of some sort, I mean, they even talk about that in, in music now, when you talk about the, what is then the speech? What is the? How does that relate to then the modem transferring speech via those electric wires? Because because in, in, in effect, really they are transmitting speech, whether it's through music or sense, or in this case through the wires and then converted to text, kind of thing. So what? What? what how? How are we going with this? I don't think the speech. It's the Andrew. I mean, replaying speech. So, so what McLuhan says is only about the media phase. It's not about the Android meme phase. Was it, wasn't the quote that poetry is slowed down speech, not music? No, it's music. It's song. Song is slowed. He said song is slowed down speech. I think you'll see that in, in Counterblast somewhere. But the thing is, I said it to the jazz musician in Toronto in 1980 to Bill Grove one day. And he thought that was a ridiculous statement. He said, well, the birds are song. And so he went for natural images. So... I don't know if uh, that's applicable, John. It's almost like uh, John Cage's idea. But what we have now, we, when I hear, uh, when we did Android Meme Critics, Dave, and we played the top uh, Billboard stuff a year or so ago, 
Mm-hmm. That stuff, you know, was way more distorted than a lumpy gravy or, or medium as a massage. And it's, to me, it's like the kids respond to the distortion within Android meme experiences. Like the kid that goes and sees that World Festival and then goes home and is on a computer and all that stuff, I don't think they even ha- – they're not looking for music or song slowed down speed. No, okay, song is slowed down speed. They're looking for a song to be slowed down Android meme which will be blips and blops and that distorted stuff that the kids have in their songs. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. That's slowed down. That's more the mood, I would say, in the sense that because the kids are all on the laptops and using the Facebook, and those are the dominant technologies and retrieving all the hardware world in their laptop computer, that then, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that would be their thing. That yeah, Dave, be- when I saw Tiesto, yeah, someone told me, Evan Ray told me about yeah. Tiesto, yeah. I thought the sound he made, it was a great show, was the sound of one, when, on, at least on a Mac, when you send her an email, it goes whoosh. He was making m- music out of the whoosh of sending yeah. an email. Yes, yes. Yeah. Hey, guys. Sure. It's 8-Bit uh, over here. What? It's 8-Bit uh, over here. I've been listening uh, to the conversation. I'm, oh, uh, great. I, I tried I, to get you earlier, but you, you tuned in came anyways. Yeah, Very good. listening to the conversation and hearing where you guys. I think this is the time where I chime in because I'm yes. an electronic electronic music producer, and um, I've been producing you know dubstep and techno since uh, 1990. And um, I I think the conversation is interesting because you're saying oh the kids respond to distortion, and uh, they go into their computer worlds and the music reflects those worlds, but before the internet when we were just using, you know, BBSs and, and slow modems and half the world, well, most of the world, 99% of the world didn't have a computer yet. I'm talking about early 1990s. Um, kids were still responding to electronic music, and that comes from uh, the generation before responding to disco and the generation before that responding to Pink Floyd underground uh, electronic music. And then, then and so there's always this response to elemental synthesis whatever that is, whether it's, you know, banging, scraping in a cave wall or banging on a, on a synthesizer uh, a drum. I don't think it's a new phenomenon. So mm-hmm. beware, be, be don't confuse the two. Don't, don't, don't get into a generation. Don't put the, the distance between yourselves and the no. trends. Obviously not. We're all retrieving the same thing. I mean, we were saying, I don't know when you joined in, we were saying earlier, most of the music that you're hearing right now sounds like 1992. Yeah, like the Britney yeah, Spears yeah. and stuff like that. It is. It's all like snap, rhythm as a dancer and all that. It's the same synth, the same house beat, the same lyrics, rhythm on the floor, like the floor tonight, tonight, we're going to take it higher, la, 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 la. Oh, yeah, Dave, the floor, just a minute, 8-bit, the floor point, always on the floor, that's the feet, the tactile kinetic feet interacting with something solid. Yeah, bring it back to the floor. Bring yeah. us back to the floor. The, the toes are tactile. What were we going to say, 8-bit? Uh, the, the big, the big thing right now, the big debate amongst electronic producers, and you could, if you go to Twitter and you look up a lot of the, the, the even, for instance, Tiesto, who you brought up, who's considered one of the more mainstream acts and doesn't really get respect from the underground acts. Um, what, what we're talking about is dubstep, D-U-B-S-T-E-P. That's a genre that has emerged from techno, and it's this. Uh, basically, the the idea with dubstep is it's all distorted wobbles. The wobbles W O B B L E S. So the entire bass line is a wobbly, like a wah 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 wah, and this goes on and it builds tension up to a break point, and then that break point, known as the drop, 
is when the kids in the club go crazy. So it's actually really wild. If I, if I played this for my dad or if I played this for my mom, it would be more annoying to them than techno was in 1992. It is, it is considered one of the most annoying, controversial forms of electronic music. So look it up, dubstep. Um, it will destroy your speakers. It's kind of loud and distorted, and it, and it works off of what you're talking about, this Android meme, this distorted, almost wobbly incoherence that has mm-hmm. some order uh, put to it. It's really interesting, so check it out. Mm-hmm. It's a whole genre. Do you know that stuff, Dave? If I heard, I, I'm semi-familiar with it, and obviously I've heard the term dubstep per se, but I couldn't say that I'm like familiar with the genre where I could cite like top dubstep tunes. Well, is there is a full dimension to um, dubstep? Is there like what's the uh, what chemicals do kids have got to be taking to listen to dubstep? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> um, well, every uh, every yeah. every musical aesthetic seems to be paired with, or uh, well, at least since the uh, '60s, has been paired with a chemical. That's what Zappa yeah. said. Yeah, Zappa said. What, what, that's a good question, though. What, what would you say in the clubs right now? What's, what's, what's the popular... I mean, Coke has been popular the whole time, regardless of whether E and blah, 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 and shit like that. That That's always... I know that Toronto is awash in cocaine and the whole club scene. It has been for oh, years. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, now there's yeah, all yeah, this... A lot of people are on... They're really aggressive. They're on Coke and alcohol, and then, then that's a lot of fights break out, and yeah. people drive around their cars and fucking... Jaywalking, you can hear their accelerating. <laughs> like, okay, better fucking cross fast, or this guy's gonna plow me over. So, what yeah, drugs? Eight uh, bit. Yeah, just the amphetamines. The, the coke. Yeah, there's new drugs. There's right, stuff no pain. Yeah, there, there's synthetic cocaine, which is called no pain, which you could order online. Huh. There's something called uh, uh, spice, which is synthetic marijuana, which you could also buy online. But in the UK, they have delivery services for spice that. Are open 24 it, hours. Have you tried it? I, I tried I, it a couple years ago. Yeah, I tried it when it just and? started. All this stuff, and and they were they weren't that great. They give you kind of a headache. It's nothing like the real thing. Um, right, right, but right. This is, but but they feel better with it using it because it's not illegal, right? So, so they, oh, that's right. Right. Hey, they explore pain. McLuhan said, "Discovery of the 20th century is explore pain." This, you know, Morpheus generation is exploring pain. They get a headache. Yep. That's this is their way of getting in touch with their body. Yeah, yeah, they're not that they, good. They they make a whole raft of uh, legal high pills, and they've been cracked down on. Like New Zealand was a major hub for these uh, party pills, all different sorts, you know. Yeah, that's how Andrew got got through college selling that stuff. Yeah, exactly. And um, <laughs> literally, like you know, fifty percent of the people would get a buzz. The other half would just be like nauseous and just be like, "What the fuck is this crap? I pay fifty dollars for you know." And uh, you that's know, yeah, thing, yeah. James. Since we're on yeah. the record, Bob, I will uh, denounce that uh, statement and <laughs> <laughs> retract no, that. Yeah, I, yeah. I didn't say it was you, Andrew. I just said Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> so there, Andrew McLuhan, you better... Uh, yeah, any Andrew you want. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but the... I uh, lost it. Uh, so, hmm. We're talking about no, no, what I mean, is the drug like, that the kids take now? Yeah, yeah, the drug. Synthetic, synthetic, synthetic. It's, it's a digital type yeah. situation. Um, for a, a, a wildly digital, um, aphasic, and... Uh, it's synthetic squared. Yeah, yeah, totally. But yeah. Also, um, what I've noticed is, like, pharmaceuticals have come back in as a sort of... It's okay to be doing, you know, to take pharmaceuticals oh, with you. prescription pharmaceuticals. Hey, yeah. I've got some Ritalin, or hey, I've got some... Yeah, Percodin some benzos, or... some Vicodin, some whatever it is. You know, and right. they'll, like, they'll use it as coke, you know, line it up or whatever, and... 
So it's like the taboos, those taboos, you know, they've changed from generation to hey, generation. You know, generation. This, this drug thing is an important part of music as an electronic environment because the drug is really the hidden ground. That's the constant through all the stuff because it helps it the is. chemical body get grounded. Spot on, Spot on Bob, because what happened at the festival, it starts at 12, and it's like a relatively hot, humid day. And, I, you know, I've, I go to every festival that comes, and I generally only go until five in the afternoon because I know my body just can't take it um, chemically you know it's just going to be ruined so I pace myself but watching uh, about uh, two acts before the festival was ending you could just see this drawn out look on the people's faces because you know they've been drinking you know crappy mixed spirits and whatnot and eating crap food and maybe some of them are on crappy drugs and they just didn't pace themselves at all, you know, and they were all, it was like a max exodus, you know, about an hour before the event left, and everyone looked huh. really tired, and it was it was strange, very strange, and that all comes back to this hidden ground of the chemical body and, you know, what you're inputting, <laughs> what you're giving it. Yeah, it was a great yeah. concert, because we got lots of friction and pain. Yes, yep. And exhaustion. Yep, and yeah. amongst that, there's all this joy and bliss and dancing and great music and, and seeking you know, that too yes and young people seek it out more than older people I would say yes they it's do it's really important yeah. for a young person when you're going out on the weekend you want it to be good we want to, yeah, yeah and it, it's this, there's like all these possibilities especially in that realm of, of drugs you know where you can you can have a good time when you're young I think it's it's viable but most people know as you get older it just becomes obsolete right, but uh, you know I just add something to that. When I was a, I'm, I'm probably uh, the youngest raver on on this conference right now. If there are any other ravers here, but when I went to my first party, I was like 13, and I think the idea was I, I was going to leave my, the arguing of my household to venture out into an escapist sort of uh, rave mm. party. And mm. now, now I was too young to do drugs. I had no idea that everybody was on ecstasy. So when I when I walked into the party. Um, I thought everybody was just happy. Really cool. This is the kind of place I want to hang out. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's yeah, yeah. bullshit at home. Everyone's getting in a good mood here. This is the way yeah, totally. what's, what's even weirder, though, is, is the placebo yeah. effect. Like, uh, you, you know, I used to take uh, do club photography and... You know, they all drop their ecstasy pretty much at the same time, you know, one o'clock in the morning or whatever, and the DJ knows exactly, you know, how to play his music, and I can feel them when, when they've dropped their ecstasy. I'm like, well, holy shit, you know, I'm feeling, you know, a bit, a bit euphoric. Yeah, and it's just a contact high. Yeah, a contact high. Yeah, and it has a 13-year-old going into a rave, and they're all on, you know, that's pretty explosive. Okay, so what happened to you, 8-Bit? When did you change? Well, here, did you think- here's, well, here's the thing. This is what I wanted to explain, uh, synthetic drugs, ecstasy, versus not doing those things and experiencing the party. Because in the early days of the rave scene, they had something called a smart bar because you couldn't serve alcohol. That, there was, there was a, a moral code, so to speak, from the electronic, uh, um, the electronic music people that we wouldn't be like the disco kids, right? So the techno kids... We're, we're refuting the disco era of the cocaine and the alcohol. So we were trying to distance ourselves from that because we didn't want techno to be synonymous with disco. So one of the, one of the things that you would find at these parties were smart bars. And smart bars were juice bars where you can go and refuel your vitamin C, have yourself a pineapple smoothie, 
um, no drugs, nothing synthetic in it. And then, you know, Terrence McKenna, who who is sort of, if you if you know who he is, he would come to these parties and give these long speeches in a chill out room to ambient music. And you'd be sipping your smart drink, which would eventually get enhanced with these smart drugs, not the synthetic drugs, you know, like the, like the or more homeopathic drugs. So eventually, when alcohol became uh, like morally acceptable in techno, and this happened around '93, '94, the smart bars started to disappear, and it became just like disco. It just it became this like this drug fest. But there was a time period. That, and this is what I wanted to point out because a lot of people forgot about this if they knew in the first place. No, I do remember the juice bars at the race. Right, and now I thought that was a great thing, and I'm an advocate well, for more progressive. But also the progressive. people on E didn't want to drink alcohol. Exactly. There's yeah. a bit of that too. So what happened? So what happened, Eight Bit? What happened was we forgot about. We had come so to boom. a point where cash in. Yeah. We, we forgot about what what actually you know. What you guys are talking about, the drugs enhance the music. Yeah, to a degree, but if you go in healthy with fruit, you could also stay up all night long. You know, you could also, you're not, you don't have that look on your face by the end of the festival, like, oh my God, I have to go to sleep. If you're having a banana every five hours and going and dancing with a stranger and then having an apple and then maybe having a smart drink with vitamin C, you could keep that going for a couple of days. I had done that as a test with a bag of fruit, I went to a party, and while everybody else was tripping, I had my bag of fruit, and eventually they would call me Fruit Loop, right? Because mm-hmm. I was yeah. the guy with the fruit walking around saying, no, I'm not going to trip, I'm not, thank you, thanks a lot. I'm not, and everybody's faces are breaking out in zits already, the sun's yeah. coming up, and so mm-hmm. there, there is a way, there is another way, you know? That's what so what you have there, though, is the hidden ground is drugs, and you have political correctness or, or ideological battles over the type of drug you take or whether you have a drug or not. That's really absorbing the electronic environment, which is symbolized by the little drug. Well, it's funny when you say political correctness because it's thinking that's PC and that's personal computing yeah. and printed circuit boards. And it's funny when you get the fragmentation and the almost attempt to have conformity in the fragmentation, you start to try and control behavior by having everyone agree to a consensus of politically correct behavior. But then, of course, everyone rebels against it. But that's interesting that they are both the same thing and they're both almost incompatible. Yeah, people used to wonder whether PCs were cool, medium, or hot. What they missed was they, were, they had cool components, the uh, cathode ray tube or whatever the laser yeah. tube was, and they had yeah. the print, you know, it was in the 80s and 90s, so they had both hemispheres, and you're in the interval, but the point is you also would be detached, you'd be fl- sailing around all the environments like an astronaut, so that's quadrophenia. You would be, you'd have tribal uh, TV effect implications, you'd have uh, left hemisphere ideology in the writing, then you'd have your... Uh, uh, um, being neither, and then you have your autonomy. So that's why what you just said, Dave, you'd be half conformist, half individualistic in different contexts. You'd be juggling four levels because the PC had those four levels. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. So this issues would be, these issues would come to the fore as, as the technologies become, you know, uh, everywhere. Yeah, well, the, the result in politics was George Bush to go, whatever, he's not going to say anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's charismatic. He, he, he didn't get locked into the right hemisphere, left hemisphere, the corpus callosum, or the autonomy. He had to be a nothing, mm-hmm. and definitely not. And, and they'll announce that he didn't read regular media. Well, and, not having a point of view is, is, seems like an appropriate response. Yeah, to the situation. but not only not have a point of view, 
he, uh, he purposely garbled his point of view when he actually reduced himself to saying something. But the uh, more important thing is, I do not consume media, which is the subliminal effect that Web 1.0 gave people. You can mm-hmm. float around it all. If he, right, if he right. was a, a Manipian, a Manipian satirist. Yeah, uh, Manipian, a Manipian politician. He would have been one of the, the, the best the comedians one that, in the world. Yeah, what would you say? He would have been one of the best comedians in the world. If, he was you know, in the long run because the... Uh, First of all, the, the, hate, the jokes that came out of his administration is great. He created all mm. kinds of humor as people couldn't handle his apparent dumbness. But the, the, the thing that stood out to me is one of the debates, uh, Gore is going on about this and that, very articulate, a 90s articulate guy. And, and George is sitting there while Gore is going on, and all George did was wink at the audience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he winked, and that gave him the charisma. He, he says, look at this guy, I think he's trying to tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> it's like close to the uh, reptile tongue, you know, slipping out. But it's just, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Gore was the reptile tongue because he was using all this old media. He, yeah. he was stuck in trying to educate people, inform people. Bush knew it was manipian. You could say Clinton was mani- was fatic, and Bush was manipian fatic. Yeah, and look at the uh, look at like Colbert and the Daily Show. How they had to become they had to become extra manipian because of Bush, you know. And they also became the, for the left hemisphere, the commentary. You got exactly. your facts from them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a satirical stance. And so yeah. this is Obama's mistake was he took on an, an earnestness. There was a, rec- uh, there was a exactly. desire for something beyond the Minipin Fatic. That's the appeal of Obama. But yeah. he did not have, know how to translate that. He should have just dismantled the whole government or said he was doing that. That would have yeah. communicated something. Yeah. He needed to be like jamming, you know, play music with some obscure band, you know, and just with, with Tea Party, with Tea yeah. Party principality, <laughs> <or> principle. <laughs> uh, no government, and but Obama. Because, yeah, he tried right, to fit it back put into on a, the, put on a big afro and a mustache or something. <laughs> no, 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 not <laughs> Esmorvi. His mistake, Dave, was that he tried to keep government going an obsolete medium, and he said, we're going to make government a more relevant institution. He missed the point. We didn't want government. That was, the bureaucracy was not the government. The government was being president. He didn't know how to be president. <laughs> right. Now, what I was trying to do with the Afro right saying he was infiltrating the Tea Party and jamming at the rallies, right? <laughs> they would recognize him, so he'd have to get a beard and an Afro or something. <laughs> no, he'd embrace them. He no, that, would make him, that would make him so famous, though, eventually, if he did it for a few times, and then they found out, that's Obama. He says, oh, yeah, you know, I, I just knew if everyone would recognize me, it would get out of hand. No, this is how far gone. If Obama at the inauguration is talking, and a li- he had some kind of a device, so a lizard tongue came out of him, <laughs> and he didn't say nothing about it, that would create incredible uh, charisma. Coverage? <laughs> yeah, because all the young people say, wasn't that guy cool? Look what it is. They wouldn't take it seriously, right? So he'd, he'd satisfy the cynical ones, the satirical ones. He'd freak out the, uh, the ones who, no, he'd like the ones who were waiting for the aliens to show up. Good, the aliens have landed. They've taken over. Yeah, yeah, he could have yeah. covered it all. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, man. And never comment on it. Yeah, yeah, just, just let it slide. That's right. Let people speculate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, people would... That would have covered him for, the whole, for his whole presidency. That one move. Yes, that would be his icon. Uh, hey, Dave, Carol went on Wikipedia or someplace, and, and Dave Newfell images, there's the face, the beat-up face. That's what shows up for you, Dave. I know. I ignore it. 
Yeah, no, I think it's great. You should be proud of it. And when you become president, you know, wear it like a badge. <laughs> Well, more and more now, having uh, you know problems with police records and that kind of thing has not hindered mayoral candidates and uh, right. other ones. The public does not see it. That's why he's like, well, oh, he got busted for pot or he was drunk here. Well, how old was he? Twenty-three. Whatever. Yeah, that, that's where you, the outsider is the president or the politician. He's so yeah. out of touch with everything that the more alien he looks, the more appropriate he is. That's the, the key to well, Sarah Palin. People are scratching their heads that the old patterns don't work. Yeah. All the commentators are saying, oh, they got on the front page saying the case in Toronto. Rob Ford, you know, got busted in Florida, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then a week later, they're like, all the editors now are scratching their heads. The public doesn't care. He's even more popular. Yeah. Right? We don't get it. <laughs> yeah, the, literate, the whole literate meme, they can't get it. And, like, they don't understand Sarah Palin, who is, who is a pretty George Bush. Right. She yeah, gobbled she her. Has the same qualities. Yeah. She has what? She has the same qualities as he does. She yeah. acts all folksy and wink, wink, winky, wink. And, and gobbles her words. Things and relates to people that eat donuts and. Uh, and gobbles her words. Gone, she's gone one oh, a few steps further. Doesn't she have a reality television show? And oh you know. shit! I saw about fifteen minutes of it. Oh what, Dave, Dave, Dave! Don't freak. Oh, that's a bad. Yeah. Re- oh, I, we'll have to delete this. Newfield just yeah, lost his degree sorry. credential. Sorry, I, just <laughs> a, I, know, I just made a value judgment. <laughs> I'm sorry. Her show <laughs> really. Yeah, no, she's addressing the new pattern for sure. <laughs> 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 Definitely a new figure for a new crowd. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, that's that content that will always do you. Was the lead singer for Blood, Sweat, and Tears the second phase? David, somebody. Right, uh, he got pissed off. Yeah, yeah, the nineties. Big. Oh, get you some wild woman. We'll take you home. Now we don't feel that. What? You guys don't know real music, fuckers. Yeah, yeah. What was his name? Dave, somebody, or something? Or David Clayton Thomas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He was good. Yeah, and he couldn't get any work because he thought people required singing. He didn't know music was more than singing or not music. He didn't know the yeah. pop culture was there. And that well, was his... Personally, he'd say, my, my fucking technique has been rejected, and I fucking think my technique is hot shit. Yeah, actually, Dave, you've been aware of that dynamic because you could have taken a lot of things personally over the last five years, but you didn't, knowing that the environment was bigger than you. Yeah, well, this is stupid because and also no one fucking cares. Yeah, <laughs> nobody there. <laughs> on one level, on one level, it hurts. You know what I mean. Yeah. Personally, think no one cares. You then fuck. What does it matter? And that doesn't leave you feeling great on a certain yeah, level. Yeah. But then you can also use it as a very freeing thing. No one cares. Okay, then don't fucking spend your time worrying about it. Yeah. Mm, exactly. I like how you shift from objectivity to subjectivity, Dave. <laughs> well, Dave's Dave's a great quadrophenic. He, yeah. he, he did it. He did it with shortwave radio. 30 years ago. Exactly. I mean, you can hear, you can hear excerpts of Dave Shortwave radio career on uh, Bosme Ecology. The Bob album, that's yeah, right. I yeah. kept some of them because I, to me, that was pure art. Like, the Albanian Radio Toronto. I mean, they don't <laughs> exist. So to imagine, in 1986 and 87, to even then, for a Western to hear that, it's just like, oh my God, 
Bella Lugosi has a show. It's in black and white, and it, they just made it yesterday in Romania. <laughs> I've got to see this. this. They just could not, and this is not supposed to be at all ironic. This is like a real, genuine fucking artistic effort. Holy shit, man. These people have been cut off from the West. They're so lucky. I mean, that was a beautiful... That's, that's my answer when she went back to Czechoslovakia. She said, the one great thing about communism is they didn't fucking build anything. So subsequently, they just tore the odd thing down. And, and anything they did make was generally shitty communist architecture. They're just boring, like public housing kind of units. But generally, they didn't rip anything down. So they preserved all the architecture. There weren't all McDonald's. So you go back. And she said, my God, it looked the same as when I had left in 1936. Like, literally, like the same cobbles stones and the whole mm. shit and she goes that was kind of nice you know in Romania I'm sorry I think not in Romania that was because they just butchered the environment in Albania under him the, the same thing they kind of they kind of preserved it you know like kind of let it be untouched by modern development and from an architectural point of view or an archaeological point of view it's actually you know, it's kind of a kind of a bonus but that's your grandmother though coming back you discounted it in, in Toronto and watching yeah. the devastation. McClure made a film about the devastation of Ontario in the late 60s, I think with Jane Jacobs, where it's just images of destruction. Uh, you you know, mean, like there's the pollution of the wrecking the lakes and that sort Yeah, of and the building, the building craze and apartment buildings. There's a, there's yeah, a foot. Yeah. He comments on it in the cliche archetype, I think. But that, here's your grandmother from Europe and then lives in that in the 50s, 60s, and 70s and 80s, then goes back, the human scale, the actually old becomes archetypal in intensity. Yes, absolutely. And, and that is an effect. That is not perception. That is not a, an anti-environmental sense. That's just subliminal. And that's why the world went fundamentalist in so many levels. She's a fundamentalist for that old, old world. She didn't know it until she experienced it. Well, I love this. Why don't we save that? Well, could she have lived in the cobblestone zone at the time? No. Uh, you know, it would be too puny. Well, I mean, my, my grandfather stayed, so he didn't know any different. They asked him if he wanted to come to Canada, but he's like, no, I don't want to go. Was, uh, he, he was used to it. So I guess if you're in that environment, you don't notice it. No more than where I am. Most people don't notice the churches here because they've seen them their whole life, and they walk by them every day, so they don't even notice it anymore. But yeah. if you come from an environment where it's all McDonald's, and it's all been paved over, and every, all the old architecture has been ripped down except for the odd church and government building or bank building, then you suddenly go to this place where it is, and you're like, oh my God, we've, we've gone back in time to a culture all preserved. And it seems like this incredibly unique, fucking amazing thing to be able to do. I mean, even in Mexico, it had that appeal when I went down to San Miguel. You actually felt like you were back what it would have been like in 1850 when, you know, there still were streets and neighbors and people and, and, and public space. Public space and public sharing. Here's, public a, here's a pattern I was going to say back. When you were talking about the kids in the 50s, the car clubs, tinkering. And they kept their knowledge to each other. They were socially fragmented. So they went to a church, a Christian church or something, to, uh, to re, uh, reimagine integrated uh, community, unfragmented. So Christ Christianity was an image of, of uh, reunification in a fragmented culture where the kids would hide their knowledge from each other. Then you get into our time where the kids demand sharing on everything. Then the, the reunification role of Christianity doesn't work. What is the religion for uh, everything is assumed to be shared for the, the present generation, the religion would be to take a drug to retrieve a human scale or some kind of tribal dance tactility. Ayahuasca kind of thing, you mean? Yeah. 
or to do well, the weekend would, thing. In other words, that would be a religious experience to a new kid. They wouldn't think, oh, I'm going to go to the United Church and listen to the guy talk about Jesus necessarily. And in fact, the guy at the United Church isn't going to talk about Jesus anyways because he's going to try and tailor his message to be relevant to the kids. So he's going to talk about mm-hmm. the environment or helping people in Japan with the earthquake or something yeah. like that yeah. in order to try and engage these kids to get more interested. An image of sharing that doesn't work. The kids, their religion is to fragment. If they're all united in the clone DSP and used to sharing is a given, then the, then the way you, you go to, uh, un, to get in any environment to that, the way Christianity provided unification versus fragmentation, now you fragment by going into a truck and going off, as McClone said, Cape, Cape Canaveral caper. He said the twist was people going off in their own spaces. Yeah, or just wearing uh, headphones, Bob, wearing your iPod headphones. Right. So then you do it in the chemical body. That's why you could say in high school, many kids get addicted to the religious experience of the weekend. And it becomes so important that they lose their normal week-long function. So they become addicts to that because they become totally involved in the the palliative anesthetic of back, what is it, chemical, retrieve human bodies, that's more physical, but have your own space and hallucinate. But also have a, mi- a micro community. Wait, Dave just said that's a dominant theme of music. Everybody's working for the weekend. Lover Boy, 1981. Yeah. Everybody's working for the weekend. And though that kind of theme comes up every few years as a hit song, uh, they, uh, the culture gets reminded right. of the weekend. Well, that, that 14-year-old girl, that's what her old Oh, that's right, that's right. Rebecca Black. Friday comes, that's my space. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's the blues. Yeah. And you know, the one weekend. day my body's racked with pain Friday, but uh, Thursday my body's racked with pain, but the Friday flies the eagle, and so do I. <laughs> Stormy Monday blues? Yeah, that's just like a blues riff, you know. It's, uh, that's so, Stormy uh, Monday. Stormy Mo- Are you quoting Stormy Monday? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know it. Here's, here's, here's what you got. Then I, I see this pattern emerging. You've got... The whole blues music coming out of the black emancipation, and the music was sort of their form of emancipation and expression of the oppression that they were dealing with. Now you've got the whole public saying, we're dealing with the oppression of being in the work environment. So on the weekend, we are going to become emancipated. So it's appropriate that that it is still... They turn black. black, Let's turn black. Is still the dominant music. The black music has been now the music of most technological phases we've gone through, which is amazing to think. The yeah. soundtrack of the radio era, the soundtrack of the TV era, yeah. the soundtrack of the computer era. That's right. We all turn black on the weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, David Byrne got it wrong, turning Japanese. I guess that mm-hmm. would be talking yeah, about the Android yeah. meme or something. Well, talking well, I, read today, I read today they are tracing language, and they said they definitely feel for sure language originated in Africa. And the way they, and they, as the farther you, they talked about phonemes, P-H-O-N-E-M-E-S, and what are, I, you guys would know that more than I would, or certainly you, Bob, and Andrew would, would you, know those terms. Units of sound. Units of okay. sound. What they found in the tribes, the most remote ones in like the heart of Africa, they have about 500 of them. The farther away you go from that, the less you get. So by the time you get to, like, South America, you get about 27 of those phonemes or whatever. By the time you get up to, like, Germany and England, you get down to about 50 or 60 of those shared ones. But they all share, and that they all have the common sharing of these sounds that originate in Africa, and that they're, and the farther away you go from Africa, the less of those sounds you will see, but they'll still retain some of them. And they're saying that those are the origins of the speech, and that they feel that's about 125,000 years ago. Hmm. 
So what does that tell us about Africa? Well, it's like... Um, its influence uh, is permeating for, for fucking millennia. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, an interesting thing is, you know... The really oh, wait, a, a pattern change. But not yeah. when we go post-speech. That's why the blacks run the show in this whole discarnate 50-year period. Their culture is a reminder of the language world, which is annihilated by the Android meme. So they're the last Noah's Ark of speech. Yeah. 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 Someone else was just about to say something. Do you remember that? Yeah. That was good, Bob. Yeah, all, the, all, all the black musicians, especially percussionists and drummers, but generally all of the uh, musicians, they can can uh, vocalize their music, you know, whatever instrument they're, they're uh, showing someone, they'll, they'll always, you know, go, da ba da ba ba da you know, they can vocalize it, yeah. That's and they always. I've seen many interviews with Africans who say, if you can't do that, then you can't play. You know, no matter mm. what, you have to be able to. You so to they know song play. is slowed down speech. Yep. <laughs> you know, Louis Armstrong used to always say, uh, "If uh, if I can play it, I can sing it, and if I can sing it, I can play it." Yeah, that's right. Right, right. I had this you know, song on, about Louis Armstrong. I read that when he died, he smoked pot every day from about 1935 till he died. <laughs> and it's funny because I was introduced to Louis Armstrong to my parents. They had the Hello Dolly album, and I remember the cover looked intriguing with the red lettering and the sort of the thresholded black and white picture of him, and he had the big smile and his trumpet. And of course, you know, Hello Dolly is an incredibly charismatic song, and of course, his voice is like Jimmy Durante or something, so it's absolutely distinct. And, and of course, he's loved by everyone. And you know, when I remembered him seeing him on, like, not laughing, but some some kind of American variety shows occasionally, he would make appearance. He was he. I remember thinking he's such a groovy cat. Like he just walks to his own beat. He's just <laughs> his own man. He just seemed like such a god kind of thing. And then I realized he's stone, but no one realized he was stone. They just thought he's Louis Armstrong. He's a wild, <laughs> crazy dude. <laughs> you know, he, yeah. he, he, he was smoking. Of course, the pot wasn't as strong as what people are smoking now, I suppose. But he would probably have enjoyed that anyways. Yeah. So McCoon's definition of tactility where he says it doesn't have a color, but black is the appropriate image of the afterimage of tactility. You've had the, a, 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 the afterimage of anthropomorphic human-scale human inventions in the android mean period, and the blacks are the color of that. Hmm. That's, there's, there's a whole tactile reason uh, why the blacks are uh, the dominant anchoring position of human scale, and that's also the reason why I always claimed I was a black woman on the radio, because you had to be that even to make the game. So this whole thing of the, the blacks, tell that to black people, that they're an afterimage of tactility. That's why they're, they're well, right big. Too, cause you, you, I remember, Bob, you said in the past, you said that uh, marijuana adds tactility to acoustic space. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then LSD adds cinematic movie levels to a, a little bit of tactility, but a little more cinematic. Then hair, right. And then McClune pointed out in his review of Burroughs that junk, that heroin goes beyond LSD because it makes you take on the whole universe instantly. You wear the whole universe. LSD is too cinematic. doesn't do that. Mm. You jack into the whole thing. It's Web 2.0 back in the 50s. Mm. Yeah, but that doesn't, they don't want that now. If they're like, uh, totally jacked in, then we're looking at something that uh, would uh, promote that fragmentation. Yeah, what, what I hear from someone telling me, someone who's in touch, uh, maybe it was Jen, was telling me that the kids that she sees today are very 
Noah's Ark, they want to preserve literacy. They want to preserve all the old Western things. They're fundamentalists of, our, of the uh, pre-Android mean technologies or something. They're actually a new kind of conservative. Dude, i got to come in with this little anecdote. I read today that there's a dying language. I didn't read the details, but the fucking headline was hilarious. Dying language is about to die because the last two people who speak it hate each other. <laughs> 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 they refuse to communicate. <laughs> so it, it's that's, what, that's what they said in the Africa article. That's what happens when you, when you go off and you have a tribe and you're having conflict in the tribe and you've got your little unit and your supporters and eventually six or seven you go, fuck it, man. I don't want to be dominated by them. So you split and you go off 50, 60 kilometers away and if you're lucky and survive, suddenly you start and your kids, they copy the way you say the language and you don't use certain words that they use. So all of a sudden... Later on, you meet those, your old tribe again, and you can't even understand half of what they're saying because you mutate the language, and that's, they're saying that's you know, inevitably how, how language shifted. As tribes splintered, the, the old words would get dropped, and other ones would get emphasized, and new ones would get added on. Yeah, if you think of our image of Africa over the last couple of decades of warring, you know, slicing each other up, now, if you, if, you, if you decide it's not the CIA causing that or some top-down bureaucratic mind, or tribal screwing, uh, if it's a collective effect, the, 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 the devastation in Africa on the human scale, little kids, you know, in 12-year-old armies killing anybody, um, that would be an expression of the raw uh, basic roots where we came from having a crisis under the squared tactility we're in. The Andor meme has squared tactility. What goes on in Africa is not due to poverty or anything. It is, ta- it is the original tactile impulse that speech came out of, you know, going through its Armageddon. Hmm. Wow. Now, that's hmm. the kind of way McClune would look at these things. You know, he came up with a totally out-of-the-box view hmm. beyond human sentiment or human political correctness or any kind of ideology. He, right, right, right. he talked technically like a scientist. Right. That was a scientific... But you said that right now, it's... It's hard for me, and I think uh, other people do in participating in this, to immediately come back and match with that or just to really know how to respond. That, that's something that I personally would have to digest a bit and hear repeated and see how it fits into other patterns for that to really sink in. That, that it, but there could be definitely something to it. Yeah, and, and you could say McLuhan, as a, as a verbal artist, he would say things to stop people chattering, to getting them thinking. Uh, yeah. Scott Taylor pointed out that Marshall said to him that the anti-environment is thinking. So he would get people to shut up by saying things that they couldn't get their heads around. Yes. At least for a while. So that was yeah. just... Well, a, well that, So that would be his puny gestures he said he made, puny gestures, but he knew the orchestration of the environments on the technological level being beyond speech. He would have done that too if he was given a chance. So is Scott Taylor still here? No, I guess he's gone. Uh, is there anybody else? I mean, who's lurking here? Uh, who, who would like to speak? Nobody's lurking, but it's Sheila here. I joined in about 10 minutes ago. You didn't hear me come in, apparently. No, good. Uh, Sheila, well, you want to rehear this when you get a chance. Really good first couple hours. A lot of relevant stuff to what you were into. Yeah, I. oh, is that right? I do have yeah. a comment about the uh, kids, you know, trying to yeah. hang on to language and you calling them the new conservatives. Something that I noticed over the last couple of decades is that um, when something is disappearing, that's when people pay attention to it, like in, uh, in uh, uh, folk art and popular stuff that people used to uh, collect around their houses. 
Um, remember when loons were popular? Yeah. Uh, so uh, people would uh, they're not they're not popular anymore. But loons uh, and ducks. But you know about you mean like uh, something you put on your mantle? twenty twenty thirty years ago, people were collecting loons, you know, and then they were collecting cows. And now they're collecting chickens and roosters and things like that. And I noticed that it was, you know, it's the sure sign that something's dying out when people start collecting them, you know. And so people right. are trying to hang on to it. The only way they can hang on to it, it's not available in the regular environment very much anymore. Like for the cows, uh, people would want that because it's the disappearance of cows even from the countryside and things like that they're, they're not as available to people anymore well who are these people who collect this you're talking about suburban middle class people who does this yeah just in regular you know regular homes these things would be around are these like so it was little statues or something like this i don't, I don't uh, yeah what... loons it would be um you know people would have carved loons stamps uh, by the way if you go to an estate sale no one will buy stamps because kids aren't into stamps anymore they're just like, it's like they're all just old people. It's weird. It's like they can't generate a new sensibility to revive that kind of thing. So some of them, some of these things will just sort of fade out. Like, I don't know if Royal Dalton, China will, but I know basically from going to auctions, even furniture. For instance, I furnished my place for absolutely next to nothing with all old Victorian furniture. Reason is, no one likes that big old heavy stuff. Most people live in condos now. They want, at the only older furniture now that goes for premium is like, Denmark and stuff made in the 60s with very slim line, clean lines, and that it's weird. And, and so all that stuff is like, yeah, you can just get it literally like you can get what would have been in 10 years ago a $2,500 big cabinet. You can get it for 100 bucks because no one else wants it. No, but that, that, that's exactly what McLuhan would watch is trends and any kind of artifacts mm-hmm. in that. The thing is, would anybody want to do what McLuhan does now because there's so many micro nano trends going on who'd uh, who'd want to know he was like the last pattern watcher uh, when there was a sense of community and we need to know where we're going and look these artifacts go through changes every 30 years or 10 years because of media that's an insight relevant to then but why would anybody care what the trends are what what is the trend that people are interested in now what the trend function If you go to eBay and you see most popular searches, I bet you it's iPod, <laughs> cell phone, um, I don't know. The latest know. stuff. Yeah. I think, I Maybe think I'm wrong. I, I should do that. I think it's, it's well, there are, a lot of trend, there are a lot of trend watchers. Do you know about Faith Popcorn, Bob? Yeah, oh, yeah. No, she, she yeah. came in on the McLuhan revival in the early 90s. Yeah. She's, she's still doing her work. Yeah, and who's her audience? There, there, a lot of people. She cocooning, didn't she? She did yeah. that thing. Yes, yeah, I think and so. then she went from cocooning. She went on to some. I think she went on to clicking. That was the whole computer thing. And yeah, I it's like who is her audience? You know, the the CIA uh, most, you know, Gallup polls or polling is based on getting trends. That is what McLuhan called the anticipatory democracy, and most of the consultant work was doing stuff like that. Okay, so, well, who would who would pay attention to hers would be business people because they want to know where the markets are going. Trends. Yeah. Older media environments. Older media mm. environments have to figure out whether their media is relevant to anybody anymore. So they so, hire people like them, and then the governments do it for their own na- national purposes. But are we at a point now where no one cares about what anything's doing because nobody has a vested interest in any older environment? Yes. 
that's the question. No, everyone is trying to always get a lock on what's going on, well, whether it's I, on Twitter or anything. Where's the audience? I, the advertisers are highly concerned. Yeah, it's, we're so sped up and we're we're shifting all the time. And there's nano, micro, macro communities, uh, and you can be involved in multiple uh, communities yeah, at, yeah. at one time. Whereas, hmm, let's say. Seven years ago, it, you'd probably stick to one type and specialize in it, you know, especially on the Android mm-hmm. meme. Yeah. <clears throat> Whereas now, and nowadays, you know, you, could do, you can do any, everything. You know, you can, right. So how does that relate to me? Take that phenomenon, Dave, and what's, that, what's music to you? Or what is, what's a trend of music? I would say how that relates that the rocker guys that look like Led Zeppelin are doing house music and hmm. embracing it and enjoying it is completely valid and it seems like so inappropriate. Those guys would never like that music, let alone dress like the rockers. <laughs> and yet they're hey, embracing hey. it wholeheartedly. What? Hey, check this out. The, um, uh, last, yes, Coachella, the festival in California that just mm-hmm. ended uh, yesterday, was being tweeted live and YouTube was streaming every stage live. There were three stages. So oh. you could have logged on YouTube and watched the entire event without paying for it. It mm-hmm. was great. So I'm, I was on it. I was watching uh, Coachella without being there because I'm on the East Coast, obviously. And Broken Social Scene played, right? Yeah, they do, so, do a good set. And, and they did, so, I'm, so check this out. It's three yep. windows. So you have three stages you could choose from. And then when you go yep. to stage three, you see the other two on the, you know, of what's going on there. And then you can click on that, and that will become active. So you're just clicking yep. around stage to stage. Yep. So I watch Broken Social Scene. I'm like, oh, Bob always talks about Dave Newfield. Let me check these guys out. And now here you yep. are, right? <laughs> right? So, so now in my, in my environment, with, in my Twitter, YouTube techno environment that I'm living in, you were just delivered via an information feed that was, you know, analog, experiential, and digital. Like, here I am talking to you, right? So, so it's very ironic in my in, – but what I wanted to say about trending topics is broken social scene was trending all day yesterday because of this. So if you went to Twitter and you, you would see the hashtag broken social scene is playing live. Mm. Oh, I'm watching broken social scene. Oh, I'm doing this. So there would be, you know, thousands in real time. As they were watching yeah, yeah, yeah. a YouTube video and also Like there's 50,000 people there, and then like how many other hundreds of thousands of people? Like so way huger than Woodstock. Exactly. And then, then this happened at the end when Kanye West. Now, and I wanted to bring this up because you were talking about blackness, and I was thinking, wow, Turning Japanese, Bob said, what if there was a song called Turning Black? And I thought to myself, hold on a second, what would that even be called, right? Because you have Orientalism which is obviously, you know, orientalizing, right? But then what would you call turning black or taking something and turning that black? Would that be orientalizing blackness? And then it occurred to me that, hold on, Kanye West, uh, who's an act that I don't necessarily like, but he's this new voice of this Generation Y, and he talks about how he's a douchebag, and he makes anthems about that, that people love and they cry over, Right, right. Was, was 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 playing during broken social scene. So I kept on going from Dave Newfeld, Android meme, Bob Dobbs world to Gen, Gen Y orientalizing blackness, black renaissance, mystery body world, and I'm going back and forth. And then, and it was terrible, guy. If you could see Kanye West's performance at Coachella, it was te- awful. But they would, really? yeah, his his voice. Where, you know, you could hear the breathing, like there was mucus in his throat. So in between the in the resonant pauses between his lyrics, you would hear the inhale of the mucus, and his it was disgusting. It was the worst <laughs> music. The guy he he can't even hold a note. 
forget about forget about being like a fabulous singer. Forget about being able to articulate. Forget about casting Beefheart even. Kanye West <laughs> is worse than the worst worst. Okay, I mean, so why is popular then? He makes so, killer well, singles. Yeah. No, because he discusses abuse value. He puts himself out as a douchebag. That's where you begin. His music, he does have his, he has tracks out there that have been undeniable hits that resonate with people for a few months, and then he's done that enough times that he's I know, but established what, what, himself. The question I'm asking is, what is the, what is the substance? Okay, they're popular. Why are they popular? Yeah. What's his image? What in image is he reflecting? Well, on a musical level, I would say actually his songs are melodically rich. He's in that mm-hmm. some ways he doesn't come across like that at Coachella in the studio. Yeah. He's the Stevie he's Wonder very, of his time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So he's not he's any good in the chemical body. He's no, got a good chip body. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's more of a producer. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, now. Um, yeah, celebrity, obviously. Yeah. Now, Apit, uh, you. Uh, you didn't like what he sang and how he sounded. That's the chemical body. But did you know that he had hits and sounded good in his chip music? Well, <clears throat> that's been my area of contention for the last 10 years, being part of this generation and being told that Kanye West is this, you know, fabulous personality and hearing it and saying and disagreeing. I don't even the recorded stuff I'm not too into, you know, but that could be my own subjective opinion. Yeah, yeah Although, yeah. You're saying yeah. you don't, you never liked his music. I, I no, or you never blown away. away. I was never blown away. The way he delivers his raps is very West Coast gangster. I mean, it seems like he came from a different part of town than I did. How, how's uh, that? I, I think he added <laughs> what Dave said. Yeah, but see, you're, you're looking for yourself in your entertainment. See, yeah, you're looking exactly. for yourself. Right, okay, I see. Mm, yeah, yeah, subjective. But I think he added... Uh, this melodic uh, feel to, to rap music, which wasn't really there, and it was it was new, and so that was crossed big. over. Yeah, that just made him huge. And nice, I like some of the piano chords in, in his music. Like it's actually yeah. good. Well, you know, is he sampling? So he's sampling, taking yeah. music from like cool eras where people really could play. So he's taking rich well, material to stuff. So he, he, he has an ear. Stuff. Well, instance, well I tell you a story about him. What's yeah. what? He took Sorry, Evangelist, char- the Chariots of Fire, a lot. Da, 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 yeah. Sampled right? that. He would, he sure, that. he would make that into a smash hit if he, if he did no, it right. He did, that's what he did last night. That was, it started off with Chariots of Fire, and then he came yeah. out with, with 17 ballerinas behind him. <laughs> I mean, so, I Dave, tell us the story, Dave. <laughs> well, Dave, I know. Dave, Dave is a story. You, this is, uh, but I won't name the producer, but I just say, like, if if Basically, this guy, he would say, there's no way I would ever fucking let Conway West hear uh, um, a a recording of uh, something that I've done and haven't yet released. Because he will hear it, and if it's any good and I've done something innovative, he will go... And he will do it even better and put it out before mine goes out. So mine will have a pale imitation copy of his. No. He's ruthless. He's ruthless. So he's a chip body. He assumes, subsumes everything. Well, I, I remember James Brown had said, uh, uh, um, Jerry Fialka, your friend Jerry Fialka, yeah. Frank Zappazoff, he had said that Jay, he told me a James Brown story. He said, James Brown, when he'd go out on tour, he would stop in the towns, and, you know, when you go backstage, there's some of the local people or musicians that, you know, want to meet you and all that. And 
when guitar players would come there, musicians, he would say to them, show me your best riff you can play. Oh, my hmm. God. Show me your best guitar riff. And, of course, they weren't going to show him shit because it's James Brown, the godfather of soul, so they're going to show them probably the most innovative <laughs> thing they've ever <laughs> come up with. He's like, and he'd watch them play it and listen to it and go, that's nice, thank you. <laughs> 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 if I want to use that, I will. If not, I'm not. So that's how he's... I know, brilliant. <laughs> I don't know how where the thread is going on that. But yeah, no, no. So you got Kanye West. I didn't know he was uh, come from the hood. Right, we're talking about. But look, look at his image. That, yeah. He's he's this a, is a big producer who's he, done like. No, no, no. His image. He's a country. gangster who has a heart because he's known for criticizing Bush in the New Orleans flood. That's where he got a big, where he got his popularity or his image. He came out uh, and no. pleaded at Bush. For Bush to do something for uh, the people, the blacks in New Orleans in 2005. Um, that's he definitely got a lot of coverage from doing that, but he was already a, a you know a popular figure. But he was a gangster. Was he part of gangster music? No, no, he never so much had the. No, that wasn't his vibe. Was not so much gangster. That was the thing. His okay, so he's an anti environment to that. He he was a hip hopper who was who was had community aware that he was uh, looking like he cared for people. Where no, people, no, I don't think he's expressing that. I just think in his music it was a little more fun. It was a little closer to Stevie Wonder or more ambitious, uplifting, exhilarating progressions and horns and orchestras and funky beats. He brought in quote music. He brought in music. Which is that I think Andrew was saying that uh, earlier. Yeah, he quoted music. Andrew or James, I, I forget who was speaking. He quoted the old music, melody or whatever. The the the, the cliches of fifties and sixties music. He quoted that. Quoted all music, 70s music. Yeah, he just brought back some strong musicality and melody, and the raps were cool too. And people heard it, and they just couldn't deny it. And that's that was about 2006 or so, or that graduation yeah. day or whatever, the first one. You know, yeah. so, I can't, my, I can't even keep up with all the things that my chart predicted. He did the decade dance in hip hop culture. He did Quadrophenia. He did the different quoting from decades, which is what the Andromeme charts about. Mm-hmm. Who does that today? Does Lady Gaga do that today? What is she doing? Um, good question. Any, anyone want to take that? Well, she she wants to show that she's on show she's showbiz twenty four seven wherever she's wherever environment it's a put on. Right, that's, she that's, says that. She says that's right. I'm here to, for business. I don't even have sex because that distracts me from what I need to do. And my <laughs> job is to wow and entertain you and be a star. Wherever I am, in an airport, going through customs, <laughs> yeah. she, she understands it's this nightclub without walls. Yeah. The world's a nightclub without walls. I mean, that could be the last gasp of the entertainment anesthetic. It's someone, panic, it's panic entertainment anesthetic. She's trying to say that everything is entertainment. And you've got to be, if you're an entertainer, you've got to perform 24-7 because it's disappearing. I've yeah, just discovered true. a major pattern there, Dave. I hope you noticed that. that that's a good uh, one. Another thing about these young American women, uh, we have Christina Aguilera, we have Lady yeah. Gaga, uh, uh, who are a couple of the other ones. Um, I'm thinking of she's more of an actress than she is. Lindsay Lohan, or is it uh, who's the one who sings? Lindsay Lohan, and there's one more. And the thing that I'm trying to figure out is I look at them, and they're Britney Spears. You think? She's an actress. Uh, yeah. Maybe <laughs> Britney. Actually. Yeah, Britney Spears, but there's another one in there. I forget exactly yeah. who it is. Uh, anyway, they're, they're, Katie they're, Perry. No. They Miley are. Cyrus. Uh, Miley Cyrus. Miley Cyrus. That, that's another one who's like massive. Anyway, the interesting yeah. thing that is happening is that they have all achieved 
uh, superstardom very early. I guess Paris Hilton would be in the same category. Uh, they've achieved the superstardom, but at the same time, they seem to be publicly self-destructing, and I'm not sure how long their light is going to shine. And it's their bad behavior, the booze and... That, that, see, they're chip body phenomena who become instant just by, for whatever absurd reason, they killed their mother or something, so they become famous, and then they must show the abuse of the chemical body and its social space. That's the reason. They're showing you what Dave was the prophet of, the bashed-in face. When you become popular, you must show that the, the public chemical body space is an area of a ghetto and a place of abuse. That's what they show. They don't care about or, their chemical body. Or also their chemical body and body as a place of abuse is expressing the fact that they're celebrities in a world of insane image turnover and it is all kind of an illusion. And so if they're playing that, imagine Lady Gaga, I'm going to turn that on 24-7. I don't even have time to have sex. This is a very fucking focused thing I need to do. That, yeah. that is not... So yeah, that, imagine she, trying to maintain and sustain that in a world where people are waiting for Twitter and MySpace and Facebook. Yeah, she's panic TV spectacle. She's, t- she's communicating to the news images. To the uh, yeah, she's she's t- panic TV body part of the entertainment complex, and I have a story for Paris Hilton. Uh, Carol and I on New Year's Eve were driven to a party in a local cab, and uh, somehow she came up, and the cab driver says, "Yes, I had Paris Hilton today." Okay, what was that like? Well, five years ago I had her, and she urinated in the back seat, wow. <laughs> and she didn't urinate this year. Oh my that was gosh. an improvement. Right. Oh my gosh. Right. I said, how did you experience that? She said, I was, um, she sat in the back seat and had her boyfriend, this was five years ago or something, we're driving along, and then I heard the sprinkling water, whatever. She heard the sound, you know, going down, I guess, her, the girl's leg and uh, into the floor of the back seat area. She heard it. And, and I don't, I don't know if Carolyn can remember, I don't think, uh, she didn't, didn't call her to it. She didn't, uh, she just let her go. Oh, my goodness. Uh, but, but that I was back when she was alcoholic, apparently, you know, and yeah. acting up all over the place. Well, this is the thing, though. This is the thing, is that they seem to be doing really well. Like Christina Aguilera, for instance, I'm really disappointed because I think that she is so talented. And now she seems You're to so be disappointed. <laughs> there was hope for a while for Sheila. <laughs> no, listen. No, listen. Just let me tell you. Uh yeah, I think that she is incredibly, um, you know, talented, and yet she's blowing herself out. Uh, like she's, yeah, she's she's going down the road of these other people. And the thing is, is that I want to understand is why is that? So maybe you can explain. Uh, we explain. I've been explaining for 15 years. The five body point. It's it's yeah, look. I, th- these people I, become famous, and they're in the in the TV spectacle. So they have to go private and disappear in the bubble. Okay, they have to disappear. They have to be bodyguards and all that. So then they don't have a social life. So they can't, they're still young. They still want to interact with chemical bodies. So they get so screwed up in that situation because their TV body has usurped their chemical body social life that that's going to cause pain right there. And McClune pointed out that happened to Hollywood celebrities back in the 30s. When you go discarnate, you lose your local scale. So a young kid, and he said in the 60s, he watches kids every year. There's a couple of kids killed by, the, by fame. That would be okay. Dylan and John Lennon in his mid-60s. So that's going to happen to these kids. And they now, though, are not in a family situation. They can destruct in public. It's a statement of rage at, at the fate that they got duped by. It's right. rage that I can't return to my chemical body. I mean, yeah, my chemical body. So then they somehow act out the abuse of it. 
They actually yeah. show you what has happened to my chemical body. I cannot find it again. Right. You just told the story of Kurt Cobain. That's the yeah. story of Nirvana. Yeah. That's a fabulous um, explanation. Bob. And so, Bob. Blow up in public. <laughs> Bob, That's right. Jen. Yeah, it's Jen. Jen. Diary. The diary. It's all like a diary on Facebook. It's like before you didn't you put your private thoughts in your diary and you hoped your parents didn't look at it and no one would see it. And if you ever showed it to anyone, it would just be someone you really trusted, not your own thing. Now you have Facebook and that. And you, and that's you showing your, you're showing your, your chemical body. Out, well, if your parents want to find out what you're doing, they can go to Facebook and they'll probably find, okay, that's what they've been up to. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> right. Because they, so, they, so it's weird blurring of the private and public. Oh, the and chemical and the, and, the pub, and the chip because they are saving face by having a, a scenario that reports on their chemical body activities. They're trying to save the chemical body by having an image of it and, and tell all exactly. the content. Well, check this out, actually. It's, it, I, it, for sure. Not, now I'm looking at this thing I saw. Um, with, basically, I saw this thing on a uh, statistic that in Britain they had done a survey that 25% of people admit they posted a photo or personal information they wouldn't want an employer to see, and 40% do not actively protect the person. Well, it doesn't matter, but more than half of British adults are so concerned about their online reputation that they would erase everything they have ever posted on the internet about themselves, a survey today revealed. A staggering 35% believe they could never consider a career in politics due to damaging personal <laughs> Okay, Jen, Jen has come yeah. in. I want to acknowledge Jen. Jen, uh, right. let Dave finish. The last little, I, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead, Dave. You finish. I just wanted Jen to, uh, she's next in line. Yeah, basically just that the erosion of the private identity, I think, and, and we were saying that just a second ago, or I forget who said it, but uh, I'll just paraphrase it. Yeah, the, you've got the erosion of the private identity caused by these technologies and that are shifting also the boundaries of public and private space. And so the diary is like the act of rubbing together an interaction, a new sensory life, and, and that basically is expressed in the Twittering. Right. Being suicide on air to so, the audience. Yeah, so Dave, McLuhan said in the, thir- in the 60s that the baby boomers would discover books in their 30s and 40s because they'd have, by that time have developed a private identity and then they'd be interested in the medium that enhances that. Well, we'd have to update that. The young kids are on Facebook. They don't know they have a chemical body. But when you're older and have responsibilities and a job in that with your chemical body, then you remember how the embarrassing content you put out as a kid when you didn't know you had a chemical body. Right. Exactly, you didn't know the ramifications yeah. of the chemical body. So it's not just the, the, the present kids, chip body kids, do not discover books at 30. They discover their chemical body at 30. Right, right. <laughs> and so we're for a band. I put on tattoos, I guess, as a response yeah. to the immediate environment. So, Jen, I know Jen has something to say. Yeah, no, I was just, I was just kind of listening, and, and it's interesting because it seems like you're almost applying the same result to different circumstances. So, like, if you look at sort of uh, 70s, 80s kind of punk, right, it's fuck you, excuse me, my language, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, it's very much like, okay, we're not going to follow the old rules. We are breaking out. We are doing all this stuff. We don't care how we do it, but we're giving everyone a big fuck you. And yet the kids today, in, in a sense, what you're saying is, like, they're, they're doing a similar kind of thing, but they're doing it in a way that matches the chaos right now. Yeah. They, so they actually show not, chaos. They, they, they mime, you could yeah. say that the Lizzie Lohan purposely show chaos because when people, Buzz Cozen said, the young kids, when they do YouTubes, they're purposely all messy and scattered, mm. their YouTubes. Mm. 
because I don't, I don't know that it's that they're real, suddenly realizing their chemical bodies. I think it shows a bit of a generational difference in how we're analyzing the problem. Because I think maybe those of us who kind of remember, you know, sort of 80s, 90s, like, you know, the whole punk transition into the sort of skate punk, into the I'm going to get fucked up on every drug possible and just be an asshole and not be like my parents, right? It's a lot different for the kids nowadays. Yeah, well, I show my I show my chart that Elvis he goes on TV and wiggles his hips. Mm-hmm. Then twenty years, and then the hippies go on and they declare love, the emotion of multitude. And then the punks go on TV and they swear, you know, the late seventies. It's like well, even each Elvis one got fat on drugs. You know what I mean? Like even Elvis yep. fell apart as it progressed, like from fifties, sixties, and then into the seventies. Yeah, nobody, as McLuhan said back, you know, in the 50s, that he would not uh, wish the queen for a day. That was the term in the 30s for a movie queen, queen for a day. He said he wouldn't wish the queen for a day syndrome or phenomenon on a dog. Mm-hmm. But he was rare. Most people want to live in the new environment and be in the movies. Yeah. They didn't look at the effects. Well, and, you know, in the idea, I think it was Dave that brought up this, uh, this article about, about British adults, this survey. And it's interesting because, I mean, this thing called web suicide, I think it's websuicide.com or something like that, it is available, like where it will take the laborious task away from you of having to actually go in and, and delete your sort of labyrinthine presence online. Right. Right. You can just plug everything in and say, yo, delete me, that's it, I'm done. <laughs> just like people would do that when they get out of prison they'd go to like some John Howard Society and they would help them go and get their records erased and pardoned sure. <laughs> it's, sure. and, and yet in this place these people haven't been arrested for anything <laughs> self-incriminating behavior as totally. a result of the response to the environment yeah now Dave who the heck is preserving community standards that nobody can live with in four bodies you know I mean who, who, what is being preserved what is being preserved? Yeah, that you have to uh, match up to and, and erase your previous record. What What is it? <laughs> uh, what is being preserved is to be uh, free of discrimination. No, no, I meant what is being preserved by the authorities, the people, I guess, the employers, who who demand the clean employees. It's they so have un- the right to discriminate against someone that they didn't want them, and that would be a pretext. So I guess. More so it's an example. They're expressing power. So everybody is clean up image because they know there's some asshole out there who's gonna that you're gonna compete with, who's gonna use the information against you. So that's espionage warfare. Yes, yes. Everybody's a spy. Which is, I guess, part of the pattern recognition and, and trail that you leave and the trail that is investigated in, in this current realm. And in the past, they would have researched you some other way, talking to your neighbors or something, find out the dirt on you. Yeah, but what is the, what is the standard other than willful, just willful, okay, you did this, I'll pretend somebody cares that you did all that stuff and I'll report because, it to the boss because, and you'll get fired. Because in the technology now that you've seen with the online porn and all that, that, that you've seen this pattern, and McLuhan said it, is once you don't have a body and don't have that identity, you behave in a total different way, and then when it catches up with your chemical body, but again, the public's changed, so now people, are, people don't care. People will post pictures of themselves online with no clothes on, and they don't care if their neighbors uh, okay, see it. Okay, <laughs> yeah, now, now Dave, here, here's where you bring in McLuhan, uh, and then we build or go around it, but he said that what Watergate showed was that what was considered back back dealing was normal in the understood in society not a problem but when tv came in the public image of yourself was way more important than what you did in private vice so he said the back dealing that watergate represented and was accepted up till watergate before the tv effect now your public space and your image you had to have a pure guy in the white house 
so that the, the purity shifted to the public image, not what you did privately. And, and Which why? Did it with Jimmy Carter. Yeah, then Jimmy Carter tried to do that. His image was an outsider, a, a, not a Bible-thumping Christian, but a Christian and a nice... Holier-than-thou, Zappa said. He was a, had the image of holier-than-thou. Zappa said uh, Carter's image was holier-than-thou. So the, right. the, the point is, McLuhan said that what private vices were understood before television. Then the whole integrity level went to, you have to have public charisma, and there was no ethics in anybody's private life. But when you enter the global theater on the TV landscape, you've got to have a sparkling image. And McLuhan said that nobody could live an ethical life in the, 40s, in the 50s and 60s because of the discarnate effect. Right. And that was also the, the public's expression of demanding public morality in terms of the environment and that. Yeah. Girls out and drives cars and dumps solvents down the drain. Yeah. Ashtrays and garbage into the fucking... Yeah, you had to be present for the TV landscape, and you had to have a pure background for that. So that now everybody the chip body. What happens now? Now it's not the same. What what are the how would you characterize that now? How does how does public morality? Well, George Bush maybe is a symbol of that. He they didn't want to go into his drafting. It's actually because the president and by the 2000 people realized it was a victim to be a president. It was like no one would want to be president. You have to do a lot of shit. So you had, to, you had to accept the fact that someone was willing to be the tribal martyr and be president, so you didn't, you didn't acknowledge that he evaded the draft or that he was an alcoholic and all that. He's just a nice enough guy to try to be president. And on top of that, he's so nice he won't even tell us anything about himself or say anything. And then Obama takes it even further. He's not even an American. He was born in Indonesia. You know what I mean? That's, nobody wants to be president, any sane person. I remember years ago, Lee Iacocca, because remember he was popular in the, uh, in the 80s with Chrysler and uh, supposedly saving the company. And uh, remember they had said, you know, he wrote a book and they said, well, you're a popular dude, big American figure, you know, well known by the public. We're thinking of running for president. He goes, oh, God, no, that's a horrible job. I could not yeah. want that. <laughs> Are yeah. you kidding? That'd be horrible. My, I'd lose all my hair and that'd be awful. And, and because being a millionaire is normal today, uh, you take a pay cut. If you're a successful citizen who has earned the right, the honor to become president, you take a pay cut because most of those people are billionaires. Right. Or you parlay that into making money after you leave office. And, and so then right... That, and you set up the... Yeah, you, I mean... Oh, well, you don't need to do that anymore. You take, you take the pay cut. I mean, Maury Strong, he would go and work for Hydro for a dollar a year. He didn't care about the salary. He didn't right. want to get He wanted the intelligence. He represented a certain faction. But you got Donald Trump right now insulting Obama one day, then praising him next day. He's acting out the, quad, the quadrophenia right there. Oh, really? Eh? I haven't been totally far. I just know that he's come on the scene and he's questioning his birth, and that's all I've heard. What, 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 what's going on He, he said I'm one day, he said, Obama's the worst president in history, and then every, they get a lot of flack for that, and he said, no, no, I meant Bush was the worst president in history. <laughs> so, so you know, no, you know what, then he's creepy in the sense that what he's trying to do is he's, uh, he's reading the polls and finding out on all this message isn't working, so he's doing the opposite. No, no, he's doing all messages. On, on Monday, he's a right-winger. Tuesday, he's a left-winger. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to fly or if that's going to annoy everybody. And he's just gonna see no, you know why it's going to fly? Because uh, he, he's stupid enough to want to be president. Everybody's standing back and left. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have to come up with a new wrinkle and be as crazy as possible. But overall, everybody's saying, no, you go. You do it. You, you be president. I, don't, I, don't, I can't even get time to be president. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't have time and money. Obama, uh, last week Obama said that he really misses a walk in the park. He was talking about, 
I wish I, I just don't have the ability to walk around Central Park. And, so he's talking about his own glasses and like mustache and beard, and he's all ready to go. Well, apparently he can't. The security runs him. He has, you know what I mean? He the day he's right. not he's not his own man because he'd be in trouble if he got killed. Yeah. So he when you become president, you give up your rights as a human being to represent yeah. a country of freedom. <laughs> yeah, rather do it. Rather be the president of fucking Nicaragua or fucking Costa Rica. That might be a little more slack. Yeah, like Castro. That's the secret to Castro's charisma. He he's he's been running it, you know, in a poor country, running it and having his own life and many mistresses, and he doesn't have to worry about any coverage. Yeah. That's right. There's no oil there. Nothing for anything. <laughs> <laughs> and he get on. He can rant for five hours on the TV station. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know what? He, I, well, no, I won't bring it up. Yeah. Okay. Sheila or somebody, you want to bring up another point or Jen? Mm, oh, just I was just um, curious about the uh, the tattoo thing. Um, sort of going back to I think Dave brought it up before. Sort of saying that um, is is it? Am I understanding correctly? You think the tattoo is still kind of like this. Uh, protest slash identity alter okay what i have direct experience with tattoo culture i walk along you know in front of the beaches every day mm-hmm. and i am shocked at, at the tattoos on americans every every tat every person is covered with tattoos that's my experience in america and now here in hawaii it, mm-hmm. the average like just uh, they look like nice, fat Christian people. You know, your normal Midwestern, dumpy, plumpy. Uh, got a job somewhere, is doing, got enough money to come to Hawaii. They got tattoos all over them. It's mm. like my mother would be would would kill herself if she walked along this beach. It's mm. a shocking, disgusting <laughs> tattoo reality. It is, it is amazing. Mm. Uh, you know, I never saw it in New York because everybody has their clothes on, but everybody takes their clothes off here, and everybody's got incredible tattoos. Yeah, like I, I just think that it doesn't relay information anymore, like the way it used to. Um, and yeah, no, it's it's a cliche. So it well, it was a sign of, to me, I, I used to say the tattoo represented as you moved into Quadrophenia, you got four bodies. You'd acknowledge the TV body with a tattoo, and you acknowledge the chip body with a little stud in your cheek mm-hmm. or ear or someplace. Mm-hmm. The, the little that, crystal. How about this too? Is it acknowledging dropping out while you're still in? And, and yeah. Well, yeah, but. And, I, and, and, yeah, that's. I think that's the tradition. Because when they first started, remember, I remember as a kid. Imagine yeah. when you're growing up in, in the late '60s and '70s. I remember my dad, and he would say this for many times, enough to burn my brain. He said, as we got older, my brother and I, he goes, "If you either you guys ever get a tattoo, you're no longer living under my roof." Yeah, and, and it was said, a big deal for the World War II was, generation. And he said, "The only tattoo, exactly." He said, the only tattoo that is acceptable on anybody is a war tattoo and nothing else. Because <laughs> my grandpa, my, well, my mom's on my grandpa. Yeah, I go, because grandpa has a tattoo on my mom's side. He goes, that's a war tattoo. That's, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> but, but the only people that had tattoos in, in that realm, seriously, in that day, were people that had dropped out of high school. And Hell's Angels. Hell's Angels. Well, kind of, it really was a sign of people that had like dropped out of regular society. Like junkies. So it's interesting. So people now hide it on their ankle or on their yeah. shoulder. So it's kind of like an expression, I think, of, of the weekend and the weekday. Yeah, yeah. The American media version. 
Well, yeah, no, it's interesting because, I mean, the tattoo in its sort of original sort of Polynesian context, and there are other people that can speak on this better than me, but I have a little experience on it now, but um, the tattoo is sort of dropping in in the, in the tribal society because it marks who you are, what you do, what your rank is, your role, and it's, it's about community and inclusivity, right? And it's, it's indelible for that reason. Um, well, okay, Jen. Well, hang on. We'll keep going, keep going. Who adopts it? Who adopts it? quickly afterwards. Well, it's explorers and the Navy, like the naval contingent, right? They um, did what? They did what, Jen? They adopted the tattoo. Oh, adopted. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it then becomes, you know, the sign of, look, I've been here, right? And I'm an yes. explorer and I'm doing this. And then, you know, as Dave's saying, like it, it goes then, literally bleeds into that warrior kind of code, sort of retrieving the, yeah. the old function. But it's interesting, like now... Um, the idea of a tattoo, I think, uh, as, the, as the dropping out, um, yes, and I do agree with the sort of the weekend kind of notion. But it's also been, I think, subsumed right now um, by the fact that, first of all, the notion of anatomical gaze has changed, and so we're yeah. going to anatomical scan, where we are the structures of information. It goes to the whole post-information thing, and we're yeah. cutting out that middle layer of narrative and interpretation and personal this and personal that. Now we're going straight into scan my code, scan my, you know, the BBM yes. technology and all that. Scan yeah. Just scan me, air tag. It's post-chip body, so you adopt it. That's what's yeah. true. There's two things I noticed. The Hawaiians here have incredible, unique tattoos, and that's part of their culture, I guess. I assume they all they have incredible, uh, beautiful baroque something in their very lot of tattoos on the Hawaiians. But the yes. Americans, you have the nice, dutiful, yuppie mother with her little tattoo on her left hip or something. Just a little token tattoo is a sign of conforming. It's a yes. sign of, of acceptability that I've got my... to the rebellion... Yeah. Yeah. I just realized that, Bob. Yeah. Is that Jen speaking then? No, just just a minute. Well, who's speaking, Jen? Um, I was just going to say, or it's retrieving something even much more horrifying and something we don't want to deal with, maybe, which is other informational so-called uses of the tattoo, um, as you know, the serial numbers on people's forearms. That's it. That was a great point about the scanning factor and. Actually, if someone has a tattoo, it heightens your own ESP factor because mm-hmm. you're scanning them and you've got another element to scan. Now, whose ESP factor gets heightened? The, uh, the viewers. So yeah. not the tattooers, the, the one who's watching the tattoo. You know, okay, the one observing the one with the tattoo, that the observer feels their ESP is working. No, mm-hmm. it or it's a little heart. bit of this ESP expression because you're subliminally scanning their body exactly. and it's being acknowledged yeah. when you stop on the tattoo. Ah. Stuff, but it doesn't have the marking, you don't. No, the, the tattoo There's is a protection from being scanned. It's your arma because you know you're being observed. Oh, no, I but it is a constant expression. With their, I, I like what Jen was saying, too. I can see that being expressed, too. The whole sense of a marking and a barcode, even though the tattoo may not be expressing that, it's expressing the sensibility in, in the mm. public as, as your interact cards and your scanning, and everyone will always talk. Eventually, we'll all have these markings and stuff like that. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. Yeah, the chip body, That chip body became cliche or figure, and that's what's expressed there, the chip body but scanning, yeah. You, so we've you moved Bob, in the sense that it is a block because if you look at a tattoo, it's more language, isn't it? Like tattooing language on yourself, yeah. Which which it, is a block. It's a it's a you know the mortar version of you know building that wall. 
It's uh, like, okay, you got to look at a person, they got four bodies. So they go, so the person says, I got to block the TV aspect of reality. So I'll put a tattoo on, because that's tack- McLuhan's TV tattoos, but I'll make my own TV tattoo effect. Mm-hmm. So that's a response to your own TV body. Then your chip body, how do you respond to that? You put a stud in. Say, well, I'm studded myself. You see, the person is juggling their different bodies in relation to what they think is the outer environment that's looking at them. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think actually that um, the whole piercing tattooing business, I don't mean the business, <laughs> but the whole uh, phenomenon of, of doing that, I think it's just going to die. Well, no, it's not going to die, but it's going to... It's I think it's shifted. already died. Yeah, I think it's exactly. already died. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. agree with you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was watching... Oh, we um, tattoo, tattoo, cause our two, our two tattoos, I know the tattoo parlor here, it's still doing well, but that's in a more rural zone. I, I, there's, but uh, are they, I, I don't know, I haven't been following. Is, it, is the business is like slowing that peak? No, no, thing? no, not, not the business. It, the business is booming, but... Okay. Oh, yeah, the relevance yeah, of... The that. relevance and the ground. Oh, I see, and that's because optimal. everyone's doing it too. If everyone has a tattoo, it's... it's it's meaningless. Yeah, that's what I get. I actually feel like, man, am I proud I don't have a tattoo. Yeah, I walk around. Yeah. I represent the new ground. Now, these, these, quote, conservative kids, they might be into purifying stuff. They may uh, not want tattoos. They might want to preserve the old media. I think Jen's one who told me about that. Talk about these conservative kids, Jen. Um, sorry, in, in, what, in what respect? That they preserve, they want to preserve books and literacy or something? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I, I think... I'm not. I'm not sure that I was saying it like that. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was more of the brand, you know, preserving uh, their brand or. Well, what's uh, it? What, Jen? Didn't you tell me the kids are in, into preserving literacy? We talked about that the other day. Well, I think I was talking about the difference between like what? Uh, oh, the the notion of interior voice as some as a, as a person who is um, imbued with literary literary culture and literacy. Yeah. Someone who like Copeland, for example, as a figure of that, um, and how I think we were talking about how he perceives interior voice, and that is so important to him, and he sees it as a completely literary phenomenon where you've got a quote-unquote narrator that you know is kind of um, subliminally or obviously kind of like you know controlling your mind. Yeah, now that's. Let me say this, Jen. So McLuhan said that speech was archetypalized in his day. So the interior stream of consciousness is is archetypalized by the present generations. Not outer speech, but inner speech. Well, yeah, and then whereas, and so my, I think my point is that what I feel like I'm observing is that, and also what you were saying about, um, you know, quote unquote kids today or the new millennials or whatever, that they are um, a new combination of different bodies, right? Like you're sort of talking about that. And how I don't think that they have a notion of an interior voice at all, the way, you know, those of us who are kind of one foot in the literacy grave and (laughs) whatever, and one foot in in the new kind of world. The new grave. Yeah, the new grave. Exactly. (laughs) The tomb. We can talk about the tomb. It's not Easter yet. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Their inner voice would be uh, on the chip body. Mm. Yeah, Um, that's their Facebook. They're saving their inner face. But you know what, though? The middleman is increasingly being cut out. Like, the whole notion of logging on, going into Facebook, you know, transmitting yourself from Facebook or Twitter or whatever, that's going to be gone. Like, because you, if you've got um, an iPhone or you've got a BlackBerry, right, all you have to do is, like, walk by a person, you can scan yourself, and immediately, boom, profiles are there. Mm. Communication is there. You don't need to be running to know Facebook. That's right. 
But Facebook, though, a lot of people now use that instead of email. I know kids that are, you know, in their 20s, and they're like, they, like, don't answer my email. And it's like, oh, shit, dude, I only check it now about every week. Everyone says we just all do Facebook. And that's where we go tonight. On Friday, we're going to this club. And well, right. It's the new They promote events. We're going to – yeah, what's that? It is the new – like, they use it. So they've abandoned other ones in the meantime. Like, suddenly, yeah, yeah, you still do email? That's so bizarre. (laughs) Hey, you know what, Dave? Hey, Dave. (laughs) Dave, email is sending messages. They're always in touch with each other. They don't send – you know, someone left my space. Facebook means that they're always in the same space. But if you look at the structure of Facebook, yeah. um, it's, yeah. it's devolved a lot of the different, um, you know, uh, formats into itself. So it's got sort of a Twitter-esque quality or an SMS quality. It also has the email function, right? It also has that kinetic sort of quote-unquote yeah. poke thing going on. So it's yeah. sort of just yeah. taken everything it's that you've already been doing. It creates a number of functions into it yeah. in one interface. It makes it cal- more attractive. The, the, the calendar function is useful, as you're saying, Dave, with... Organizing events. Um. Okay, here's here's an interesting McClune pattern that that relates. He said uh, back in '73 that the more that NASA did the space flights, you know, they were fading out by '73. They weren't doing it anymore. And he said they failed because instead of showing uh, an image of a guy floating out of his rocket, his satellite or whatever rocket, you know, floating in space, they should not just they shouldn't visualize it. They should m- show how the uh, tubes that go to the astronaut floating out there, you know, he's connected to the rocket, and he's floating, that you monitor, you show the, uh, he said, you show how his oxygen's doing, how his blood's doing, as you feed him stuff when he's out there floating in the dark space, and he said, that would create drama, so I was thinking about that yesterday, that's really what he meant by hot and cool, not a landscape, but how each person is going towards the heat level of their experience when they read a book, and then to the cool level when they watch TV, the Facebook is monitoring that tubular surveillance. You're saying, oh, I'm now shitting. I'm now doing this. I'm now doing that. That's actually what McClune said should have been done by NASA to make the space flights more interesting. But now everybody's doing it themselves, mm. monitoring their hot, cool dynamics. Mm. Anyway, it's well, just what I was thinking the last couple of days, and I've just applied it to Facebook. So mm. that was all my own scene there. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Resume whittling. <laughs> well, it, 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 and it's interesting, too, that I think, um, you know, new decora are kind of developing around, you know, this devolution of all the, all the various functions into one sort of either handheld device or sort of a one-stop shop like Facebook. I don't know. Do other people agree with that? Or My phone blipped out the last 30 seconds. What were you just saying? Oh, just like, okay, like email, for example. Um, it's still useful for certain types of communication and for certain types of, you know, functions and things you want to communicate, right? I, I think that's what kids understand, that mm-hmm. this is what they mean by conservative. As Quadra Phoenix, naturally, they know everything is useful. They're actually ecological. They tend to be on the living 24-7, interacting in the same space, but they know email and that. They preserve everything as well, it seems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you know, they would understand you when you say, well, email, I wouldn't get rid of it completely. It's useful for some things. Mm-hmm. Like, they're... They're actually appropriating everything as ammunition and not, and not having a point of view and saying, well, this is important, yeah. we've arrived, and that's obsolete. They wouldn't think anything's obsolete. That's right. I think uh, they you, don't uh, have... Were you, were you characterizing Facebook versus email? or how, what, Was that what you were saying? Because when you got garbled when Bob's, I don't know if that was what you had said. Oh, I oh, get what no. she's saying. 
I get what she's saying. Um, as a web developer, I think if you zoom in to what Bob was saying and what Jen is saying, combine it. It's if you zooming zooming into the process of intra-site email is it, it's not it's not something new. It's like when you worked at a company and they had mm -hmm. their own email server. Like Facebook has its own email. She's saying, is that is that an example of taking of, of consolidation of these services uh, or, or basically a question like that? But so does stumble upon. So does Twitter, which is basically like a short-formed email to you could send direct messages to each other and things like that. It's nothing new, intrasite email. I just wanted mm -hmm. to throw that in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and I think, well, I think my point was also, yeah, towards um, the idea that what Bob was saying is that I don't think, like, I think we're maybe of a certain age group here and we're still kind of looking at wonder at certain things and kind of going, whoa, like, look at this and how are we charting that and blah, blah, blah. But I don't think these kids are doing it. I, I think they are seeing the services and disservices because they've grown up in this environment. They're not struggling yes. going like, oh, God, um, should I, you know, text or should I phone or should I, you know, whereas I think a lot of us caught behind the door, so to speak, are still kind of doing that. Well, the well, step well we don't that, know how much we want to keep immersed. For me, it's like I haven't, I don't own a cell phone. I never have. I've skipped mm -hmm. a bunch of phases of technology. Yeah, me too. And uh, I'm a bit of a hermit, I guess, anyways. And mm -hmm. so I can still kind of economically get by. Mm -hmm. But if I was engaged in those technologies, I would probably be doing a lot better in terms of business. But I am not personally inclined to do that. So that's my situation. But that's just my own response. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't... Uh, get any clean any public thing from that I suppose but uh, yeah I can convince you I can convince you to do it I could I could say hey is, is that Dave by the way that I'm talking yeah. that we're uh, Dave, yeah. Dave I, I could say listen this is how this could help you this is how, and convince you through a series of logical assumptions that yeah. you should be on Twitter that you should be on stumble upon or Bob you should be more active on your Facebook because I know you have yeah. one I've seen you there um, and and then you start doing it, and then suddenly you're immersed in it. Does that are you are you immersed in pre and post millennial culture at that point, or are you now, whatever your generation is, just utilizing the culture? That's that's a bigger mm. question. Mm -hmm. not, don't get yeah. caught. Don't put mortar in front of yourselves with the technology because of some sort of the uh, disconnect. Is it is it the right word I'm using? Disconnect. It's like it's like you don't want to connect not because you're scared of it, but just because it hasn't been proven useful to your... Uh, no, or no, no, actually, model. or you don't want to connect. <laughs> that's more yeah, like, like it. <laughs> <laughs> that's more like it. Like I, I don't want to go on because I don't want suddenly people going, okay, let's book some studio time because then, oh, my God, uh, that's fucking... That's well, you're like half person. a celebrity, Dave. You, you, yeah, there's people who would star. want you. You need to be private in a sense. Yeah. yeah. If I really wanted to exploit it, and from, from people had said, like, when I had those Juno's awards, I remember some guys I know, you should go to that thing with business cards and be giving them out to everyone. And it's like, God, I could not fucking, he goes, exploit it while the iron's hot, you know, and work it. And I'm just like, oh, I'm just not, I'm just not made of that. I could do that better if I was selling fucking insulation or something. I might do a great job, but selling myself and that, no, no. So then we turn it to PR people, right? You're right, you're right. I see what you're saying. If, to well, yeah. me, that's really cool, but I, that to me, it's like, if I'm doing PR, I'm not selling myself. I'm selling something else, and I can do a marvelous job, but it's a whole different thing when you're selling yourself. Mm. Well, it's right. interesting. For me. Mm. Like what Bob was saying Go ahead. before. Oh, sorry. No, what, go, what, go. What Bob was saying before, too, about, like, 
um, you know, this idea that, okay, suddenly later at a certain point in your life you realize you have a chemical body, etc. Well, I think you can apply that a little bit to maybe, um, like, certainly my own reaction to something like Twitter, for example. Like, I've, I've drawn the line at certain technologies for certain purposes because, you know, I've observed them. I haven't been afraid. I haven't stuck my head in the sand or anything. But Twitter, to me, for example, like, I've watched, I've watched, I've observed it. I don't see a benefit for me in it. And I just see it as a further dissipation. I just see it as, like, willingly asking somebody to put a grenade up your ass and blow you to smithereens. Like, that's just how I feel about it. Yeah, like, Twittering seems to be profitable for people already well-known. Possibly. That's part of it, too, how many followers you have. It's funny, you know, people are paid to Twitter. I know, like, in the music industry, people, are pay, who, people who have a lot of fo- followers... Companies will go to them and say, look, we'll pay you 200 bucks a month if you, say, every seven days mention something related to an event that we have or something because you're considered a trendsetter and a tastemaker. And so, mm-hmm. and so that's like a vehicle of, of advertising and communication and, and audience. So, so there is that. It's, it's really like basically saying, let's go to the most popular kids at the high school who are having the, and let's organize a hot party where they're going. And everyone else in the school will want to go to it kind of thing because they're the hot kids. So there's another thing being played out in all these dramas, I think, for kids and their identities is, you know, if they don't have all these Facebook friends or shit like that, it's really rubbed in their face and they don't have any friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Dave, Dave, i got a, I got a pattern here. This issue we were talking about earlier, McLuhan was watching the trends. Well, the, what's different today is the advertising people, whoever, create the trends. That's what's happening with Twitter. They're trying to create a little movement, a little someone around a celebrity. They don't, they don't track to find out what the people are doing. They now know they've got to create movements or happenings or trends just for a week, for one yeah. night. To generate them to hopefully get some kind of economic activity. Yeah, nano trends. It's nano trends now. Yeah. McClellan well, was looking at the broadcast the, level. Here's the thing with the tweeting, too, I noticed, is... Anyone that celebrates that they have lots of tweets, what it really means is no one's going to read any of them because everything's <laughs> in the front page is replaced. And no one who's going to wade back to page 32 and see some gem comment. I don't think so. So it's in some ways the more popular are, the less communication that's happening because you're so deluged with it. It's like a news story with more stories and people have time to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People that doesn't have much to say, actually, at least you can have some sense of not being completely addled with ideas. Right. In McLuhan's era, everybody was dealing with information overload. I say there's no information overload today. You now create your own information overload, whoever unluckily taps into your Twitter yeah. overload. I was just thinking <laughs> with, with uh, the keyboard going out of phase, everything's going to be voice you know, automated. You know, you're going to speak your tweets. Will people be doing that, you know, speaking their tweets? It just, oh. Yeah, I think yeah the, the value well, of silence... Even. Even more now they'll be in their cars thinking of profound things. That guy in the car in front of me set up concentration camps to put everyone who's got his license plate number on. <laughs> Tweet. Well, I, I, yeah, I'm thinking, James, that it might retrieve the value because you can't listen to everybody, and so it would make uh, the visual part of tweeting uh, good because then you hear someone without without um, having to hear them. You see them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, how can you, matter of fact, tweeting, maybe tweeting or the visualization of email in general is a response to the loudness caused by talk radio in the 80s and 90s. Everybody could get on and make verbal noise, 
So it, le- it moved into silence. Right. Tweeting is not as loud as shouting. Yeah. Tweeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Tweeting. And it also shows you it doesn't last long. Tweeting is like a blip. Yeah, very good. That's good. We made a discovery. We now know where the word came from. Yeah. Yeah, you're not being intrusive. You're not yelling. Yeah. 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 Tweet, tweet, zero, zero, one, one, zero, zero. Tweet, 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 tweet. <laughs> yeah. they turned, that's right. They turned off the megaphone, shut it off. Go, look, if you're going to fucking scream it like that, you're going to have to do it with this thing. All right. Tweet, tweet, The neighbors aren't complaining now. An artistry of uh, fragmentation. Like, it's uh, the, uh, the equivalent of a headphone. It's, uh, a headphone. What, what, of, the uh, tweeting, Andrew, the tweeting is equivalent to a headphone. Well, because it interrupts and breaks the stream of speech. Yeah. So it automatically uh, goes yeah. in and it gives you a temporary or nano arrest of the stream of speech. Where yeah, otherwise, you're right. Um, so you've got a temporary a, a frame. Uh, foothold. Whoa. A temporary bunker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a nano bunker. Yeah. <laughs> And how about this? Is that Sasha laughing? Here's what also makes sense. Here's another pattern definitely emerges that with the tweets, it's like people will say now, tell me what's going on. Don't give me too much information. What are the headlines? Give me the highlight. So that, that, that's being expressed in the tweets. It's like, no, we don't want the story. Just give a good headline. Yeah, no, that's interesting. What the communities need to know, as McLuhan said, was a pattern. So what is it to know what's go- you want to know what's going on in the TV landscape, I guess? Give me a headline, you know, Michael Jackson returned or something. What, and then what would be a chip body headline? What is the need to know levels going on here? Well, it's, it's, it's actually a ridiculous harnessing of just, I don't know, like the citizen journalist or whatever. Like, you know, instead of having your CNN sort of ticker tape of news going across, everybody's doing it now. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just like, oh. Yeah, you know what, there's one hilarious guy on Twitter. I notice he appears a lot, and he gets what's known as retweeted. He'll get thousands of it. So I said, who is this guy? He looks, he's dressed up like some Hellraiser, some guy from, like, some 80s horror film, like a bizarre, like, bald head and all pasty white sort of makeup. With an axe? Thor. With an axe kind of thing, like a yeah, real, like, gothy kind of thing. And uh, And I look up, and he's got, like... A, mi- a million followers, and it says following zero. Such <laughs> 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 a beautiful expression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he killed the one guy who managed to get in as a follower, or that he was following. He, he, he and, he, the guy. And, he, and he puts up like being arrogant and being the leader, and everyone just embraces the hell out of it. And so to maintain that whole expression, he. Oh yeah, so that Dave. Anyone. Dave, that's what everybody wants. The community, you know, they got to find out who's the guy who's the, in Bible terms, the dark soul. Who's the right? Who's the separateness? Who's the guy who's being an asshole the most? Who gets out of this tribal cl- uh, clusterfuck? Yeah, yeah. He's, the, yeah, he's supposed to be the Lord that doesn't give a damn about yeah, yeah. no one. I follow no one. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, man, I'm following you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, baby, yeah. So that's what the community needs to know. They want to find out who's number one separate asshole so that they can uh, decide whether you want to follow him or not. And uh, that's, that's, you're trying to find out who's not being. So the headline is about who's not paying attention to anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But well, David Leary's song, you're an, a- you're an Asshole, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, okay, like with the dark side of celebrity gossip, for example, like you had, um, when, when those kind of blogs started to first, first rise, or even like the beginning of blog, you had that, the, the guy Perez Hilton, right? Yeah. 
So yeah. Perez Hilton is his own generator of like the sort of the black hole of like celebrity gossip, right? That everybody just sort of devolves to, right? Um, and, and defers to. And it's really, it just seems like it's always just those few sort of first wave adopters of any one of these new social networking kind of things or like um, publication type things that are making any money, that are making any celebrity for themselves. Um, monetization is a disaster online, as we all know, right? Yeah. Uh, and Dave's saying, like, there's no point in him getting involved and going crazy on this, because is, is it really going to help him professionally? Meh, <laughs> probably not. Um, the rest well, of no, like, even if it did, I don't know if I'd want it to. Yeah, and like, ooh, let's Twitter, yeah. let's Twitter our sites and our businesses and blah, blah, blah. And it's just, as you're all saying, it's too much clicking Not away. a feeling. <laughs> so, so, so this thing about, yeah, gossip, uh, the gossip columnists are the ones tracking the guys who are the assholes. <laughs> the the, the middleman, you know, Tim Z is a middleman between the, the Charlie Sheen syndrome where someone's saying, fuck you, world, I ain't following anybody, I'm, I'm taking my own power. That, the gossip guys track who's doing that the most. Mm. You know, too, the Sheen is acting out the whole thing with the Egyptians. They're all going, no, we're, we, we don't want this. We're not going to take being bossed around. We want change, and we deserve it, and we're humans, and we have human rights, and no one's going to fuck with us, whether it's a corporation no, or a military dictatorship. <laughs> and then, so what happens in these other countries, either the military cracks down, or in Egypt, they, they suspend the constitution and hand it over to the military, and the military says, now if you go back and protest, we'll kill you. And, uh, and, then, and then with Charlie Sheen, now I read recently, he's now all sucking up. Well, oh, they're going to give me the show back, and I'm going back. It was just a misunderstanding. It's all good. So it also, in the sense, they, in the end, there's a certain weird, bizarre capitulation. So where we yeah. think, wow, look at this profound change and flip that you're seeing. Yeah, and then a few weeks later, they go, i got to eat and get my $45 million. So, uh, well, okay. All's forgiven. Yeah, no, that's co- Coker laid out that pattern in the late 80s. It's called ecstasy catastrophe. It was sort of picking up in the quadrophenic flip, everybody being in their own tetrad. You go ecstatic about something or public movement, and then it cata- it'll collapse. That's a given. That will happen. Ecstasy catastrophe by modernism. So you have it on... Don't you think that kind of mirrors, in a way, like what's happening with this extreme polarization almost between people that's happening where in, in the face of all of this um, outlet and technology and all that stuff, you've got the extreme, which is the autistic, and you've got the other side, which is just bleeding at, from every orifice, like every minute... Like as okay, what's involved. bleeding? Okay, you get the autistic. Yeah. So what's the opposite? Well, just just the person who is charting their every sort of hot, cool dynamic. Hyper involved. Oh, you're trying to connect or, or tell everybody about themselves. Yeah, and, and yeah. just like the, the, the phases of. Well, that's what McLuhan said. Remember, we said that last week. You uh, you have the drop in and the dropouts happen at the same time. There's more and more people who feel that the world's in trouble and they want to help as many as the ones who feel it's a mess and want to leave. The in and the out, the movement towards helping and the movement with withdrawing. The block emerging is hyper all the time. There's always both things going on. So when the hippies advocated dropping out, they forgot that there'd be a drop-in complementary reaction. Uh, now part of the mystery landscape is a lot of people just don't care. Yeah. They, they don't. Well, can you respond because they don't have an answer and they don't know anyone that does. So in, in some ways they're being honest. They're saying, like, I'll keep you posted, but until now, mm. fucking... Well, keep yeah, you posted. That that might be a yeah. meaning for a posted information society or post information. <laughs> like, I mean, Jen writes about this in her article, which is really good on McLuhan and Copeland. She uses the phrase post information, but what does that mean? What post what? 
Mm. Yeah, mm. posted information. Yeah, yeah, I'll keep you posted. <laughs> I'll, I'll remind you when I'm not going to get involved. We're, we're in. the posted information. <laughs> here's here's an interesting analogy I just sort of stumbled into recently because I've been like on this bender reading a lot about um, uh, sort of South Sea explorers, so you know, Tour Heyerdahl and and whatever, and then going back to Captain Cook. And um, it's interesting, the Captain Cook story, because, of course, everybody knows, well, Bob, he was bludgeoned to death in Hawaii. Anyway, but... Um, it's a, hey, Jen, yeah. for the, uh, the uh, decor for this, the only artifact I have here in my living room is the map of Captain Cook's traveling on the Hawaii Islands that I got at the flea market a year ago. So that okay. sits there. Darling, I got one in my dining room. You got the what? same map. It, yeah, the same map. Yeah, where it shows yeah, where you got killed. What are you going to say about it, Jen? What are you going to say about it, Jen? What were you going to say about the Captain Cook? So, right. So, so what's interesting about Captain Cook, aside from the exploration, is that, like, in terms of um, this non-posted thing we're talking about, um, he and his wife, they were married for a total of 16 years. Um, her name was Elizabeth. Um, they only saw each other for a total of four years within that 16-year period, okay? <laughs> and they had five children. Three died, two survived. Anyway, the interesting thing is when he was on ship, he not only... Um, kept his captain's log, which of course has come down to us through publications from the time, but he also meticulously every single day wrote her letters. However, there was no delivery service. So when he would have... He knew that? He knew there was no delivery? Well, Bob, how could there be? How are you going to get it? Oh, but he had... Now, that, that's pretty good. That's, that's early blogging. That's early Twittering. I mean, the guy wanted to use the new medium of the printing press or the postal service, and he had to do it anyways, is what you're saying. So he's, he's dutifully writing every single line, you know, every day. <laughs> and then he comes home, you know, after one year, two years, three years, whatever, and hands over to Elizabeth this bunch of letters that he wrote every single day to her. And you know what she did when she died when she was, uh, I think it was like 96 or some ridiculous wow. age. Yeah, she was an idiot, wow. a widow for like 56 years. She died when she was like, I think, 93. She burned every single letter. Really? Wait, and he vanished as a person. He vanished as What's a person. That, because imagine saying I'm rubbing my loins right now, thinking of yours. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just being so. I'm from the new era. That's the shit I think. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, well, she burned them on her last day. When did she burn them? She burned them just before her death. Oh, okay. And so, no record of uh, what he did. No That's record of too, because do you think that maybe? Imagine maybe in the letters he said, "Oh, burn these before you die. Don't forget." Who knows? Maybe there's a There's gonna be so many things. What's that? This message will self-destruct. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why would Why would she? Or also, if she's gonna die, you'd think she wouldn't care. Okay, now people can see this. If this is embarrassing or whatever it is. No, but here's the rub. Here's the rub. This This was her personal life with her husband. This was the personal like landscape of of if you will of their separation yet uh. communion. Within that yeah, this is their private. This is the literate person's yeah, privacy space. Private love letters. And, yeah, yeah, private. Yeah. And so Little, the non-posting. This is this is the dynamic of the non-posting. We have an example of it. Okay, uh, the, the the dynamic for printing press was the paradox that it made people have more hyper about their private space, but at the same time caused the conformity. So she doesn't gets the letters for the private reason between her and her husband, but the printing press creates the idea of a national history, and the historians have the right, they think, to go grab her letters for the public collective uniform record. That's the contradiction that people don't recognize when they enter the literate world, that there was individualism enhanced, but there was a further homogenization on the collective. Mm. 
and a giving up of privacy. You have to give your, your I mean, you know, famous people give their memoirs to the university. It's like a social obligation. Mm. That, that's the print dynamic. You create individualism and collectivity, a new kind of uniformity that never been seen before. Mm. So, so with this posted thing, I'm just thinking the post information side means that since nothing, everything's disappeared, everything is post. And you see that in Croker, panic sex, panic this, panic that. Then it became for the young kids, post everything. So it's a post everything uh, environment. So mm. nothing is ever established. It's a, that's the mystery landscape. So maybe it's not a post information society, it's a, um, a post everything society. But how are you interpreting information? It sounds to me like you're yeah. talking about information as content rather than information as right. pattern and structure. Yeah. What, what I mean, but what I always have meant post-pattern uh, recognition, but everybody thinks, I mean content, and they think maybe post-literacy or post-words and images, but it's post-environments, post-media. That's what Baudrillard said. I, I'd but, say it's, we're, we're all producers now. Mm-hmm. No, no, we're post-producers. There's no audience. See, post-information for me means post-Android memes. There's no communication going on. No possible... You're you're creating beyond the Android meme. You're creating your reality or whatever. No, no, no. That that, that would be masturbation. You've got to figure out what what you're producing uh, and whether there could be any... You're just a tree falling in the forest. There's no one there to notice it. A self-contained producer that doesn't really care about his audience. Yeah, that's what the that's what the Android meme that's what the Android meme makes you think it is. So no, how do no. you create how do you create an anti environment or community out of that? How can you connect with anybody knowing that uh, you can only be a producer? Well, you're getting into no, more no, no, serious no morality there. Into what? You're getting into serious morality there, because you're all you're, it's almost the analogy would be like okay. Uh, should you be fucking on birth control? <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't see how that is. People fuck on birth control, don't they? Yeah, yeah but that's not the point. I'm talking about, I'm sorry, I don't know your name, but you were talking about the pro- being producers. Yeah, that's James. James. Yeah. Okay, James, yeah, and you're just yeah. producing, 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 but there's no, pr- like what Bob's saying, this combines both. So you're producing, quote unquote, right, but no product is issuing because. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think Bob said a well, few what, times. What are you referring to then when you say producing in terms of organizing your own life or in terms of organizing creating, the way creating you think? Creating your world. Like, creating your like world. Like a four-year-old, how about a five-year-old kid who's like editing together his movies of his, his life and yeah. stuff like that? He's producing he's stuff and he'll show it to his parents and his friends, I suppose, and he's expressing producing mm-hmm. even if it's a small uh, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not excluding the audience. I'm just saying it's not required. Well, what we discovered a couple of weeks ago... But, 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 but I'm just trying to get more on this. Everybody's a producer kind of thing to see where... Okay. Yeah, I, I say it's panic production, Gene. We said a couple of weeks ago, or at least for me, the insight was that everybody is, tr- is Twittering to connect to see if there's anybody else out there. So it's panic attempt to connect with someone. That's what yeah, Web 2.0 yeah. is, because there is nowhere to connect on anything. Well, it seems, it seems whenever we come to some sort of con- conclusion about the post-information mystery landscape, it's always both and plus. Mm. Mm. That's always the way it is. You have both. It's always and both and under Android meme conditions. Um, plus, though, is the, uh, yeah. But the mystery, see, that's where the mystery landscape becomes figure. It's actually, and this is the last line of laws of media, that we're moving into unchartable 
territories. You can't chart yeah. what is unchartable. So that's, that's exactly the last right. sentence. So McLuhan, and you see Joyce includes that in Fitting His Wake. So what is that? You know, mystery landscape is now known. And so the young kids enter it trying to conserve. You know what they're trying to conserve? Contact with anything. That's what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah, they try to connect anything. So they list their movies. They list their, uh, all the different things they consume as if at least I connected with this stuff. Yeah. And they put it yeah, out yeah. there to see if anybody else could connect with it. It's panic attempt to connection. That's what these kids, they're trying, they can't handle the mystery landscape. Or there's, or there's, is it panic or is it natural? Well, yeah. natural. Oh, it's a natural panic. Uh, panicking is natural. The only constant yeah, in this Yeah, it's a natural landscape. attempt to communicate, not a panic yeah. attempt. To find somebody. So a kid has to uh, comes here to create, okay? So then looking for something to have contrast with. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And, and I, they, so yeah, that kid goes to the uh, to the uh, where James was. Mm-hmm. Where, where was it? Where everything was going on? Was that Coachella or where? Coachella. Yeah, where there was a million decade dance. So a little 12-year walks in there. What is he going to connect with? What, what's going to be a figure for him if he's got that much activity being thrown at him? Was that that story, James Coachella? Was, uh, no, I was at uh, the Blues and Roots Festival, it was called. Um, Coachella's in the west coast of the United States. Oh, yeah, that was an all. So Coachella was a, yeah. a your okay. place. Coachella was, got brought up when we were talking about the three screens. And, right, right. That's multi-body. But Jay, yeah. So a kid goes to, in Australia, goes to that thing with all that going on. I, I yeah. got a sense of information overload of Absolutely. all these different decades being done differently. What is a kid thinking there is to connect with there? Well, see, it's weird because I was going through those ruminations and I was watching the kids and they're enjoying themselves because it's a picnic environment, you know, if you're away yeah. from the, the mosh or whatever. And, there's, you know, it's, you can have a nice day just listening to the music and not get totally immersed in what's really happening. But when it gets dark, things change, right? You know, the, mm. the kid feels like, you know, well, whatever, it's got to make some more connections, you know, because, uh, I don't know, I just found that. The kids were, you know, sort I, of... I find it interesting, James, that you thought about this. In other words, the effect of the environment was you were concerned about the kids or what they were seeing. I don't know why you thought that, but the environment made that. Just, just perspective. And, uh, yeah, but why did it make you think that? That means it was going well, I'll on. Tell you why. I'll tell you why, because when Grace Jones came on, literally everyone in the audience... They, they were just like jaws dropped, you know. She was n- basically nude with massive close-ups on her crotch. <laughs> nobody, wow. nobody was expecting this. And like the adults, everyone was just like, what the fuck? You know, it was really good, but it took them 10 minutes to acclimatize. And, the, you know, it's like... if you, if you So that's when you that, thought about the morals or whatever on the kids. The parents exactly. were a bit, it was too obscene. Exactly. And then I realized, well, obviously after 9 o'clock, you know, the rules of... of G, PG, or whatever the, you know, you're allowed to swear after nine o'clock, and you know the kids will probably be asleep, or they're old enough to be there, or, but there was yeah. quite a few sub ten year olds, you know, full families with their with their kids, you know, so I I couldn't make heads or tails of it, um, what, what they what they would be connecting to in that sense. But was it was it um, on a level with a kind of uh, you mentioned earlier um, when I kind of came in Lady Gaga and her kind of approach 24 7 on on duty 24 7 yeah Absolutely. And, yeah so i mean because grace jones man she's <laughs> like she, you know she's basically yeah she's like uh what uh, did jim uh, say she's a great what 
I was throwback. throwback. <laughs> yeah, she's she's an archetype for Lady Gaga. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a throwback to the TV landscape, to having having a mass audience. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, see, I see in Lady Gaga, I just see an, a, a revisit of Madonna, only with far yeah. less um, point. <laughs> As it were, like yeah, yeah, you can be impressed by how over the top she is or whatever. But I mean, kind of, haven't we haven't we been through that shock? And now, well, I can't, yeah, I don't. When I clicked on a couple of songs, I liked them and I thought they were powerful. And uh, but I don't stay with it. I ain't gonna spend time listening. I said, oh, she's good, and then I dropped it. But I don't know. And other people say she's crap. But uh, for me, based on my naive whatever it is, I thought she's powerful. And uh, Bad Romance or whatever it was looked pretty good. But mm. I'm not consuming any of this mm. stuff 24-7, so I'm, I'm not numbed by it. And uh, so it was so good. Please. She's big. She's big, she's big like a Madonna scale in the sense that mm. she has whatever, the billion YouTube views, mm-hmm. which is a record. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, I had not listened to an album. It is a replay of Madonna's thing, and, uh, definitely. But, but Dave, it seems a little, a little seems better. Of, uh, any blonde, yeah, it's, well, sure, she's better at what she does, but then hasn't there been always a huge blonde icon in every, mm-hmm. everywhere, from whether it's Jean Harlow or... Yeah, yeah, the blonde factor. You know, Dave, when you gave me, sent me the uh, You Forgot It in People album, 2002 or three when it came out, you sent it to me. Mm-hmm. I hadn't listened to an album in years. <laughs> I had never sat down and listened, and it was so... I, I thought it was really great, but I think the reason it was so great, I hadn't heard a good album in so long that uh, I really thought it was the greatest album I ever heard. <laughs> you know, but that's because I'm not in a normal consumption mode. If you, you know, but I think a lot of other people got that when they heard that 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 there was that that record captured all that was really cool about the sixties, seventies, and eighties, nineties music, and all the sort of cool mm-hmm. touchstones that everyone likes music yeah. for kind of were addressed in, in these tracks in all varying degrees. And uh, So you're so saying even if you were... The whole album had played well, but I would say now... But Dave, Dave let me say this at this point. If you're saying that even those regular consumers of music all day long, all the time, they were as equally impressed as I was who didn't know anything and was vulnerable to anything that was reasonable good because I had an enemy. Well, a lot of ways. Like this whole album is just great. But uh, the thing is, now it's different. In fact, nine years later, it's much more singles-driven. Mm-hmm. People aren't going to... See, even then, Bob, you said, I haven't listened to an album for years yeah, yeah. before that. So you can imagine now nine years later. So so I'd say even like on the last record they did, I guess they put that out last April. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't do it with them. They were definitely... there was I for sure can say they were definitely like when they made it, their, their their label and even them would have been asking themselves, all right, which one are which singles. are the songs that are going to be the uh-huh. ones, the singles that we're going to make a video yeah. for, and that we're going to oh this one's too long to put on. But a lot of people really like this tune, but we weren't thinking that was going to be the mm-hmm. one. And blah blah blah. And they try and narrow it down, and which is the one that fits the format that are going to fit with all the other music they're playing right now, and uh, that that comes into play a lot more. Whereas on the albums that I did with him. Both, all the stuff that I did with them, we were not at all thinking of radio. It wasn't assumed that yeah. there was a radio format that was going to play that specifically music. If that yeah, music yeah, exactly. was made for just to, hopefully it would sound cool when people heard it at face value just for what it was, regardless of what yeah. radio and television It, it comes across so as a proper album. Okay, so I don't get, so that's the way it was. Well, so what it's, what now it's changing. So now there is a 
much more of a pressure because it's so much more a singles-driven market because of digital download and people aren't buying CDs. They're a lot more about, give me the hot tune for my, yeah. and then I'll have out of my iPod. They're not going to, unless they really like you. And it's been like that for a long time. I know my friend was the manager at HMV for years, and then he was the manager at the dance department. And I remember I was in there, and like around the time the Fugees had that hit with that cover of uh, mm. Bird Flag song. What was that mm. one? Charming uh, Songs. Killing Me Softly. Yeah. So what is that? 99, right. And I went. I, I remember I go there, and there's like the top 20 dance records on the CDs, and like about three of them were artists. Like one, I think maybe Janet Jackson. I don't know if there was a Madonna one that year. And then the, that Fuji's one, and all the rest of them were all dance greatest hits. This dance great. It was all like anthologies and collections of singles. And he said these are the ones that are selling. This is what the public wants. They just want the hot tune. They're only going to buy the whole album if it's a major star that has four or five singles on the record. They're not going to buy an album for one cool song. So that yeah. phenomenon yeah. has set in long ago, kind of thing. And now yeah. it's like really driven home. Now if you go to MySpace and you got your song there, they're not going to hear your album. They want to hear an irresistible smoke smoking hot hit that no one that the first time you hear it, you're going to say to your friends you know this tune it's fucking hot <laughs> you know what I mean and I want to see this more about this band who is the band and the face behind it and of course if there's no band or no face behind it it's going to go nowhere yeah so you're saying that the indie was the last market for people interested in a group and listening to their albums that's over well, it's not over. It's 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 obsolete. So it's bigger than ever. And Arcade yeah. Fire, you know, they did the record release and they did it two nights at Madison Square Garden. So you know, it's so it's bigger than ever, not as a concept album, but as a single. But also, just well, I would say, I don't know when I was making it from what I like, and, and I I would I'm pretty sure I get a similar vibe from the band, the, the the Arcade Fire guys, just hearing them on award show and their thank yous. And that is, they're basically they just grew up like most people in North America listening to the Beatles and Zeppelin and then when the 70s came in all the cool bands that came in and then when the 80s and the punk and the new wave thing well the 70s the punk and the new wave and the cure and and Bowie of course being like just and all this great music that's already gone before that everyone just loves and why people like music in general and follow it and want to be devoted to it that all just permeates into all these efforts of these bands now so they're just all ultimately hoping that they can make a killer fucking album like Drums and Wires XTC or, or Hunky Dory David Bowie or I don't know name some or Van so Boy, your point you're saying there's something that's continuing well, that I was tradition just, is continuing, but mm. it, there's a singles-driven aspect from the marketing mm. part of it and from the nature of the technologies and the way people get the music and exposed to it. And they're not going to buy your whole album until you're, like, really established. And so to establish yourself, you really now need a smoking hot single. And even if you're a band like, say, Broken Social Scene or something that's going to sell albums, whether you get radio play necessarily or not, even then, you have the pressure to make the ultimate song. You have the pressure to make The Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen, some great song. That's what you want, that's what the record label wants, and that's what the public ultimately hopes you do, so that you will be the mantra and the song that will come on the speakers on Friday night at every bar. In North that's, yeah, I was just going to ask you. will start to get into it. I was going to ask you, where is this song heard? Do people listen to the radio? Where is it heard? Right, yeah. Um, what's that? Well, partially in the blogging and the tweeting, and if the band's already established itself. If not, the band's got to get the word out through obviously on a local thing unless they've got some kind of management or promotion and then they'll get the word out more on international and um 
And then they have to hope that they can potentially, well, as many ways to go about it, but if their album doesn't splash, if it's it's hot, maybe they'll go out on tour with a bigger band that has an audience, and then they'll win some of that audience over and get exposure. But is there radio? Is there still radio, the way people would listen? In Australia, No, you have to have a million dollars payola, and if you you want your song on the radio, it costs... So you try to market on YouTube or something? Yeah, even if you have a hit single, yeah. Apparently, it's, it's just so much, like, kind of payola involved to have a single on a radio that even if you have a single song it's to go through the machine and get it rotated on all those radio stations it's a whole different thing it's another thing to go to college radio and you can have a thing and you get it going there and that doesn't involve payola per se but uh, yeah that, that's kind of the landscape but you still got to make hot music I mean that's really that's really what it all so you, you don't know where it's going to break you just uh, use all possible outlets uh, to, again, it depends on your situation. But yeah, no, all bands are going to exploit the available obvious media that are, exist already in the Facebooks and the Twitters and all that stuff. And their yeah. publicity companies, which I always wonder, who's reading the publicity except other publicists? But I mean, I, I know when I was a kid, I, I mean, I didn't like, I, I read Cream Magazine and I had a subscription to Circus Magazine, you know, and I, I don't know how, I was, I guess, a bit influenced like a buying records by reading these reviews and looking at ads for albums, I suppose. But I really didn't like look to critics to sort of guide me as to what records I enjoyed or liked. Whereas now, a lot of times bands are really hoping because of these like internet media that they're going to be popular with the influential websites that are going to champion the record and say this is the hottest shit. And if they don't get that, then they they don't really have any other medium or means to really have their breakthrough. So yeah, Dave, so, Dave, yeah. the uh, when I think about reading Cream. Uh, that's the beginning of fragmented media because the cream did not was not there to uh, sell you albums. It was there for you to experience a reading about music, and that's and it was only talking to someone who wants that preference. It was only for itself, so to speak. Kind it didn't of, connect any of, other media. It didn't help the industry. No, I mean, but it did. It served like any of those magazines, like a lot of the ones in England are owned by record labels. They keep music interesting, keep people into music culture, and those ones, I guess, were more self-generating with their music critiques. But they also, what were you, for instance, for me, when I was reading it, you know, because I was younger, I was, it was like in the mid-70s or whatever, so they were talking then about bands like, well, coming up then, Patti Smith and people who were in New York. It was very New York-based, if I recall. It yeah. got a very New York vibe still and then, and then, of course, later, Aerosmith got some coverage. But they still probably tried to be a little bit on the edge of rock and roll. That was the vibe, where Circus was much more mainstream. In Circus, you would read about the hugest acts kind of thing. And Circus was in color and glossy paper, too. It was, it was a little more mainstream. But uh, those, those, those were like... But I, again, it's just... It, it's, it's, that is the landscape. And again, people are trying to sell music in an era and situation where people kind of don't buy music. And so that's why it is. it's all the marketing of the live music and that because people still have to make money in it. Mm-hmm. And the bands want to make money because if you can build it to the point where you really are successful and you are touring, and especially like the festivals, like for bands too that aren't doing as well, they love the festivals because yeah. if you've got a bit of a name, they'll pay you way better to come to the festival. So it's like and a well And you get a crowd too. as well. And a huge crowd, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask guys... So it's it's where the action is. You know, for me, I'm I'm in the trenches in in comparison. You know, I mean, it's like I work with the bands and make the record, and then that's the end of it kind of thing. And I never get to get enjoyment of going up on stage or going backstage and having people, you're fucking great, man. And all the parties and all the fun shit like that. Mind you, it would probably wear me out. But, uh, Hmm. But anyways, but that is really where the action, you know, and, and in that way... 
you know, for me, I can get by as a one-man operation. But in terms of scale, you know, like most of the big studios went out of business. All the ones that have lovely gear and all that stuff. It's just such a shame. It's just like, you know why? Like I was the one that Miraval in France, where it's such a beautiful place, you know, and that's a lot of really insanely, you know, classic albums are made there, you know, yeah. Labor of Love and uh, God Shardy made all their albums there. And the Wall was partially done there and Cure albums were done there. Gypsy Kings. And it's insane how much shit was done in that place. And it, that was actually 2007. We were the last guys there because they and George Michael's and Wham did make it big there. Cause you imagine yeah. like the, the money that was going through the place. Yeah. And they said, oh yeah, no, this place now will sit idle for like three, four months, you know, because Mick Jagger and Sade and all these people, you know, they're not <laughs> making $250,000 albums and that. Like they're those are sort of being made, but that's not the industry anymore. So yeah, it's, it's like, not the way it works. Kind yeah. yeah, I was going to yeah. ask. Um, you know, sites like Pitchfork and, you know, there's a few others that sort of, they do have a stronghold in, in telling people what's good. And SoundCloud, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, I was going to ask uh, Dave, you know, what's your opinion on, on that sort of hub, you know, compared to the, the Cream magazines and your Rolling Stones, you know, that would tell you what's good, you know, review albums and, you know, how do you see it? Well, I guess in that in that way, there 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 are similarities, isn't it? In the sense that here's you've got the people of the publications that you've got other people hoping that they will cover them and say that this is good and give their seal of approval. And so I guess that that constantly is manifesting. I think that's it's that whole seal of approval from one human that's bestowed authority mm-hmm. to other people that want to. And also, I guess it's also seen as 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 a conduit for well, this is the hip stuff that everyone's looking. So the momentum of it being the popular place, everyone feels it's got a pulse on the whole indie thing. So nothing as Noel Gallagher and Oasis said, nothing succeeds like success. So I, I guess that's kind of the situation they're in. But just as you pose the question right now, it just seems like, you know what, in some ways it's a, just a different manifestation of the uh, form-wise of the same mm-hmm. thing, is trying to sell yourself to the public, trying to have someone that is considered, you know, oh, the king likes my music. Oh, well, we yeah, must see yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> you must well, be worth watching. The king. I saw you on TV. You really are doing something. Well, in, essence, <laughs> in essence, Dave, you're kind of talking about the... Um, basically the the pluses of being in a situation where you can be a band like Arcade Fire who you could look at as a kind of interface where you've got the collision of like the separable um, technology, um, the iPod culture that was that was anticipated by, you know, digitization of music and the CD and all that stuff, right? And then this total, um, this ability to broadcast your personality, like as a band and as a brand through social networking and all these outlets, and then build a community through that so that the mm-hmm. idea of the, the, the album that starts and finishes, um, it, it doesn't, doesn't matter, but you can still survive. Mm-hmm. And also, people will listen to your album from start to finish once you've hooked them in anyways. Once you get to the mm-hmm. point where a band like Arcade Fire has come, then you friend. can make full-length <laughs> albums. And people yeah. will be interested in the whole album and won't expect that every song will be a single, for sure. Absolutely. But I mean, in the case of Arcade Fire, they kind of started a bit with the album. They, and they, they got the good momentum with the whole Broken thing, because that happened. Suddenly, people were suddenly, indie music became something. People started going to clubs to see indie band. It really shifted the, the whole culture. I remember that. that yeah. Didn't, I, didn't David period. Bowie play with them before they were, like, 
big? Like no, I think, I think they were getting pretty big when he gave the seal of approval. Uh, they had already uh, like, okay, I thought it was Pitchfork gave that like a nine point five. Yeah, or something, exactly. <laughs> and well, I tell you, it's crazy because they actually approached you know Arson Crafts, the, the Broken Socials label, and oh, okay. offered the funeral. And they, I guess they, their hands were just a little full then with the Frost oh. record and with the Broken and the Stars record. And it's like, oh, you know, nice album. It's not something we can do now. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah. they went to merge and the rest is history. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah, but, so I, mean, uh, I just wanted to know what, what the deal was then, like, in terms of... Um, Oh, you know what? I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, you're talking about how generally bands are like amalgamating the different social media and all the sort of available resources and then trying to uh, establish, um, you know, some kind of situation where they have an audience and a, and a going concern and people hearing. The well, Dave, you saw the Feist thing. I don't hear, I don't know what I would, what I would know, but I just sense she's not on the radar anymore. What's happened to Feist? Oh, very simple. She's working on new stuff. She's an incredibly creative person. She does her own thing. She's pretty grounded in her agenda. She knew that this was going to be when the let it die, because she first made it in France, and she saw it, and, you know, and then she got signed to Polydor, and, and so she knew that, okay, this is going to be like, I'm not going to have a life. It wasn't like, say, 2004. She knew, okay, I'm not going to have a life for the next five years. Like, I'm going to be doing... To really do this, I am, you know, I'm going to be on the road all the time, and I'm going to be, I have to, and they're going to have a heavy schedule. I'm going to have to be like, oh, you got to be. Did she? And she did that. Is she finished that phase? Photo shoot, and then she did the reminder, and it blew up way huger than she would have expected. Well, obviously, once that iPad thing, I mean, it's just insane. I mean, it's like. What did, what did she do with iPad? Uh, or whatever the I, the Apple thing when they use the one two three four two. Oh yeah, okay. Did, but where is she today? She, is that over? Listen, well, let me finish. Is so 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 anyway so she uh, um, so basically she uh, um, uh, did that stuff that blew up did the touring and obviously you know it's very lucrative so I mean it's not like oh my god I I, I desperately need to make more money um, so it's like she had a plan and she's just like no once this all like doesn't I'll do the reminder album and I will follow it up with the tour and I'll su- support the thing and. You know, and it was more successful than she planned. She said, I'm going to take, like, two years off, and then I'll start making my next album. But, like, she's calling the shots. It's like, here's here's the scoop. So So she dropped out, you're saying? So she said, no, she didn't drop out. She's conserving her energy, and she knows she she can make another album when she wants to. She's already now made two huge albums that most people would just, you know, die to have in their career. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if she really doesn't have to make any albums if she doesn't want to. I mean, but at this point, obviously... the record company. Well, what is she doing personally? Did she get married or something? You have a kid? No, she's not married. Not have a kid. No. Because um, well, that has to be the explanation, right? But but uh, but uh, no no so no no she's working on music. Don't get no she's active and she will be back and she'll have an album and uh, she's doing fine. Okay then, uh, who was the other? Um, Amy, what, what happened to Amy Winehouse? What happened to Amy Winehouse? Well, she sold 11 million albums, so she's in a similar situation. It's like she's made people a lot of money and herself, and if she wanted, if she needed suddenly a quarter million dollars, she'd go out and play a date. And so it's like, I don't know, no one's complaining. <laughs> I remember what I was going to ask you. Um, I just remember my own experience. Um, I don't know, are you based in Montreal? or? Well, anyway, no, out, out in the Prince Edward County. Ah, right, okay. Oh, Eastern Ontario, yeah, between, like, Kingston and Toronto. 
Okay, so you might remember then um, a show from, I guess it was like, probably mid to late 80s, early 90s, called City Limits. Um, yeah. Yeah. About okay. midnight. Yeah, man, you know what and I'm And who was it, Chuck the Janitor? No. Um, you know, City Limits, it was, it was I think it was uh, much, a much music show. Yeah, it was. It was. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so basically... Oh, was Christopher Ward the host of it then, maybe? I or think no? so. Yeah, I think so. But was it like midnight to three in the morning or something? Was it late, though? Was it yeah, originally so. a first... Yeah. yeah, and then I think it was replayed at another time or whatever, but it was all like indie music, right? Uh, it was yeah, yeah exactly. The stuff, the cool, trippy stuff of that time that wasn't being played in the regular pop rotation. Right, exactly. So now I remember, like, you know, back then as sort of like a, you know, early teens, whatever, and I was like dutifully listening to, like, watching City Limits, like, all the time, right? Writing down all the songs I loved and trying to tape them and videotape them and this and that, right? And so, it, in a sense, I, I almost, like, burned myself out on the whole indie um, and trying to uh, create an indie collection and singles and songs that I liked. Um, yeah. So I have to say that the whole indie revival that's happened sort of in the 2000s and in conjunction with iPod is completely passing by because I just can't friggin' keep up and I have no desire to. And, uh, and it's maybe sad. Um, but uh, also it, it's a funny thing because, you know, we're so inundated by anybody out there who's got a guitar, whatever, goes on YouTube, yeah. creates a MySpace page, um, you know, it's just, you know, and everybody's got this iPod collection that's ridiculous, and then... Well, you know, how much so audience often, can you give? Right, and then every so often there's a Justin Bieber or, or a Rebecca, whatever her name is, Black or whatever. And, yeah, so, I mean, I don't know, I got burned out. You know, and I got burned out probably in, like, 1995. <laughs> yeah, what that, what that means, Jen, is your chemical body could not perceive what could be perceived on the TV and chip landscape. <laughs> it could not keep up with it. Yeah, but also just you quit fanaticizing about music on a certain level, too. I wonder exactly. Yeah, where does that come yeah. from? Yeah, I, the music as community. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was, it's almost like we were talking about earlier, like the whole Twitter phenomenon and, uh, you know, just things breezing by you at such a speed and with such volume that you can't possibly process it. Read it anyway. It's going to read it. What's it there it for? Slows it slows down. Well, it's, almost feeling. Like, it's almost like, hey, you know, Feist was, was foisted upon me and I really liked her and I happened to like that album. Um before it kind of hit and uh but you know i'm telling you like it's just sort of like what's the difference between listening to a uh a, a bona fide or supported indie band that has like an indie label versus some dude with a ukulele on youtube like i've just lost all perspective <laughs> well, what's the, well what, what's the what yeah yeah, yeah well i guess you know in that I mean? sense, there was a well there was a book funny you just remind me of that book that you guys read was it the, the uh it's not called the Cult of oh what is it called? Hang on, I'm looking at my bookshelf because maybe guys have read it. Oh my god, the Cult of the Amateur, I think it's called. Okay. Recent book, but it was basically they were interviewing uh, the uh, Alan Parsons, the guy who worked on Dark Side of the Moon, and he had his Alan Parsons project made pretty meticulous sounding records. And uh, he had said he goes, well, I'll never be making these kind of records anymore because they don't spend this kind of money on record, so it's sort of sad. You're very unlikely to get a great Dark Side of the Moon. I don't know if that's true, mind you, mm -hmm. but how do you be an audience for a lot of music that's just okay? Mm -hmm. you know? And I get mm -hmm. that. People will send me stuff, and it's like, will you mix this, or would you be interested in producing this? 
and I got to be honest, you know, most of the stuff that I that I hear, I'm like, well, I've heard all this kind of before, and I don't. What really stands out about this? Well, I don't know. Uh, what is the singer amazing? They're okay. And, you know, there's just a lot of that, and then it's like, well, who's going to listen to this? What's the point of all this? You're not going to listen to it. You said you were exhausted in 1995 trying to <laughs> ferret this shit out. So yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? So really, for me, unless you're like, dude, so I, in that way now, in some ways, I'm kind of like, I'm not really, you know, getting paid major or anything like that, but it's almost like, and partially it's because I'm just not interested in mm-hmm. just doing more crap and putting it out there because I know it just really ultimately serves no purpose. It's just, mm-hmm. it really isn't, but I don't want to say that to any of those bands. So they like, go ahead, and sorry, can't do it right now, and good luck with it kind of thing. But I don't think it's going to, because there is so much music out there. So that's where it's at right now. But there's hey, an excitement of trying to find something that will yeah, rise right, above l- musically, l- all that stuff that will excite people to go, I do like this guy. Hey, hey, Dave, 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 Dave. Let, let me, uh, two points here. You use the word ferret out, and I love the way Jen says, I, what's the difference between an indie and some guy on YouTube I like for the moment? Yeah. Now, this is exactly what I mean. Uh, what it means is you, your mind can't categorize, so you don't have the critical judgments anymore, so you go whatever. But the Android meme, what that means is the Android culture, they give you categories, which are just memes. They do the evaluation for you, and it's for itself, because you practically can't do it. You can't ferret out. And you end up, like Jen said, I can't tell the difference between a guy on YouTube and an indie band. Who's indie? Right. Well, the difference is, the, 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 on a certain level, is the guy with the ukulele is really indie, which is a horrifying thing. And then <laughs> the, 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 the guys who are indie that you really see and have lots of ones, that's because they have a record label. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, there's a real indie, exactly. human-scale indie. And then there's the Android meme indie. <laughs> yeah. Okay, can I say something real quick? So like exactly. all the performers, all the performers are kind of like involuntarily <laughs> resonating with serendipity. That's why there's no difference between the latest, um, you know, indie band that has its chops and the guy with the ukulele. And so it's like, <laughs> it's kind of like McLuhan saying we have to know a comprehensive, immersive understanding of the infrastructure in order to be able to find the switch whether we want to turn it off or turn it on. And this goes back to, like, I once... Is this Bipple? Tor- is this yeah, Bipple? Richard. Yeah, yeah, Richard did... Uh, so, Jen, did you look at Richard's uh, 2002 video I sent you? Uh, not yet, not yet. Okay, so yeah. no, th- this is Bipple, though. Then there's the cult of Save It For Later, which is also, <laughs> in and of itself, um, um, you know, something that'll sink you down into the vanishing point, and if you live, you live. Maybe you'll remember your train of thought, maybe not. Anyways, the thing that I'm sort of interested in is that you see how everyone is talking about the tetradic retrieval of vinyl, and part of that is like some like um, guilt of knowing that because the record industry lost its way, let's say like between well, I don't know, forever and then 2005 when basically <laughs> it was over, right? Like no one yeah. buys anything, and now it's because of um, search queries. That you see and yeah, when Napster and LimeWire came in. Exactly, and that's basically also what happened with the Middle East, because someone in the Middle East saw what year it was on a calendar on a smartphone and realized it was bullshit. But anyways, <laughs> um, the thing that's interesting <laughs> is, like, because the music's free now, we can just buy records, because then that's an emblem to say, no, 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 really, 
I like this. I'm not just getting a torrent. I'm not just downloading it from a blog from someone who moved to Williamsburg that gentrified Brooklyn. I actually yeah. like this. Yeah, yeah, it's this like you know, a badge of honor, and then you have the tactile to, experience yeah. of yeah. turning it and putting spin the black circle and that whole like resonant like. Oh wow! Do you yeah, think a lot of people still have CD players? <clears throat> Do you yeah. think a lot of people still have CD players? Or are you referring to vinyl, or even like just a vinyl? Uh, I think CD accountants have CD players. No, I mean vinyl. Right. I think like people do a lot of people have turntables, or is that just a badge that goes up like just on the mantle, or? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's like it's a badge, and it's also engaging in an experience that has like this like clearly um, an oral history to it. When you when you think of the fact that you know Mm -hmm. this forces you and implicates you in actually paying attention to what you're you know you could be a poser if a poser actually buys the record. It's kind of like, you know, eventually they're either going to sell that collection or they do actually like the music. But sooner or later, if you're going to buy the record, that means you have to buy a record player. And then you actually have to take it out of the sleeve, put it on, put the needle on, you know, scratch it a little bit. And actually engage in something that people have been doing, what their parents and parents and parents were doing. And it's just kind of like, it's retrieving this attention, the concept of like actually paying attention to what maybe the person's actually doing. And then you can make a real judgment rather than just having it constantly be a soundtrack leaving your house and catching public transportation. So you're saying retrieve the economy as an art form. So we'll retrieve these old objects to support the idea that there was an industry in this culture and we'll even buy it to support it. So that way, we're retrieving the economy, which has been virtualized and disappeared. So let's bring it back by bringing back the economy as an art form and bringing back albums. That relates back, I was earlier as mentioned, I read today that about a record, record, not, it's record day on uh, Wednesday or something like that. <laughs> go buy a record. And, and, and the guy who's organizing it said he was so excited, uh, mostly about the Beach Boys, Good Vibrations and Heroes and Villain was going to be released as a single on 78 RPM. Well, the crazy, how's that for a retrieval of a retrieval? It was what? never, how's that for like art form? It was never on 78 RPM. They're like taking it back to an earlier. This retrieves the pet sounds like it was 1935. Oh, yeah. Well, what are you saying? What, what are you saying? Yeah, I'm going to buy the book version of the album. Back when it was a book. <laughs> the manuscript. We got the manuscript of Parker Pepper. <laughs> so when, you look, when you look at it, when you look at it in, that, in this context, we're retrieving high fidelity, because yeah. all music now is listened to in MP3 format, unless yeah. you're a, a, a music fanatic and have got monitor speakers or a good uh, amp set up, and it's kind of rare to see that nowadays. Um, even your hardcore music fans have just said, "Ah, oh, fuck it, I'm, you know, I'm compromising." But uh, when you really listen to music on a high fidelity, high quality system, it's a whole new world. So we're, I think we might be retrieving that, in a sense. I hope we do. Bring back the kinetic space and the old stereo space. I've Absolutely. been hoping that influential people would do that. All it would take is someone like Justin Timberlake or someone to that to go, here's mm-hmm. the way I hear my fucking tunes. And just mm-hmm. like Ghetto Blasters became popular and the iPod, mm-hmm. suddenly it's like, oh, dude, you listen to your music through that shitty plastic thing? Yeah, and suddenly yeah. everyone's like, no, I've got this. Because I remember in the 70s and 80s, yeah, the whole shtick when you were in high school was you wanted to save up 300 bucks because for about 100 bucks you can get Ghetto an old speaker, <laughs> okay amp and a dual turntable and, and get oh. half-decent sound. Yeah, mm. that, was, that, that was the aim of the game when I was growing up was save mm. up for a good amp and speakers, you know? Mm. And, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> well, and, and to the whole kinetic thing that you mentioned is absolutely true because I know part of the reason why I've just sort of almost given up, like, and I, I you know, I <laughs> play music, whatever, my whole my whole life, pretty much. But it's because I'm uh, like I'm a dancer, and I do not understand the removal of that that aspect of listening to music where you engage with us. You know, this is. She You're saying you, you don't understand the removal of dance? Is that what you just said? I don't, I don't understand the removal of the kinetic... Of the chemical, the chemical body within yeah. music. And well, high fidelity yeah. vibrations are... Uh, but they're doing yeah, it in they, this, yeah, like James, oh. exactly. But they're doing it in this cheap way, for example, where you go to a concert or something, and the bloody bass is so freaking loud, and the, the, everything is so loud, it's distorted. You can't yeah, but that's a style. That's a certain. That's you know mm. the dub, the increase the bass. Just people people mm-hmm. appreciate their. I have this argument with my girlfriend in my car all the time because I, I put the bass up to max, and she's like, "Why do you got to put the bass so high?" And I'm like, "Because mm-hmm. I feel it in my heart when I put the bass up." But that's she's like, cheap. No, that's and, like and, taking <laughs> coke, man. Like that's I'm that's talking so about when you idea. actually that's hear totally the music <laughs> and, you're, and you're in the waves, right? Like, and you're mm-hmm. dancing with that, and you're in space, and you're in sound. As a chemical vibration effect. Yeah. Like hey, you know what's really bizarre? They did a recent, I don't know who did it, but they basically took young people and they said, all right, we're going to let you, and they played them music, they let them hear, I think it was via headphones, and they uh, cut from vinyl the mm. full, like, bitrate CD version. Mm. Not that it's the same, but, but it's just, like, not compressed into MP3. Mm. And, the, uh, and then wow. the, uh, all the different formats, and then they did, the MP3, and, and it's so funny. All the kids said the MP3 sounded the best. Hmm. Oh my God! And it was a thing, a 128, a 120, like just not even like a high five. That's oh their aesthetic, though. That's their aesthetic. That's their aesthetic, so exactly. Justin, if Justin Bieber, if Justin Bieber released an album on vinyl, that would be the equivalent yeah. of like young people today going through a peyote Absolutely. Recently. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why the record companies don't exploit that. I know. I, to me, that I've been thinking that <laughs> for years. I'm like, why isn't one of these big guys bring soon. back it fucking stereo snobbery and audiophileness? Yeah, because these kids are ta- they're not listening. It's tactile. Yeah, but they, they could bring it back as the kids would enjoy it in the sensibilities they have now. Having a big-ass stereo would be as exciting as getting Guitar Hero, which they're all bored. Well, maybe they can't hear it that way. There, there's a whole scene. Oh, they, well, they can. Even... Sure they can. Well, you just There's said no they like the MP3, and that's low quality, is your point? That's right. But when you start to hear, though, the real, like, for me, I know this is a DJ. Like, the difference between, like, I know, like, probably both, this sounds crazy, but probably fidelity-wise, the best um, pop music pressing that I've ever heard, I remember I had a 12-inch, 45 RPM, just single. You could literally see the width of the grooves was about a millimeter wide. Uh-huh. It was a Spandau Ballet True, so it was cut in about 85 <laughs> or whatever. And when I put that on in the club, my system sounded like it was a $20,000 system. When I put on most other music, it sounded like these nasty, brittle, nasty-sounding Sir and Vegas speakers with kind of just weird balance and yucky-sounding kind of thing. And that same thing, I know people in stereo stores, there were certain records that they could play that the fidelity was just so damn good in the recording, the press. Well, see, Dave, you're, you're, being a, you're being a fundamentalist of a certain media experience. 
No, I because totally I would agree. take an yeah, eight-year-old kid and say to them, listen to this one and listen to that, and these guys will say they take the MP3. But I would say if they were influenced by me, they would pick no, the they wouldn't. Uh, big speakers. It, unless you they grew would. them in a test tube, if they grew up in their normal media environment, they don't have ears, Dave. They don't know what I it means disagree. to listen to something. I disagree. I think that, that, that people could adapt a lot faster. Well, how could they have that? You can't limit the environment to that experience. That's, that, that would be like saying you can't drop the drums out of a tune. And I remember that when I would DJ at clubs at first, and it was kind of a square club, when I play songs where they would drop the drums, I remember people on the dance floor going, what are you doing? Like, what happened to the fucking song? Can't hold the beat. Where's the beat? <laughs> yeah. so that's, 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 and then like a three months later, those same people would cheer when those parts came. But at first they hated it, so if anyone said, you can't do that, no one's going to get into that, then they said, mm-hmm. no, it's just not going to work. No one would have done it. Well, it didn't seem to work at first, and then suddenly people... So you're not, looking at, you're not looking at the question of what is, stays constant and what changes. So this, what seems to be constant changes later, and what was the changeable becomes constant. Like, you can't determine which is the constant in people. So when McLuhan says on page 11 of Take Today that the medium is the message, but man is still the content, he puts still in quotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's still. That means dead, I guess. What does still mean in quotes? See, you're not, you're not noticing that these kids do not have ears. Unengaged, not moving. I don't think yeah. that they would come to the vinyl. I don't think they would come to the vinyl for the reason that we all uh, perceive, which would be logical that it. That's would right. Be they would not. And like, look at the Rebecca no, Black. The ritual more so, you think. Rebecca the Black is a big hit. The Rebecca Black's yeah. a big hit, and all the commentators, the older people, say, "What the hell? Are these kids listen to this for? It's crap." But they don't know the kids have different ears. Mm-hmm. If we focus on specifically the stupid viral music like Rebecca Black, and if someone, just for a joke, actually put it out on vinyl, it would be <laughs> like the real end of the world. <laughs> because it would turn all those kids, like they wouldn't even, they would just get it as another novelty, just like any other thing. It's like, oh, here's a new thing. Wow, it's, what is that? I don't know. It actually, it makes sound. I don't, get your, I don't get your point, Richard. I don't know what you mean by putting it. Mean, like, what happens to them? Like, they like it or they don't or what? Like they the do like it because of the whole novelty that they can't believe it actually works. They're not listening to how it sounds. They just can't believe that a needle can read the information and have it go out. Oh, you're saying they speakers. would see that? You yeah, know, Richard, you have a great it. way of, of like, surrealistically, I don't know, I never know what you're talking about. What the heck are Thank you, you referring to? I think that they would be more attracted to the ritual of playing back a record with a viral hit like Friday than they would be playing a you're record saying that they'd be, that it sounds better. Okay, it sounds like you're saying that they'd love to go into a room and put a record on a record machine. Is that what you're saying? Right, well, so it sounds not so much of a factor. It's just that look at this technology. It'll fucking put yes. the needle on the thing and it plays the tune. I can't believe it. That's it's great. got nothing to do so with the So that would be the initial thing, not the, oh, it sounds better. You know, Richard's the example of what we're talking about. I don't know, Richard's in his 20s or 30s or 40s. He's a young guy. I have no clue what Richard is thinking about. I, I, your mind is like weird. <laughs> now, now. Well, I take Richard, that as a wow. compliment. <laughs> Adrian, Adrian yeah, that's right. You've got Bob stumped. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I have never been able. He's been on every mom, and he speaks for a short time, and he's got to go back to work or something. But I never know what the hell he's talking about. I mean, I have no clue. You, you guys are serious? He's saying if you took the kids and put them in a room and showed them how to do an old-fashioned record player, they'd love it. 
Well, I no, guess it was Rebecca Black. The novelty of the vinyl would be more of the... How would they experience the, the vinyl? I'm then, trying to figure then, out square one. First How do they experience the vinyl? How do they experience this novelty? Well, I'm someone happens to buy a record and has a turntable. Well, that means they got to go and see a turntable. No, but the point is that the draw for them is initially more going to be that aspect than, oh, we have to use it this way because it sounds so much better. They're not going yeah. for it because it sounds better. That's the whole point. I can't get to yeah. square one. What the heck you guys are talking about? Richard, that was his point. are you saying you take a kid to a room and you say, look at this weird apparatus. It's got a turntable. I'm going to put a needle on this record. Is that what you're saying? Is, is that square the one? Lure, Maybe we can the, see it. The square right? one lure is that the kid knows Rebecca Black. Now, if you show the Rebecca Black Friday record on vinyl to a kid... You mean put it on a record table? You mean put it on a record turntable? Screw the record table. If you just give them the record, their curiosity... Here's the song you know and like. Oh, no, you mean, okay, they, they hold the record, all right? They hold the record yeah, the, and, the, and the what? Media, the medium in which the information that they intimately know is so foreign to them, they can't believe they have a connection to it. And that curiosity... No, you're, you're saying they would not recognize the record vinyl. What it is. No, would they, they would have to, no... They, would, they might as well be an alien artifact. What? <laughs> I, I don't know if that's significant, but we got to one point it here. Good, it would be a good marketing tool. <laughs> yes. In other words. On the surface, yes. You're saying these the kids don't thing. know a hardware objects. They'd become anthropologists. Exactly. They'd, They'd become anthropologists... <laughs> They become anthropologists to get that record to work, to figure out how to make it work is the thing that would make them anthropologists. Yeah, and he's, the and another incomprehensible he's, sentence. You're, yeah. you're not qualifying who the hell. It's like talking ion. You don't know what the fucking clause is that you're referring to. Bob, I think, well, I think you might be able you to. you got to go with the flow, Bob. No, he'll go with the flow. All the, all the original concepts are flawed that you guys are talking about. You know, yeah, I, I agree with uh, uh, There's something crazy going on here. No, 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 it starts <laughs> off wrong. Oh, well, it is Passover, <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> it's an abyss. It's a void. There is vinyl. There's a huge scene in the Middle East, by the way. Um, Turkey is putting out edit vinyls. There's these guys that are... Now, when you say vinyl, you're, are you yeah. saying people have record players in their homes? Yeah, this is huge. Technique yeah. 1200s or so. So they're buying record players. Trying to get what you vinyl. I buy a record. Where do they buy these record players? Records, records, <laughs> everywhere. Record they, everywhere. 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 They find them in uh, Radio Shack or the Source. Or okay, so they buy them on their front lawn. Now, and they're buying oh, old albums. From someone leaving it on the they're, front lawn. They're getting old albums. The pr- part of your problem, Rich, is you don't listen to anybody. You're going on and on. It's a monologue. And, and I'm listening I'm, and trying to follow you. I'm polite. But you're, I don't know what con- – you don't stop to hear a context of what you're saying. So, uh, so we're trying to establish that there's these turntables, and where do these people get the vinyl records from? From record stores, Bob. This is so there are stores still selling them. Yes. Yeah, they're yes. huge. It's a huge market. There's best sellers right now that you've never heard of, and they're all on vinyl, and they're not on digital download. There's exactly. a huge scene. Everything Dave said an hour ago, I was trying to cut in and say, no, there's a scene. It's huge. Vinyl is here. It's not going anywhere. And okay, so we got that established. So what's Richard trying to say compared to that? That the kids wouldn't recognize a vinyl record? How to get these kids that haven't listened to vinyl to, to listen to it. But you're talking about a demographic of suburban wasps that now listen to MP3s. The rest <laughs> of the world is listening <laughs> to vinyl. You're locked in your little... Coves, and I'm trying to say, hey, guys, <laughs> hey. I don't know. I see a lot of iPods out there. Yeah, but I still see a lot of people walking around with iPods. Yeah, well, in, in, in Ontario, in Ontario, 
I mean, I, I don't know what the stats were, but it was something like, oh, record industry has had 50% growth. They sold, you know, 527,000 vinyl albums last year or something, you know, or whatever. It was like, it was huge growth, but the numbers ultimately were kind of small. I'm not saying that it doesn't have any cultural impact. or anything Yeah, but that's in North America, Dave. They're talking about in fucking Africa. They're talking about in Africa and Greece or someplace. They're not talking about North America. Where, what, what, what places are you talking about? Well, there's okay. a huge final thing. You know, maybe on, more okay. underground than Arcade Fire. What fucking geographies are they in 8-bit? What, name some countries. I'm talking about Turkey. I'm talking about yeah. uh, France. I'm talking about areas of Brazil, yeah, South America, Brazil, particularly Chile. There's a huge vinyl revolution going on. It's amazing. And if you go to oh. JunoRecords.com, you could buy records that are, don't, don't have digital download capability because the DJ, the producer... Is, believe, is Dave. Dave, there are guys out, out there exactly like you that refuse to release digital downloads and only produce on vinyl. And they're 18, 19, 20 years old. And they're, really? They're, yeah, is it more dance running. music based? Or? It's, no, it's, it's no. Like, it's it's no. Like in the Netherlands, <laughs> all kinds. Anyway. All kinds. All kinds. Yeah. But it's also it's a bit because of a this part. makes it harder to rip it. Yep. If they want an MP3, they have their work fucking cut out for them, the little fucking pricks. That's why. <laughs> yeah, because I find with most time with most of the labels, even the smaller labels, the generally the vinyl is seen as more something. Yeah, they can sell at shows and it's a promotional yeah. tool to yeah. some extent, and it's a bit of an art object, but it's not considered like the the focal share of like what potential sales will be, and now they're looking more for iTunes, you know, and, and yeah. hopefully that's going to be 50% of the market. I, I just want to add one more thing, and then and then I'm going to shut up. Here, here's the thing. <laughs> Everybody has their own record label. Okay, I have my own record label. It's called Paranormal Psychoacoustics. I only release my own noise music, and it's it's not, you probably wouldn't like it. It's really noisy. But some people <laughs> like it. I have a friend. He, he's got three acts, and he has his own record label. If you go and look at the list on Juno Records of all the record labels that are releasing vinyl, there are hundreds and hundreds of these little record labels and only releasing vinyl, 7 inches, 12 inches, LPs, EPs, double records, clear vinyl, red vinyl, pink mm. vinyl. For, you know what I mean? There's a lot of variety out there, um, but... Unfortunately, it's reserved for... Why didn't HMV stay alive and sell these things? Because they're stupid idiots. Yeah, they wanted to push top 40 bullshit, Mm -hmm. like Arcade Fire, like like, like all the stuff you're talking about. Who cares about Lady Gaga? Who cares about Lady Gaga? Why do you guys go on Yeah, but wait a minute. Now we're we're totally into content here. We're totally off the rails talking about content. And yeah, okay, well, well, I'll I'll bring it back. I'll bring it back, but I won't cut you off. We're totally off the rails talking about content. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I, mean, I have I, a point I, right after. Yeah, I've got a point. Yeah, 8-Bit, continue without talking about content. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Seriously. Like, who cares what you like and what you don't like and what you're hostile to and what you're not hostile to? <laughs> <laughs> you're on a roll there with the vinyl retrieval. That was good, but don't get yeah. into the content. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, okay, those well, numbers, what you're talking about, there's pressing plants that are supporting that and stuff, but I know personally my friend at the Lacquer Channel, they had the Neumann Lathe, and they got rid of it because, it, you know, it was working okay, but it sometimes needed some work, and it just was not economically justifiable for the every four, three, four months. That That's in North America. So this, he's talking plan. about yeah. uh, this other countries. Yes, okay, yes. Bob, in Winnipeg, there's a store called McNally Robinson Books. 
they just brought in a vinyl section. Like last year, there's probably 300. It's like, it's like going to a comic store and seeing the back issues. It's not like yeah. a huge amount, but the fact that they consciously retrieved it Exactly, yeah. that's the word. Uh, clearly, that's saying something. <laughs> okay, I see this is pet. This is the end of the end. The chip body in 2008-2009 is an example. <laughs> they're they're, they're yeah. dropping the chip body. Exactly. Right. They're over, the, they're, the limits of growth of having endless content, which doesn't matter what it is, but endless content with no time to listen to it, no discernible method outside of shuffle to really exploit it outside <clears> of serendipity, <throat> which reminds you of the song. So this is providing a linear uh, path back to music that's actually consciously, formally in your mind. And yeah, it's like the, the, the bank is trying to form a world currency. <laughs> well, okay, but... but there's uh, some ground here. There's no, it's a nostalgic but, effort to get something after the collapse of the chip landscape. Yeah, you're right. I mean, but in, in this instance, the virtue is a little different. The reason is, is that, like, if a person wants to make music and put it on, on vinyl, it's almost like the piracy of um, it being put out on vinyl is the equivalent of big secrets not being believed due to the fact that they're incredulous. Mm, Meaning, too many if, words I there. Song, if I put out a song on vinyl and I don't feel like it, having it ripped up and put on a blog right away, if I put you're it on vinyl, You're talking about can, authority and control um, based uh, on yeah, the use of so. that medium. Yeah. Well, we're not yeah, sure what Bipple like was saying. He talked about something being incredulous, but try it again, Bipple. What are you saying? Okay. Okay, if I'm a, okay, I'm in a band and we put out a, a record. If we put it right onto iTunes, we might sell it once and then all of a sudden it gets ripped and then everyone else can get it for free because of all the different mediums that or um, websites that you can do that and have files hosted at and have someone blog about it and you can't possibly control it. It's the very thing that kind of like, you know... Okay, so what do you do? That's the problem, so what do you do? Okay, that's the problem, right. So, so in order well, to wait, kind of... Wait, wait, wait. Not, I, don't okay. see it, I don't see it as a problem because it's easy to rip vinyl to digital. It's no, it's not a problem exactly. if you want to simply... And how about this too? Keep in mind, the more people your... that rip your stuff off, the more exposure you get and the more people are following you. So it also indicates that you have some degree of interest. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. but it's not the only means. Is all I'm saying is you want to add another dimension to it by what? Music. By making a vinyl by, record. By making so we're back it, to yeah. marketing again. <laughs> well, People I, I, don't I, know it, what it, they like. They oh, like come on. Like they know. Know. No, that, that doesn't apply anymore, whoever's speaking. No, it doesn't apply. Yeah, apply. I know it is, but it's not right. We've heard here. that cliche. That doesn't tell us anything. That's, well, a, that's an anthropomorphic projection, J.W. or Ion, who's ever there. Apply Back to you, apply Richard. Your incomprehensibility is more interesting. Go ahead, carry on. <laughs> okay, well, okay, so if you want to say it's like it, that's back-to-marketing, so it's like back-to-marketing in the same sense that you're rubbing your head and um, tapping your stomach. It's doing two things at once. You're marketing it, and at the same time, you're bringing people to retrieve um, an old ritual of popular culture that's resonating. So if they do actually, let's say, the place that put out the Rebecca Black video, let's say they actually do it for a joke just to fuck with the kids and actually have like some, you know, put it into like some hot pocket or whatever hot topic store in whatever valley suburb that those people like that music in. If they put the Rebecca Black thing on vinyl, it, it, that's the marketing joke where it's like it brings them back to this alien artifact that they have no idea what it is, but that could kind of get the young kids on the track to kind of see the culture of records and vinyl records and the resonance that that has. But yeah. on the level of a person like myself who has a band, if I want to you know, make music and put it out there, 
I don't necessarily just want to like say like, hey, uh, you know, we're going to promote our music on our blog and ha- connect it with BitTorrent and then have a tech blog say that, you know, a million people downloaded my free record and it was great promotion because <laughs> we sold but out. Do you play game. live? Do you play live, people? Yeah. Yeah. And do you, do you, is that uh, where, where you get most of your fun out of, playing live? Yes. And you don't it's, need it's to... Prom- tough, I, mean, it, I used to steal music from records, and I was all, uh, from HMV, and I always thought, you know what, they're, they're so high-priced. But then I, I stopped doing that. And then well, that, what is it? Why, how did you steal? You steal music from records. What's that mean? Old school. The physical like, records I stole. It was <laughs> like a reaction to the fact... You stole <laughs> albums. You're saying you stole <laughs> yeah, albums. Yes, yeah. What, what the hell? Am I not being using words? I stole Yeah, you're using too many things. words. You're using too many oh, words. You, hey, try saying this in 10 words. Say what you're trying to say, Richard, in 10 fucking words. <laughs> stole records from HMV. Stopped. Napster happened. And I felt like I was justified because I, I, what I was responding to that motivated that, clearly I was not alone with. And that destroyed the entire music industry. And I don't think I'm the only person that ever thought of that. And the fact that... <laughs> I don't know what you thought of. Well, yeah, we definitely, definitely right, well, thought too about many it. Too many work, and I'll talk about that. It didn't become a grievance, you know. It's like yeah, you think about it, but it, you know, you can get over it. It's, it doesn't have to be a grievance. Is Richard gone? Well, I'll tell you this: HMB had a policy of no, no questions asked returns, and it killed him because I know the guy who worked there. There's a whole fucking room in there of CDs that probably work fine. That they said, I don't like this, or I don't want I this, or to it's it. no good. Enough. There was one guy that they literally had up security guards because. They had a pile of receipts. He would buy a CD, he'd go home, and he'd transfer it onto his hard drive, and then he'd bring it back, and he'd get a refund, and he'd buy another CD. (laughs) And he went back, and they literally had a stack, like about two inches thick, and they sent him, like, they served him with notice, you can no longer shop at HMV. (laughs) But he said that was partially what, like, also they went out of business. And also they would have in-stores sometimes, and it would get out of control, and people would wreck merchandise. And they had a lot of employee theft. Well, what what would happen also is that the employees, like my friend, would, you know, be managing or you know locking up the store, and he could take as many CDs as he wanted, bring them home for the night, rip them, which he did for me. He brought home like thousands and just went go ahead, and Mm -hmm. you know it's like, well, that just usurps everything. You have Richard. I think Bipple's gone. He does this every week. He comes in, like in his work period, he can talk at a certain point, and he comes in, and he goes on for 20 minutes and saying a bunch of shit, and then he calms out. He conks out. He has to go back to work, and we never figure out what he's what, what well, he's doing. All he was, I think what he was proving, simply, is that you can, you can see that all times are present, and you can you know, decide to use whatever technological form you want in conjunction with all the other ones. And the dynamic shift. I'm talking about Bipple's communication theory. <laughs> what does well, he try to communicate? Yeah, I think the idea of high fidelity got him excited. Yeah. No, no, in general, his style of communication. Did you notice he sort of says too many words? He, um, he's, well, yes. I don't know. I deal with kids like that all the time. <laughs> Where? Where do you do that? You know, teaching university or... Oh, know, okay, okay. So that, this is interesting. Got some evidence here. What are these kids? They talk too much? Um, I think there's a drive to self-expression and a drive to, um, you know, play with language, uh, certainly, I would say in his case. Translate Um, themselves into their mouth. They're trying to preserve the mouth. I suppose, yeah. It's it's a kind of... They're um, hyper overdrive. They talk really fast. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, there's there's that. There's that. And just, um, yeah, I don't know, like a kind of gymnastics with with language. Yeah, like... But you just you just have to be equally, um, in a sense, you have to be equally intuitive and creative to deal with it. Yeah. Well, and that, 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 
they they change subjective stances, you know. Well, I intuit. I'm so intuitive. I intuit he didn't get, wasn't getting his point across, or there wasn't a point. It's quite fascinating. Bravo, fascinating. I know that's a shady word, but I like hearing you, Bravo. So you're getting all feisty and pissed off. Oh, this is nothing. This is nothing, man. Bravo scene versus tough Bravo now. You've got to come on Brad rewrite, my friend. Yeah, that's the real Yeah, you bring Ian around. I start fighting. Yeah. What's interesting is it does bring up the question, like when he was talking about um you know the confrontation with with vinyl do these kids you know in a sense become anthropologists what do they do with it do they poke it they prod like it they, it. What they do it, it it brings up the the question of like okay the education of um uh, perception you know and and perception in general as McLuhan envisioned it mm. you know how it mm. needs how it do we need to educate people on perception well it's funny you mentioned that because in uh maybe 99 or 2000 when you know mp3 was basically taking over the world uh mm. a lecturer you know doing uh sort of foundations and multimedia just was doing a little example you know we had nice big sort of hi-fi set up in the auditorium and he goes right i'm going to show everyone an mp3 and then i'm going to show everyone a, a wav file you know 44,000 kilobit blah 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 mm. and we'll, we'll talk about the difference and, you know, at that stage, everyone was just shocked because they weren't so attuned, you know, they didn't have the iPhones in their ears 24-7. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, look how much compression and how much you lose and the top and bottom ends and la, 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 la. And whereas mm-hmm. nowadays... The ears are subjective. Yeah, but yeah. keep going. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, you're right. You're definitely right. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, kids, you know, they they don't care. They're actually, you know, and I'm quite the same. I'm like, well, hey, I enjoy it. And my speaker setup is so different from the next guy's, you know, so it's going to mm-hmm. be different. Regardless, and I just thing enjoy I gotta it. Admit, do the MP3 now conversions is a lot better than it was oh, yeah, three years sure. ago, even. The high end, especially, it sounds a lot more intact. Than it did but before. still, when, oh, when you compare high five, there's no comparison. Okay, okay so content, content means nothing um, against what your own subjective preferences for the aesthetic that each of these technologies provide. Hey, Jim, what do you call a culture where most of us spend most time deleting things? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, who do you do? that? I spend a lot of time, if somebody says a link, click on it for three seconds, delete. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm canceling constantly. Yeah. Mm. Wait, is that culture? What is that? Too much, too much content. That's your pattern recognition. Yeah, I know too much. That's probably it. I've seen that. I've seen uh-huh. that. <laughs> Done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The uh, that pattern recognition. That's probably true because it's like an intuitive. Um, it's just an intuitive reaction. You know what it's all about. You've got the content already. If somebody from the 19th century was watching me, they'd think I had ESP. Mm. Mm-hmm. But someone from the 19th century can't watch us, unfortunately. <laughs> Oh. You know, isn't that funny? If humans have said that, and I know I have, and everyone has, imagine if you were in this era, or imagine if they were here, and it's like, you can imagine it, but yeah, it ain't going to happen. It would never, never actually be there. No, it actually does happen now. There's so many cultures <laughs> talking to each other who are so different. Well, that's true. That is kind of expressed in that sense. That's yeah, tourism. Thing. Tourism is probably the biggest avant-garde happen. Hey, Dave, you got to change your phone. Your levels of your phone have become irritating. Yeah, did you switch? No. Oh, we said no. 
Bring no, no, yes. The audio has become uh, more harsh or something. Okay. Yes. Hey, the tourism is the most avant-garde uh, experience. That people, the jet industry sends people all over the world meeting different cultures. Mm-hmm. That is avant-garde. That's the closest thing you can get to a surreal experience. Yeah. Yeah. I really think so. I don't know. I, I've done Not that. anymore. Now the digital takes you there immediately. You have edible spaceships. Edible when spaceships. Off, when you get off a plane and the air smells different, the weather's different, yeah. and suddenly the yeah, sounds so. are different, the signs are different, the language is different. It is like a cool thing. It is like kind of like, I don't know, whatever we're just speaking of. It is Going cool. to a different century. It's surreal. surreal. Avant-garde. It is avant-garde. But because you think you're in the same place, you don't know that you're a 19th century person encountering things. Because mm-hmm. if you go through the normal tourist channels, you go to the regular hotels and all that and miss what actually is different. No, no, you've yeah. got to go to the smaller towns to see if there's still some culture that hasn't been completely globalized yet and still has a sense of that localized. Oh. Yes, still You're on the it's a chemical a experience, time. chemical body experience, yeah. You can search a long time. Wait, 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 you can go to Oaxaca. No, that's true. They're all taking over. They all got pizza joints in the whole thing. Right? <laughs> People love it. They want it. Yeah. I remember when I was in Mexico in 93, there were millions of songs in all the clubs with all the people who didn't speak English, and they were all permutations of two unlimited. <laughs> and it's like everyone just instantly got it. Didn't matter what language, where. Hey, two unlimited was great. Yeah, until you had to dance to it like oh for hours. <laughs> I love two unlimited. Two unlimited was great. Yeah, it's funny. You know, a lot of cool stuff came out of like Belgium. And Europe, you know, with Technotronic, I think was from Belgium. A lot of like influential pop dance music. It's, it's interesting. And Boney M too. It's oh, interesting. Yeah. And then and an Ace of Bass and it's and well, KLF. I guess the KLF. Not England though, KLF. But but I'm thinking like actually mainland Europe, like yeah, from like Germany or places like that. And yeah, there's been some ones that have been like massive successes in North America. Millie mm-hmm. Vanilli. Well, I actually Millie Vanilli was done by Frank Ferry and the guy who did Boney M. Ah. Well, I just got back from living in the Netherlands, and it's really interesting because, uh, like, I was living in Amsterdam, and, of course, um, the, the Netherlands was in the World Cup, right, until the final, and when, when the boys came home, you know, like, they were choppered in on, like, you know, army, you know, army helicopters, blah, blah, blah. They land in the, right in the middle of the museum plane, right, and these guys come out. And it's not, you know, your typical sort of, they do a little bit of their sing-song, you know, nice kind of European folky type music. And then it's... <laughs> and it's the whole planet gets it. Yeah, it was, it was totally... <laughs> it's very, well, that ravey stuff does have a very Teutonic kind of seriousness about it, too. Eh? Yeah. It's a little more with those orchestra hits. Kind and it was, of, yeah, it was just like the normal thing. It was, jaw. Like, it was just like the, the equivalent of playing the national anthem. I mean, there was a DJ yeah, up yeah. there, the team's up there. It's like just wow, wow, yeah. wow, yeah. Yeah, it's like a, it's like the, yeah, the community meme. Mm-hmm, totally. Travel. <laughs> yeah. That, that, well, that's, I mean, the music now, uh, we were saying earlier before you joined in, it, it really does. It's, it's, it's totally like 92, 88 to 92, like all of New Britain, you know. It's all mm. house with the organ sort of so, Dave, right now, if 8-Bit's listening, he's saying, what's wrong with Dave? He's still talking about North America, whereas 8-Bit's thinking of these other environments and thinks that's significant. If he's still, well, 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 is 8-Bit still here? 
Yeah, we've melded our thoughts together, Bob. I, I don't know if you were listening. I agree 100% with the organ stabs and this new movement to 88-92. You know what I mean by that? Where mm-hmm. the music from 88 to 92 yeah. is being rehashed right now. in Absolutely. The sentiment stuff. lyrically on the floor, snap rhythm as a dancer, all the shit. If you put out those hey. songs right now, they would sound so right. Dave, you got to turn your phone down. It's really irritating. I'm so sorry. I, I, yeah, I don't know what it is. Your, your volume has become distorted. Uh, just sort of turn it down. Can you call me back on the line or something? No, no, no. Just uh, let's have other people talk. Where I'm talking now, is that okay? Yeah, that, that's lower. Yeah, but let's have other people talk. I mean, eight bits yeah. talking. The Go ahead. Organ, the Hammond organ, just uh, that that Zappa even used the Hammond organ, Bob. So you, you know, the the very deep church-like organ stab is is in every record that I'm hearing. Like right now, as as I'm li- listening to you guys talk, I'm going through the vinyl uh, on on Juno to decide what my set list is going to be. On Friday, and every song has this Hammond organ, boom, 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 boom. It's like this one, two, one, two thing, and and uh, it connects to everything that you're hearing right now. That that organ sound. So I think that we agree. We finally came to some consensus that yes. Of what? What did you guys get? That there's a trend somewhere, 88 to 92. For who? For, uh, for not for all the demographics around the world. So m- it might just be that vinyl is big in the Netherlands and Turkey and Italy and France and that MP3s are big here, but the sound itself is a commonality, mm. which, is, which is this kind of deep organ kind of lots of bass, let's feel it, let's all so, sort of close our eyes and get into it, I think. Does that make sense? I don't want to... Mm. The sound yep. itself is resonating, whereas the mediums in which we're listening to the sounds might be different. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. resonating because it's four on the floor house music, and that beat is irresistible from God, from the village people, mid seventies. You know, what I mean, it's just they had a live guy doing it then. But I mean, this is pretty cool when you think I to play a simple beat for three and a half minutes. That takes talent. It really yeah, does. It does. I'm yeah. saying that sarcastically. And, no. Uh, and, uh, 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 but I mean, it, it, it is, I think, has resonance because it's kind of like that other thing we were mentioning with those sort of those rave, that particular sort of motif and that rave that just like people just couldn't resist. Is these are just things that humans feel as biological beings. These beats are just really natural. People mm-hmm. can pop to them and everything. Rhythm as a dancer? <laughs> yeah. It's the action. You can see the heat. So oh, I think, yeah, that is why it has resonance, it has resonance yeah. whether it's on the MP3s or on a yeah. big club speaker. So, so Dave, you, you oscillate between, uh, this is the usual, the same old, same old, as well as how everything's changed. So then you have to be particular about what's changed and what remains universal. Well, music's always connected to a deeper level. Um, throughout maybe, let's say, the 80s, 90s, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, and that hasn't changed. It resonates at that deeper level. So all this talk, you know, is sort of mute to a certain degree, so you can flip to both sides. Um, and so you were saying... What are you saying? Well, you asked, Dave, you just flipped from what saying... Never, it never, it, yeah, it never so changes to what's the deeper level. And yeah. Well, yeah, well, okay, deeper level. What were those words referred to? What's a deeper level? Well, maybe that that cellular vibration where it hits you in the fucking, in the bottom of the belly. And you're saying that's what's constant? 
Yes. And the heartbeat rhythm. Mm-hmm. That's true, probably. Well, you know, certainly in the live context. Back to um, tribal drums all the way on. Mm-hmm. Through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But wasn't our point well, sort of funny. earlier that, that there's a problem? Yes, the kids did like the MP3. Yeah. So there's a problem when you start entering because the, they're the MP3 connected. They didn't grow up with it, so how would they recognize it? Well, I think, uh, was it Dave was trying to say it doesn't matter because there's still that resonance within it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dave thinks if he, if he could expose the kids to some vinyl stereo or something, that they would uh, be helped. That was no, I don't think they'd be helped. I'm saying, I'm saying I don't think they'd be helped. I'm saying if Justin Timberlake or some influential type celebrity started really hyping up Fuck, look at I'm look at I'm doing. I got my get the stereo and it sounds like yeah, shit hot. Yeah. Other kids would do that, and then your neighborhood kid would go, "Do you go over to Billy's house? Did you hear the fucking stereo he's got?" Yeah, exactly. And then suddenly another kid would go, "Fuck, I want to get one like that." Well, I can't get that, but then he'd suddenly he'd be obsessed. Then suddenly there'd be a stereo magazine because there's they'd demand. Be hey, Dave, you know why they'd be raiding their grandparents' basement to get out their old turntable? None yeah, of that would happen. None of that. I can see that happening. No, none of that would happen. Yeah. Because Justin would not do it because he would intuit that, like the president, you don't do one thing. You don't emphasize nothing. He's just going to keep surveying and then make new music in response to what's happening. You cannot apply that kind of antidote to anything. That's the nature of the situation now. You're thinking that they went, no, and, and Justin's management wouldn't let him do it, and they would be right because it would be irrelevant to do that. You're not getting the nature of the unchartable situation we're in here. Mm. But the, Maybe the, just well, how do you discount the trend to nostalgia? Yeah, see, I think nostalgia is for people like, who burn out. Yeah, nostalgia, but the, the, uh, that deeper in, level in connection. All, in all areas, yeah. nostalgia. Yeah, in all areas. And so um, there's then reusing the vinyl as a statement in a culture where you can do it. You know, third world, slower economies, you can set up a vinyl market. Well, how about this? Why did uh, Ion say that Zappa's music could only be appreciated now because of the technology? Yeah, the technology. Uh, he embedded stuff that could only be heard by later, later precision, mm-hmm. later technology. But no one's so, using what exactly later precision is technology. The technology. Wait, wait, what, what exactly is that later precision, though? Yeah, wouldn't it wouldn't... For the, the playback systems. Yeah, like Ion's talking about Zappa in... Per, in uh, particular, not that Zappa would be popular, just that he made stuff that could be heard better today. But yeah, nobody's just, around to do that. I'm just thinking 10 years ago, you know, I had the Joy Hi-Fi system that I'd hear nowadays. You know, there's no difference. So what did I mean by, you know, the digital, the digital way it's been represented? That, that's, you know, not beyond the CD format, you know. Yeah, you'd have to ask Ion the details about what he meant by that. It was a passing mm. statement. He was just trying to acknowledge that Zappa was pretty uh, smart or something about something, and he embedded it, and you could really hear. But then, you know, didn't, you didn't squeeze it in your reading, so I don't know what it meant. But the thing is, is that the fact that these kids like this is the most interesting thing. They like MP3 bad quality, because I think the best way to say it is they don't have any ears. They're responding to something else. Yeah, they're always moving, so how could you put them in a room? They'd have to be still. And yeah. They're always on the move. Yeah. They're always... Yeah, I would exactly. say from a sound fast. engineering perspective. They're, they're, you know, they're texting and walking and driving and... and it's all about... Flowing their four bodies. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. nonstop. 
you got to create yeah. the space to fill it, Bob, you know, so... Yeah, Justin would not... See, that's why Justin would not stop and make a program. He's just going to keep tweeting and responding and then come up with something that fits in the flow the kids are into. You can't stop them flowing. So that, you know, Dave's advocating that they stop these kids from their flow and make them do one thing. That's not the point. They just want to be in touch with the flow, and Justin wants to make his next hit will be in response to that flow, where he thinks it is at this point, or whatever he thinks he should say. And mm-hmm. he'll only have that going for a couple of years, and he's gone. The, the, the only constant is change, so of course. Yeah. Hmm. And that change means no, you have no eyes, you have no ears, no body parts. Well, you don't stick to solid concrete retrievals or whatever you want to call no, it. No, you have no body parts. Mm-hmm. Think of it that way. But the baby yes. boomers, which is what what flows the the trends, if you will, because it's the largest demographic demographic on the planet, that age group. Um, if we were to decide that we were trending into nostalgia, we could probably change the whole damn environment just because we wanted to. Yes, I, like I agree. We like w- the engagement of it. We want to pull out our turntable from the, you know, bowels. No, the, no, you know what happened? That would never happen because the baby boomers were too busy as grandparents or parents monitoring the flow of their kids and they didn't get time to determine a trend. They only, the only trend they are is their age. Yeah, I've seen... I've seen it expressed by baby boomers the the wish to retrieve that, but they yeah, don't have but the they time. can't. They yeah. don't have the time, and and then once they are uh, retired, they're irrelevant. They're just part of the tourism industry, and they walk around. I see them all here in Maui. But the kids and what they're doing is what the forty year olds and fifty year olds running the economy are monitoring. The kids run the economy. But I'm thinking now back to the Zappa comment. Now that. Okay, say so my mum, you know, it was impossible to get her into computers, and now the iPad comes, she's hooked, she loves it, you know, totally connected. Now she's got the possibility to stumble across Zappa. Who, your mother? Yeah. Even though your I mother likes it. iPad. She loves it. Well, she what's, what's it. different? What, how's that different? It's, uh, well, you could go into all sorts of discussions on it. I mean, the tactility of it, the... Uh, no keyboard factor, the no mouse factor, you know, a woman who hasn't used that equipment ever, it is, you know, it's pretty hard for her just coordination-wise to operate the... Because the you, you rub your hand over it? Whatever it is, yeah, she just finds it hard and... You, you don't know. type, it's iPad, I don't have one. Do you type oh, on it right, or something? Right, the iPad, yeah, you're just touching and, and pointing, you know. So, they like the, so she likes the ease that she doesn't have to type. Yeah, and there's no like control panels or you know you just. So the iPad it. retrieves comp- retrieves the visual the virtual experience for those who never got hip to the typing world for 20 years. Absolutely, and so in that sense, she's got the opportunity to stumble across Zappa or whoever. You know, yeah, but in the virtual to... experience, you don't stay on anything. You might do it for a couple of days and then you move yeah. on. You can experience it, and that's my my point. Yeah, yeah. You say yeah. I mean, I do it. We play a song in the show. Yeah, great song. Then what's going to yeah, be on no, next no, no, week? But, but like I've, you know, mum's heard Zappa, but she doesn't, you know, showing her something, she's a critic, you know, but she found it herself. But it doesn't that, mean anything. It's not significant that she likes Zappa. No, 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 no. It's just the concept that it's available. And now she's, you know, my mother's hooked up through the Android meme. She can access it individually. It means, you know, it's available. It doesn't matter what she experiences is what I'm saying. There is oh, no mother there. 
that you can celebrate is uh, going to have wonderful experience. She's gone. She got an iPad. She's going to be more involved in the virtual level. Her chip body's been activated. Forget exactly. she's got no more that's mother, my, James. She's that's gone. My, that's my point. I'm saying she's got. She's now got access to to dying. She's disappearing. Her yeah. chemical body mother role is gone, and it doesn't exactly. matter what exactly. she accessed. She's she's been sucked down the drain. Oh yeah, no, no, it's it's that's fine. Yeah, I'm happy for that. She <laughs> 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 has many decades though of her other legacy, so it may be wiped down the drain, but it yeah. doesn't do enough of it there to be there. Yeah. 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 No, yes, now she's got that hooked under her, her arm at all times. <laughs> Yeah, she's found an easy way to access virtual space. Uh-huh. The, the Android you know, it, is, it is addictive, and once you show this, like giving a person a car, once they have a car, oh, the idea of having uh, a back. car seems yeah. intolerable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention just about the sound thing. So the turn your phone down, Dave. Oh, sorry. One, I, I wish I could, but I don't have any It's low I, now. Just keep it where it is now. Maybe move your mouth away from it. Exactly. Maybe try just a reconnection, Dave. You'll get a, bit, a better... No, no, he's on my line. That's... A, Big process. Oh, uh, okay, cool. Yeah. Okay, I just think that the, the one thing with sound is when you hear something sound a certain way uh, and then you clean up the sound and make it better, a lot of times it sounds wrong. Yeah, it's actually better fidelity. It sounds wrong if you're now used to hearing it the other way. That's all I'm going to say. And the other thing I'm going to say, just in terms of related to that, is the ears do play tricks on you. And once you get accustomed to hearing something, Someone else might have heard it and gone, that sounds horrible. And you're thinking, well, well, it sounds fine, but because there's no contrast. And, and, and so the ear gets used to that, and you can have that insane sound. I've seen that. I don't do it now, but in, when I first started doing music, I would, if I stayed up all night doing the mix, I noticed by the end of the night it's more ear fatigue that I'd raise the treble a lot. And then <laughs> I'd come back in the morning, and then I'd put the mix back on. I'm like, oh, my God, that's so harsh and brittle. What's ridiculous? It's like, well, because I had heard it so many times, I got used to it. And uh-huh. <laughs> I thought that, that was right. <laughs> and I, but anyway, so your point on. is that what? What are you saying here? That the kids, they prefer the MP3. Yeah, because of what they know. Because yeah. that's what their ears are hearing, is that's the correct balances and stuff like that, and that sounds correct, and that's how they've been soaking up and, and enjoying these songs. And it goes back to what Ion just said, you know, we don't know what we like, we like what we know. Yeah, but the issue is, is what you know is what you've been immersed in. Mm-hmm. You know, so, what, what, what level do you come in? Your mother now knows the iPad. Yeah. Yeah, but um, that's going this, to be her new, her familiar well, thing in this world of co- of constant change. I mean, geez, you know. That but when I am says that, it sounds like it, it echoes like what you know that people live in the past. No, the new what they the new past can be something like iPad. She's mutated into iPad conditions. That statement by on it does not get into the complexity of the situation where this person knows what she knows and she just discovered it at the age well, yeah. of seventy or something. And she she might not know exactly why she likes it, but she likes she knows it. I mean she she knows that you know she knows that it's a useful tool, but she doesn't know exactly why you know the implications. Right. And the, the, the new church should have one statement up there, which McLuhan said in Forbes magazine, 1966. Self entertainment becomes the new yoga. Yeah. Yeah. Self. What are you going to entertain yourself? How much deleting are you going to do? Mm-hmm. That makes it. That's even a stronger statement than it was in the 60s. I think it is. Yeah, how, how much deleting are you doing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and self-entertainment, that's what you can do with Web 2.0. Mm. 
Self-entertainment becomes the new yoga. Not meditating in a mountain or a retreat or doing, quote, spiritual stuff. You've got to figure out how to juggle your bodies almost like a yogi. And that comes back to your your inner voice is there in the chip body, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now that well, it's all merged now. So the remote control and surfing television channels. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's an early. It's scanning. But Cohen said television in the fifties create the scanning eye, and Go then the, di- the and then the digital allowed the TV to do the scanning for you by giving you the remote, so you think you're scanning, but it's scanning for you because of the choices you can jump to. Hmm. That's like a bipple statement. Too complex. <laughs> Bipple statement. <laughs> yeah, Bipple mode. But the it's interesting, uh, Tina. Look at that. You can when you go to one channel, leaving leaving one channel to go to another, uh, you're actually deleting the channel. Yeah, yeah. Way. You're doing the deleting. So the scanning right. is what you did with analog TV, and the digital allows you to scan and delete. But you couldn't uh, scan. Just you couldn't delete in the 1560s. Right. You could change the channel. That's slow. So I'm, I'm saying that what you think you're doing in the Android meme phase, the digital phase, is just the machine doing it for itself. So, so look at what you think you're doing when you're remote channeling and say, no, no, this is making itself do it using me as an uh, interface. Yeah, it's like looking at taking photos and you just say, well, I'm just pushing a button and the camera's taking a photo. Because I know the space, the space there no, it shows, says there's a lot of photos there. When yeah, I go on exactly. YouTube, I know there's millions of things there. That's the seduction the Android mean gives you. So you see, this is this here is forever, infinite. And so then I allow it to uh, take me along. What here? Because what, it, what did you say there, Bob? What's here? Infinite? The Android meme, you know, you go on YouTube, you know there's a billion YouTubes or something. Yeah. So yeah. you know there's an infinite space. So you think, oh, I'll make a choice. But no, the Android meme told you there was a space where there was all this stuff. And that seduces you into thinking all these possibilities are there. Well, yeah, right. Something like that. Well, it's true, but what else would you do? What other choice than just don't engage that medium? Yeah, it's a hard thing to do. Use a search engine. (laughs) Yeah, not engaging and engaging is both difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the paralysis we're in. Yeah, that's paralysis. But, I mean, you're trying to pin down things that might not be able to be pinned down in this type of language, so... You're, that's enforcing a paralysis, but then is you just there a place which, for moderation in all things? Does that even come into play? In the yeah, well, the, what is your image of moderation? You wouldn't have a, a traditional chemical body image. Mm. Yeah, you, you'd that? say maybe how know. you... Yeah, Choice like, uh, how, are you moderate even if you have uh, access to all that stuff? Is, is, is <laughs> having a computer moderate behavior? Yeah, yeah exactly. Or no, the engaging, the engaging of it. Yeah, that's not, but I'm saying moderation could be applied to whether you have buy a computer or not. Because you can go into other activities. You know what's interesting with all this technological change and it's like where do humanity and, and we personally feel we fit into all this stuff, not sort of the, um, the, the subject of it. Um, I think that there's a bit of a generational thing in the sense that when you talk of kids totally immersed in the environment, but because of the speed up, I talk to kids that are like 24, 25, and they feel like old 
men. Like, they literally, <laughs> like, to them, they talk about 19-year-olds almost like we are. Like, it's like, what are these, you know, what's the new realm? That, yeah. that is, what does it all mean? And that kind of thing. And, and then, of course, all the reference points that we have are all to uh, our experiences in, in technological environments that we grew up in and, and, you know, and to some extent things that we like about them or wish were retained because obviously uh, with all these technological changes that come as all these old jobs, roles, and, and things. That yeah, Dave, if you actually got one of these young things. kids to read, uh, McClone's understanding media, it would be like reading Latin. There would be nothing in the t- in that book's uh, explanation that had anything to do with the people's experience today. So it actually uh, didn't didn't have any staying power unless you got the ideas from it. The the uh, like you know they don't have phone, television, radio. It's not there. Right. Those reference points. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And to, so it's really strange to be born into like such a highly refined state of electric environment. Yeah. So, whereas you know my parents were definitely. You know, their parents were, like, practically pre-electric, or enough that they, it was still, like, pretty, yeah. And then, and so they had those values, and then your parents, of course, grew up still in the school system that had that. So when I grew up in the TV generation, my parents sort of merging with the TV world, but still very much still the old print world coming through. And now when you think... What do you, what do you describe yourself? I, I grew up in the TV. I'm a TV kid. In terms of t- the, the dominant technological, the TV and records basically was like the, 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 the big thing. And that environment is not here anymore. Uh, to a great extent, but it's got the internet and it's totally changed. It's been retrieved inside the internet, of course, and all the mutations that that creates, so it's not here anymore. Well, no, when you, the, the tetrad is that when you retrieve something, it's changed. The, the, exactly. the automobile is a retrieval of the knight in shiny armor. You know, there's no similarity between them. So you don't, you don't have TV retrieved. On the internet? No, you don't think so? No, Sorry. it's not TV. Sorry. TV was sitting in a room, sitting in a room well, uh, with the TV. It's a TV environment, but I'm, that's what I'm saying. Of course it mutates it, but it contains enough qualities of a you Watch the, the same thing that everybody else around. was on that time. You can turn it on and watch TV on it if you want. You can tune into a TV station or watch YouTube. So it's not exactly... Some of that content. <laughs> but Dave, you, you click on that content. You click on that content. And uh, on TV, you can click it off. You couldn't back when you watched TV when there was only TV. The whole thing that you associate with watching TV is not possible today because you can, you can watch it for five minutes and delete it. Yeah. Did you say, Bob, that there was no similarities between the knight in shining, shining armor and <laughs> yeah. the, the retrieval yeah. of a car? I was like, whoa. Yeah, is that whoa, a profound whoa, whoa. statement? That's, uh, <laughs> qualify that, sir, please. Yeah. <laughs> too, far, too far ahead of time for the knight in shining armor. Yeah, the, 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 McLuhan said that the knight in shining armor is, re, is retrieved by the automobile. Now, obviously, the automobile is not a knight in shining armor, so you look for what's common. The thing is that there's a slight commonality between them. That's what's retrieved. Transport, Transport and metal, I guess. Armor, battle, yeah. Um, but the similarity and uh, what was the word you used then? Uh, the, com- the comparison, no. Um, commonality. The commonality, thanks, Tina. Yeah, what's the difference between that? Those two words. The the commonality and well, you said there's no similarity, but there is a commonality. Yeah, what is that commonality? Like, why does McLuhan say that there that uh, the 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 car is a is a retrieval of the knight in shiny armor? It's if anybody pursued it and pinned them down, they probably they McLuhan probably couldn't prove that they're the same. But there might be something similar that he felt that it was appropriate to say that, 
because it was a, just a surface pattern. Ride a horse, you know, if you're on a horse like a knight would be, that's the horsepower in the engine of a car. The status of your armor is the type, the status of the car you drive. <laughs> that doesn't make anything. Please uh, don't continue Correct. talking. Correct. Please do. If you had a big ass night, no one would fuck with you if you had an armor. And same with you drive in and you're drinking continental and neighborhood. People know you mean biz. Perfect. Yeah. So there is something that's similar. Yes, there is. That's there's my point. There's I was there. wondering. But then there's also total difference. I was emphasizing the different, difference part of the retrieval. You're emphasizing that, but you, you couldn't negate the uh, similarities. <laughs> yeah, there are, there's some similarities, but there's also definite differences that shape Absolutely. the situation. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that you're not watching TV on the Internet. But, yeah, that retrieval always contains a similarity. Yeah, the, and exactly. the difference. But it's not the same experience as the TV environment, mm. per se. Right. Right. Because when we experienced a TV environment, everybody was watching the same thing at the same time. If you were on those three network channels, mm-hmm. I mean, you know. I don't and know. Tina, that's a valuable, a treasured part of your own experience. Just like anybody's experience is valuable. Now we have to notice that that we are aliens for having had that, because that's not in the memory bank of the young kids. Mm-hmm. You have to realize how different it is. Right, right. Mm-hmm. right, right. And, and how quickly it shifted. Yeah. Without the chip out of you, you'd never know who Hazel Burke was. Who who, who was? And without the chip body, you'd never know who Hazel Burke was. The third statement has nothing to do with anything. uh, These are not relevant statements. We're expert judgmental here, uh, whoever is speaking. The chip body provides the commonality that links up generations to what we experienced in the TV landscape when it was, and now the chip body provides that to... Uh, There's no connected. These kids aren't interested in being connected. They're not interested... Tina, they're not interested in being connected on, in their chip body experience. Yes, they are. Anything they you fa- tell yes, the kids that you're interested they in, they'll go Facebook. somewhere else. They have Facebook, and they love to be connected. No, they're among themselves, but not with previous generations. I disagree. My my teenage nieces and uh, my son, who uh, are very much the, they're just jiving and jamming, um, connected with the whole with environment around them all at the same time. But yeah, that's with that's got nothing to do with you. That's got with, nothing. With, uh, that's got nothing to do with, with you. Uh, with eating dinner, with texting, with, uh, you know. Well, they have to live with you. They probably haven't got jobs. <laughs> well, just because of the fact that they were there. I don't think it had anything to do with that. What are you trying to be, try like to figure out what you're trying to say. I mean, you're just saying a bunch of words. Like, they like being connected to it all. So and what? Uh, well, how can you? They don't know you can't be connected. See, they, they like being connected because that's nostalgia for connecting in a world you can't connect. They can't connect. They'll find a way around it. Oh, not a nostalgic thing. They'll find a nostalgic uh, no, cover kids story. Really are, don't but kids, if they, even if they're not technically not connecting, most kids in the realm of their peer friends and group of friends, and they're all. 
talking on Facebook with each other, they would argue that they are communicating. In yeah, among themselves. I'm talking about the, the gap between Tina well, and her they, son. Who are they supposed to be in contact with? Tina's deluded if she thinks she's got a son she's connected to. Well, well, well kids have their autonomous, they have their own life, and so there always is a bit of a gap of connection. Right, and there's a real gap now, and there's not even a gap, there's not even a connection between any of us right now. Would you feel unconnected to your son? Is this is is this in the world of language, Bob? You you are. Yeah, maybe the world of language and the world of uh, registered experience. I guess. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll let you off. I was saying because you're saying there's an incompatibility and a no, no communication, and I don't know if that's true for our families. There ain't. You can't have a family since television came in. You cannot have a family. And that's true. So what area is that true well, in? Well, well, what is a family? Then. Yeah. What is a family? It's a bunch of people living in a little place, and that's all they have. When television comes in, it brings you in other places. Right. What What defines family? So the kids don't. So, so so technology destroys. I mean, family. Yes. This is McCoolin's point. <laughs> it just. Oh, oh now you're getting. The, no, when you start getting. Connected to my son, and he lives. I don't know, 1,500 miles away from me. Right, but the content of his brain is nowhere near the content of your brain or the content of what you say. Like to cite that we watch TV that way, they don't have that experience. But when were they connected, Bob? That's what I'm when, when they, In a tribe, small scale, the yep. kids had the same experience as the parents in the small little situation. They saw this when the tiger came or whatever. They so could experience it. You got tribal, kids tribal li- having hundreds about. of years of experience, you know, in data that the other person doesn't have. Mm. That's why mm. Bipple, when he comes on, he's spewing his experience, and he does not allow that we cannot understand what he's talking about. Like I never tell my personal experience as much as possible. I just use very simple vocabulary: eye, ear, nose, smell, tactility. That's my vocabulary. That's all I'm ever referring to. And I suggest more people should do that. If they want to have matching, okay. if they want to match, if you, you don't have to when you don't want to match, I like you can how, um, I like how Ion or JW you fires you up. Up here, <laughs> what'd you say about Ion? Oh, he fires you up. You really, you get. When? Your, when does he fire me up? Whenever he comes in and says, "You know, statement," you get. No, no, up. it's got nothing to do with it. I, I, I just he's being as irrelevant okay. as the other you statements I'm hearing. Com- you find the commonality when. Do you not find commonality when you share an experience that someone else has had? No, because they are taking in other images. They don't. Your son is a cyborg, a clone, uh, uh, because he's got these other technical apparatuses part of him. This is McLuhan's point. McLuhan's point is you cannot have a society the way you think a society is, including family, once you bring in electric environment. Everybody mm. is discarnate. And then the content of that discarnate experience is uh, various. What do, we think, what do we hmm? think what culture and family is in the, nowadays? Those are memes, that, and now they're replayed by the Android meme. There is no, none of the images. There's no English. There's no well, context for from, English. From language, yeah, you're totally precise. But from well, that's all we are is language. Fuck off. <laughs> See, you just proved it. You, you, yeah. you, you had to use language to disconnect from the idea that you were not language. Or that you were language. You had to disconnect from it by going, fuck off. You had to use language to communicate that. You bet. Yeah, with see? Some, with some words and syllables in there. Woo-hoo. You had to use language. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not like 
I, I know, I know where you're coming from, but I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I, I'm ta- look. This is the McLuhan place. You got, I'm trying to get people to realize the depth of McLuhan's issues of here. No, no, no. Of course, of course. But you got to be a little bit more flexible because you have said that McLuhan is the, you know, is an old ground, but it's the good ground to, to, to. No, yeah. Um, I'm just. Finnegan's Wake wrote an incomprehensible book. That yeah. was the right response to the radio era. He knew that all reference points were gone. Mm, but like the right response now is not saying that we're all embedded in language and that's it. End of story. That's bollocks. No, that's true. Now, well, how would you define language? Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. you can't define it. So you can't define can, it today. How can you make that statement? I can because I got language. You guys have to prove your case in court. I'm I don't going, have I'm to. I'm the judge. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I, I can come to any conclusion order I want, and you must order accept my promise. I am making sure that I don't make sense order consciously. Yeah. I, I, I'm definitely trying to make no sense to show you yeah, what we're talking like about. Bipple. Like yeah, Bipple makes no sense and doesn't know he's doing that. The gesture has Stop sense. I don't like being put in those categories. I'm, I'm, I really mean it, that this is what electricity does. That's why, you know who said, we started emptying the guff 150 years ago when the telegraph came in. The yeah, destruction yeah, 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 of humanity, as, as it was known, began when the electric environment happened. Yeah, okay, cool. But electricity did it, and then what happened to the Android meme in 2008? And what, what are the implications of electricity in that post-state that we're in now well it's a pretty good state and it's uh you know it's not communicable okay so you can't use language not even bob well i just yeah. use a few I'm words no you no i use no i can use language i i keep it simple okay good. Go, go forth. so yeah the android meme died and so we're in the mystery landscape which is what is that i don't know the mystery uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the school bell rings and the summer breaks. <laughs> and your time is getting smart. No, that's good, Bob. That's good. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the the dialect between language and words is. Do we ever really learn, Palmer? No. I don't know, sir. <laughs> well, I guess we learn not to do it again. Yeah. But hell, who knows what, we, what, what did we do? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, sir. So, Bob, do you think you will come up eventually with a manifesto in English explaining the mystery landscape? Yeah, it's, a, yes, it's, yeah, it's called Ion. Ah. environment. Yeah, here we go, Brian, Brian, Brian. Brian. No, that, okay, for, um, yeah, I agree, Tina. Ion's an environment. So I created an anti environment, or me, J.W., and Carol did, mm-hmm. to the whole situation. That's why Ion says he is knowable as a mystery landscape. It's knowable, but what the heck is that? We're still working on it. Then Brian says, Did McLuhan know the difference between stone and mortar? I asked that of Ion, and um, uh, 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 Ion said yes. And that if you read his PhD, in detail, you can see that's what's in there. Why don't, so, we, ask, uh, why don't we ask him now? No, no, no. This is still being recorded. I don't want to ruin this for the McLuhan Symposium. 
for sure. What yeah, was the sure. question again? Brian? Yeah, the difference between... Did McLuhan know the difference between uh, mortar and stone or word as stone, you know? Uh-huh. The ionic and point, saying, and Ion yeah. and said he did. And you can see it in his PhD thesis. Well, uh, if you why, didn't know... Why are you uh, taking the language standpoint, then, if, if McLuhan has got a delineation? What did you say? How do you do the... Say it again, why, language? Why have you been taking the language standpoint uh, if McLuhan did have a delineation between... Because you, uh, be, you begin with something. You create okay. the disease and then offer the cure. Okay. That's, that's, that's the technique. That's you, you know, I've got to use words when I talk to you. That's a Just beginning sure. point. Just making sure you're on your toes. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Yeah, so the... The, he said that um, wisdom must be accompanied, this was his PhD thesis, the grammarian rhetorician's tradition is that wisdom must be accompanied, to, with, must be accompanied by eloquence. Very good. And timing. Now, yeah, and think of that. You, you can go around thinking you know, but if you can't say anything, you haven't got to square one. The fact he emphasized eloquence or speech, and he does that in later work, it seems to hint at what uh, the secret doctrine there. You know, the idea that you, you're not wise unless you know how to speak. Oh, well, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, Bob, yeah. Bob, you said that Ion said that uh, McLuhan knew the difference between stone and mortar. So where did McLuhan lay that out? Yeah, let's hear about this. Uh, he never, that's, um, that is what he, uh, he never talked about his Catholicism in public. All right? Really and, he made, and he told people he didn't. <laughs> he said, probably, well, I don't talk about my private life. I think that he was pointing out there was a whole other side of himself that you had to go around and meet him personally to find out about. Mm, yeah. So I, I think that this whole uh, dialogue... And that was the word part, Brian. You know, that was yeah. the Catholicism was a, was a metaphor for this uh, uh, understanding the eternal wisdom of the uh, power of words. Mm, and then you see him embed it in... He said in the end, all technologies are words. That was his go. big insight. And there you go. That's bridging the gap there. And what mm. I try to get at, you know, occasionally on cash flow about how words are more than what comes out of your mouth. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it just gives you the good dialect, I guess, um, to go beyond McLuhan, perhaps. And I, I want to know exactly what he said so we can springboard from it. Yeah, I think that Ion, uh, that McLuhan predicts Ion. I think the people on my chart do that. They, they, go, they point to the something beyond. And then Ion shows up to express that. Uh, yeah, for sure, for sure. But I mean, the, the, the quotes or the words, the, whatever uh, McLuhan wrote about uh, the difference between these two things, can, do, you, do you have them on hand or do you remember oh, uh, they are? No, uh, you mean where did he ever state the difference? Yes. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, no, he never stated the difference. As a matter of fact, yeah. I, I, we could say that he didn't know how to say it the way Ion does. So you've garnished that from uh, talking to his, his private friends and knowing him yourself? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. I've thought about it a lot. I'm still thinking about it. Maybe new data will come in. Maybe when we talk to McLuhan, you know, in the, in the future, um, yeah. we'll uh, get on that point. Mm. I think it's vital. I think it's yeah, crucial. yeah, yeah. Ba basic. Well, I don't <laughs> want to go any more into that. Yeah. Okay. So, so Dave, I wanted to go back to the uh, YouTube of you on. Much music, or whatever that thing is with your song in 1987, 88, 89 that we have on our website. My song, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Catch-22, the Catch-22 thing. Is that Scott Woods is on the other organ? Yes. Okay, just that, that was a detail. Dave, um, here's the example. Dave is like lucky. He just gets a computer, 
And instead of just learning how to synthesize stuff, and tell them how this happened, how you end up on TV. Um, I was DJing, and I forget how I ran into these. Oh, I had a thing in the buying cell, a mixer board. So this guy came to check it out, and I, it was just, you know, a old TAC thing, and he was sometimes DJs like it, it weighed a ton, but... Uh, Anyways, so uh, then he came over and we got chatting, and uh, he's already you know, I have my little, you know, studio set up, you know, with the keyboard and the Mac Plus or whatever, the 512K, and uh, and so I said, he said uh, he ran a record pool. And he said because I told him I DJ. He goes, well, that's funny. I run a record pool. And he said he said you should join my record pool, it's, and you get every two weeks a pile of records all of those labels. Anyways, and then I said, can you get that record, First Lost Everything, by Endgames? He goes, no, but I, I really like that song. And I just, like, I, I scoured all the used record stores and everything. And I said, God, someone should, like, make that song again, you know, do well in the clubs. And it's, like, it's, it was obscure enough, but still a bit of a hit. Anyways, so uh, he, he, I said, I, I should do, he said, you know, why don't you do that? And so I did so his other brother ran the record pool as well with them. So Shangading, and then uh, yeah, we put it out, and it did pretty well. And in in the clubs first, did it ever get on the radio? Yeah, it was highly rotated on Energy 108 and CFMY. It was weird, so it actually crossed over to the dance radio format and to the alternative radio format too, which was kind of wild. So then you get called up by the TV station, Moses Nimer City TV. They had approached, they had the Electric Circus show there, and so the, the Mike and Bruno would have given them the album and said, da, 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 bam, so then they said, oh, shit, uh, you got to go on TV, and so we were in a band, so yeah, I got Scott, and well, Chuck, the guy who's singing, lip-syncing it. Right, so now you got these three guys, and that, that you guys, what are, 20, uh, how old are you? 27, 25? Yeah, I think that, yeah, exactly. Right, yeah, so you guys are on there for, for a teen market situation. Tell us the fate of the other two guys within Decorum. Like, here are these guys playing, and what did Scott Woods end up doing? Um, he had his rock critics site, and then uh, the one he had uh, before that, you know, and it put a lot of work into it, and it was really good, but, you know, he <coughs> doesn't pay any money. And, and then he now he runs the monitoring of the digital uh, financial world. That's right. You know, he, he's a heavy guy, or, you know, he's in the secret or the nub of judging which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange are valid or not. So he's totally in the chip body thing monitoring that stuff, right? And here's yeah, that's a, well, so that's maybe a little strong way of describing it. I would more describe that, that he, is work, he is managing a, a company that runs a software system that people use to input if they own shares, they own companies and they're trading shares to register their insider trade so that it then becomes public record and that's the system they have right now and so that's what he's involved in it. It's not like as much of like a watchdog where they're looking for suspicious activity. They're simply, it's reported into them and then they put it into the public record and so that's the means that it's put into the public record through them. Now right now they're trying to make it a national thing. Right. Now he's, now I bring this up because you look at that kid playing the organ on a little TV show, kid youth culture show, and he has done, I think he did the HMV stuff, managed stores like that. That's right. That's the other. That, that yeah. Was, so all these things, he never would have thought 
He never would have thought when he's playing there, and you might even think, well, maybe we're going to be a band. He never would have thought 25 years later he would be in the heart of a digital thing. I mean, that's a million years later in terms of what happened. Then you okay. can look at, look at the singer. Is he still alive? Yes. Is he performing? Um, not, no, not, not really, no. Is he uh, in a stable condition? Reasonably. Is he... Um, I like it. It's like, what's my line? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, I don't know. He, he, where he is now is not where he expected to be when he was singing that song. No, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I would say, like, the life's frustrations even manifest at an earlier age where, where I think you can see, you know, whatever discomfort people experience or, or feel, you know, that those kind of things, you know, might continue to manifest in their life. Um, okay, so so, uh, so I would say when we were at that gig, you say, did Scott have any picture that in 25 years that he this is what he would be doing? Then yada 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 yada. It's like no, but but you know every person has you know probably I'm sure would feel myriad of unease and ease at every stage of their life. Right. So you can say if anybody, future. you can say anybody in history or all humans never are surprised where they end up at 25. But that's, a, that's the universal part, right? I mean, at uh, 50. They, everybody never ends up where they probably expect to be. That's, that's the common thing through all of human experience. But we'll look at what it is, how different it is where he ended up, the whole techno apparatus he's part of. That's different. So the constantness of always having a surprising 25, you know, in the future is not going to be predictable. Look how unpredictable his situation is. It's extra unpredictable. There's an extra dimension happening here. Yeah, I mean, you can't predict in the sense that how did he wind up in it? Was he thinking then, oh, there's going to be computer technology? I'm going to be no. He he needed work, and he went with a temp agency, and you know because he's a quality person, they you know eventually they kept him on for a long time, and then when the contract was up, they hired him permanent, basically, and then from there he moved up into senior management. That you know, but that took a period of a few years. Yeah, and he but never took a college course. He, was in, he not wasn't prepared no, for that no, job at all. No, no, exactly. But he was he was adept at it and, and, and a good person for it. And, you know, and that, so that's, and that way, temp agencies, you know, can be really good. I know another person that's amazing how they really didn't have great job prospects, but they went to the temp agency and they found them work, and from there they really branched out their, their job potential and what they were able to do. And, I mean, in the case of Scott, I know, you know personally uh, that, you know, he doesn't love the job, he doesn't hate it kind of thing, it's tolerable kind of thing, but, uh, you know, so it wasn't his first love. But it does pay the bills, and he has a kid and a wife, so you know, in a house, so he's got to, uh, you know, keep things going. Yeah, I think most people are unhappy today because they got four bodies, but they have to spend extra time in the chemical body. With the chemical body. Yeah, yeah, and they have all this other stuff pulling at them that they could do, could enjoy, right. but they can't. So you take someone who lives in a tribal village, um, he ends up where he didn't expect, you know, in 25 years, but. He does not, he, there's a range of noble experience. He may not be the chief of the tribe or a fisherman. He might be doing you know, shipbuilding or something, but not the difference you have today. Announcement one, switch, five, three, two, dash, five. Yeah, I hear you, Bob. 
Are we still there? Is everybody still here? The wireless customer you called is not available at this time. Please Yeah, okay, so we didn't disconnect it. coming in on it. No, we're still here. Yeah, join in. Who? The Android meme is yeah. English. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the so the um, uh, just the uh, to bring in Ion. What Ion sends metaphysically, you have to create your own universe, and that's all there is. Ion is actually expressing metaphys, you know, in spiritual terms, what is actually the technical fact that I'm saying there's no connection between you or anybody else linguistically because of the Android meme. And so Ion addresses that. Tells you what's already happened. There's no connection between you and anybody else. And what, that's technically the, where we're at today. What's the connection, though? When we'd have to... A matchable uh, reference point. And you say there's no is connection. Is there any striving for a connection? Yeah, well, that's another question as well, but... Yeah, how much is there striving? There's a lot of people dropping out for making an attempt to connect, and there's a lot of people dropping out ecologically to balance off the disconnectors to try to connect. So that's a sisterly diastole going on all the time. Right, right. Describe driving, dro- dropping out ecologically. Oh, I meant the interaction of the dropouts are, are complementarized or made or are countered by the drop-ins. This is what McClellan said. The world today, he said in the 70s, will cause great alienation, and many people will want to drop off from it. But he said also the electric environment creates great uh, demand for involvement. So a lot of people will be running in extra involved or try to help. So the dropout ratio is, you know, equal, the dropout numbers are equal to the drop-in numbers. And that's a hidden ecology that's happening. And so... Yeah. Equilibrium between the two. Right. And both are erased. Sort of ground, some sort of stability there. Well, not, uh, there could be, but there isn't when you bring in the Android meme because that erases both tendencies. So both have identity yeah. crisis. The, the ones who want to drop out can't get away, and the ones who drop in have no center point to land. Right. But, again, is that uh, connection or whatever it's uh, desirable? Do we care? <laughs> It depends who you're speaking to and who your audience is and what medium you're saying it through. Yeah, so does all that matter? Only only now can you raise that. Only now can you raise that point, James. I think it does. It must matter. It must be expressed because look at all the hundreds of thousands of people that mob to clubs on the weekend. We were talking about it earlier. Yeah. They're chemical bodies celebrating, but... But also, but, they're, they're obviously expressed as some kind of desire, yeah, to be involved with other people. I mean, you wouldn't have an economy if there was just everyone was all alone. Well, you could kind of yeah. simulate an well, economy yeah. and sell video games and that kind of thing, but eventually it would kind of go stagnant. You'd have to set up Las Vegas's everywhere to try and be productive and make money. Huh. Um, <laughs> so money held the, the world together. Or I'm going to say, just... Uh, no, we don't encourage that. No, just a one sentence. <laughs> Come on. We had his sentence. Well, we didn't hear it. Oh, it doesn't matter. Okay. He, he tried. It's like uh, I on itself won't repeat. But the uh, so maybe we should end soon. Yeah. How many hours has it been? I know on my thing that this band that came in actually if they're if they're even trying to get a hold of me, <laughs> the Dave's lines always. Busy. <laughs> anyway, 
But uh, it's, it's funny. I've, uh, I've been uh, work, I've been working on some tracks, and I, I'm not a producer at all. But I was in the studio with my brother, and you know, they were recording some drums. And just last night, I was working on the tracks, and now I'm going. Mm, hey Dave, <laughs> check them out. <laughs> I'm just yeah. joking. But uh, no, if you're if you're keen, there um, I can show you some good Perth music. If you want to get an idea, I know, I know sure. quite a few of the bands. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, Dave. Bob, Bob will, he gave me my contact. Yeah, right. we we've gone for five hours and twenty seven minutes. Okay, that was I, I thought it was pretty good. No, yeah. you were great, Dave. Excellent uh, input. Really so so Bob, you stuck out the whole time. James, you stuck in, and Andrew, you're there, yeah. No, Andrew. I, well, James came in late. Okay, you know what it is? Because James' voice is like Andrew. There were some points when I wasn't sure if James was Andrew or right. if they were both you guys. And then, so there was consistent, though. Well, it's because uh, they're both Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, you know, Andrew's in New Zealand yeah. and, and James is in Australia. Right, I was going to say, I, I was going to say Australia. <laughs> yeah, man. So, yeah, uh, all right, yeah, I'll, speak, I'll, I'll speak to you later. And that was good. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Yeah. Awesome, man. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dave. It was really good. And a lot of range of data. Yeah, out. and is Jen and regular Jen, she split, but uh, whoever else is there... Yeah, come on back whenever you want to. You won't be a okay. featured guest uh, for a while, but... Um, no problem. You know, we're always here every Monday. Okay, cool, Bob. Okay, thanks a lot, Dave. Thanks, Bobby. All right. See ya. Good night, all. Good night. See you, okay. Ian. Fight. <laughs> so <Good> nice. <laughs> okay, i got to unhook the phone to uh, stop the recording. Mm-hmm.